Lecture 21, Skaldic Poetry and Sagas. In this lecture, I plan to look at the conditions that gave rise to skaldic poetry, which is a later version of the poetry I discussed earlier, and the Icelandic sagas, and those sagas come in several different guises. One are the famous family sagas that deal with Icelanders of the Viking Age and just after the Viking Age, the, or just after the conversion to Christianity in 1000, uh, as well as sagas dealing with times past. Uh, these would be the sagas of the Volsungs and Rolf Kraki, of which I spoke earlier, and finally, a whole class of sagas that are essentially translations of general European literature. Uh, all of this uh, literature is produced in Iceland. Uh, much of it comes down on uh, manuscripts of the 13th through the 15th centuries. And it is a major question, uh, why did Iceland turn out to be the repository of all this literature and the source of the production of all this literature? Icelandic literature is often hailed as one of the miracles of the uh, Middle Ages. That is, the literature that was produced in Iceland is still read today. It has inspired later Scandinavian authors. Uh, there are numerous studies to point to the connections between Icelandic literature and the production of the modern novel or drama as we know it in Scandinavia today, both in terms of themes and language and images. And there's this continuous tradition of writing in the Scandinavian vernacular languages that goes back to Iceland of the uh, Middle Ages. Now, there were some peculiar conditions that allowed Iceland to take this role. And it's important to stress that the literature that survives outside of Iceland dealing with the Viking Age uh, in the rest of Scandinavia is not nearly of the same size and diversity of what we have in Iceland. Uh, primarily, they are written in Latin. Uh, these are Latin chronicles from Denmark or very often they're works that have been written by Icelanders who were resident in Norway particularly. So you're essentially looking at the production of uh, literature by the colonists out on this remote island whose population never really attained more than 70,000 according to most estimates in the Viking Age. Well there were several peculiar conditions for this and scholars have debated this issue a great deal. What led to the creation of the Skaldic poetry and the sagas? Why Iceland? Why the particular literary dialect of Norse, uh, which is essentially an Icelandic dialect uh, as it existed from, say, 1100 to 1250 or 1350? Why here did we get all this literary production? Well, one reason is that the Icelanders were colonists. They had uh, fled from Norway under uh, the pressures of Harald Finehair and in, in the desire to take land. And in settling the new land, this empty island, uh, they quickly filled it up with their homesteads, which were uh, scattered settlements uh, quite remote uh, below the Arctic Circle with long winters, ice-bound um, uh, winters where, you know, for maybe six or seven months of the year, there was really no shipping leaving Iceland. Um, and furthermore, in these conditions, there was a need for both hospitality and entertainment. Uh, this is evident in all of the family sagas that come down to us, where poets would be particularly appreciated, uh, people who could re recount stories of the gods, of the heroes, or of figures that were well known to the Icelanders in the early Christian age, that is, uh, their ancestors, in effect. And so the uh, living conditions alone uh, intensified that need for storytelling, poetry, which was already evident in Scandinavia. I discussed that earlier in, in, in several lectures. And uh, the result was a great delight 
uh, in the technique of storytelling. Second, as colonists who lived in these extremely harsh conditions, uh, they were more conscious in some ways of their origins than those who stayed in the Scandinavian homeland. They proudly pointed to noble ancestors in Norway, or in some instances, uh, genealogies that linked them back to, with uh, usually Danish kings. Uh, Rolf Kraki, for instance, is claimed as the ancestor of several Icelandic families. Uh, Rolf, or Rollo, the man who established the Duchy of Normandy, uh, other legendary kings were all included in this. And it's just one of a number of instances where the Icelanders are keenly interested about their ancestry, um, about their connections to Scandinavian traditions. And so they, more than their um, kinsmen who stayed in the homeland, appreciated the myths, the tales, and the traditions uh, that come down to us in the poetry and saga. The Icelanders also governed themselves in a peculiar way. Uh, we believe that all Germanic societies were based on some type of assembly or thing. And I've made reference to this going back to at least the Roman age, where Roman authors notice this assembly of free men, very often armed, who elect kings, decide peace and war, pass later on what we would call legislation. And we'll encounter this in the emergence of the Scandinavian kingdoms in the homeland, where kings have to be ratified in the things, in the regional uh, assemblies of free men. Well, the Icelanders took this method of governance and really applied it on a scale that you did not see in the Scandinavian homeland. I mentioned they did not have the need for the institutions of government. There was no foreign threat. Most uh, law or justice was uh, carried out on a very face-to-face -face basis uh, by the so-called Gotar or Gothi. Those are the, the, for lack of a better word, chieftains, uh, the resident men in the district. They were men who knew and understood customary law. Uh, if you could not work out a settlement and, uh, on, for instance, a blood feud or a property arrangement or trespass or any kind of civil suit, as we would call it, you then would resort to the thing these were the quarter things or the national all thing. And there, uh, the importance of those assemblies were far greater than they were in the Scandinavian homeland. This, was the, this is, in effect, the court of last resort, uh, the court of last appeal. And in this assembly was a um, law speaker, and it was his job to reconcile disputing parties. Uh, he would be checked by other uh, Godar or Gothar. I mean, you could transliterate that symbol either as a D or a TH, and the law speaker was expected to act as an arbiter, and he had no writing. It was all done by memory. It was part of Icelandic law that the law speaker be able to recite at the law rock, where you would name your witnesses and bring your suit, uh, at least one-third of the Icelandic customary law each year. The lawgiver was elected for a term of uh, three years and could be re-elected, and I would, I would stress a significant point. Between the establishment of the All Thing in 930 and the conversion to Christianity, and with the conversion of Christianity comes the advent of writing, there is a, um, a number of uh, possible law speakers you can have. But what comes down to us is that there are only uh, five individuals who would be serving on average a term of 18 years, even though they technically were elected for three-year terms. That is, men were re-elected as law speaker repeatedly, partially because they were sagacious, but they also had that ability to memorize and recite. 
And uh, the uh, advent of writing in the 11th century results in much shorter terms for law speakers, which is an evidence that you know, no longer this, this ability to memorize and recite accurately is all that important a qualification. You now have writing, and you can depend on writing rather than on memory. So the entire society put a great stress on memory, recitation, uh, the ability to explain, uh, to create ornate and beautiful language and also to recite in very strict poetic forms or in legal language or religious language, which had a certain technique, a certain cadence to it, uh, there is a fair amount of study that would indicate that uh, Icelandic legal language is essentially religious language simply recast. That is, you repeat the laws very similarly to the way you'd repeat prayers to the Vanner, to Thor, to Odin. Uh, you don't want to upset the gods by uh, in any way deviating from the traditional invocation. And most uh, Gotars or uh, Gothars would have uh, been adept both at invoking the gods in communal prayers as well as uh, reciting law, and in the case of a law, uh, law dispute. So these conditions absolutely uh, incline the Icelanders to excelling in storytelling, both in its poetic form and then in its prose narrative. There was another important point uh, about Iceland, which again differed from the Scandinavian homeland and gives us, something of a, gives us something of a preview of the last third of this course, and that was the act of conversion itself. I mentioned that the Icelanders voted Christianity as the religion of all. Essentially what the All Things said in the summer of 1000, there should be only one religion. Uh, this act of uh, conversion is a remarkable event in Iceland for two reasons. First, it was essentially a compromise, a settlement, a mediation that is typical of all Icelanders and their day-to-day -day dealings. And you can look at this act of the all thing as essentially the same as the type of compromises that are discussed in family sagas. When two families are disputing and they're going to resort to blood feud, instead you intervene, you pay compensation for the killed relatives, you work out a settlement, uh, you come to some sort of agreement to prevent the violence from getting out of hand. And that's essentially what went on in 1000. That is the pagan majority, uh, in part pressured by the fact that the king of Norway would suspend trade, uh, on which all Icelanders depended if they didn't convert, but the pagan majority agreed to accept the ruling of a Christian minority to accept Christianity as the official religion of the Republic. Now, that act meant there was no kind of violence against priests, burning of temples, the type of zealous actions that are often associated with the conversion of an area to Christianity in the uh, Middle Ages, where the ancient gods are condemned as demons, their statues are overthrown, the, um, in some cases the priests might be killed, and uh, you bring in uh, hardcore monks who are trained in a tradition right out of the Old Testament, uh, just as Elijah and Elisha attacking uh, the altars of Baal uh, in the Kingdom of Israel. That didn't happen. But there's another point that's often missed in this story, and that is Icelandic law really had no way of imposing any kind of general decision. And so the act of conversion in 1000 was an official act. What one did on his farmstead was his own business. That was private property. Uh, if anyone came onto your farmstead to check up on your religious affiliation, well, that was a trespass. 
And there is a good reason to believe that during much of the 11th century, many Icelanders very, very happily uh, would go to the thing, uh, the quarter sessions uh, or to the all thing, uh, conform to the public Christianity, but, ho but at home continue to worship the gods because that was a private matter, that was something they did with their family, and there was no one in there to go in and check up on them. There was no ordinary Episcopal structure that we would think of in Western Europe. There were no kings. There were very, very few monasteries, uh, and these come much later. And so what happened is that the transition to Christianity was, uh, to Christianity was gradual. And in the process, the Icelanders revered the old stories, the old tales and legends. They also revered their pagan ancestors. And there are a number of instances uh, reported in the sagas and now dramatically uh, demonstrated by the excavations uh, headed up by Jesse Biox's team in the Mosul Valley, that uh, Mosfell Valley near Reykjavik, that in many instances, Christian Icelanders dug up the bodies of their pagan ancestors and buried them in churchyards. In effect, there's a uh, ex post facto baptism going on here. So uh, with all of these conditions, the Icelanders really embraced the ancient traditions and put them down into poetry and saga. Well, that gets us to the two great literary achievements that come down to us from Iceland. And as I mentioned, without this literature, we would really be in the dark about the old dramatic gods. And I discussed those gods in considerable detail in an earlier lecture. In the case of the poetry uh, that uh, is uh, composed in the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, the Icelanders settled uh, their new homeland at a very important point in the literary development of Norse. They still did not have a written a real alphabet. I mean, they were the runic letters, but they weren't used for composition. But in the late 9th century and 10th century, when the first wave of settlers arrived in Iceland, there was an extremely important development in the, um, the poetry of Scandinavia. The Viking Age had given a new surge to poetic activity. Uh, one that led to the adapting of the old meters into many more forms. I believe I mentioned that earlier, uh, that you get all different types of couplets. There's eight basic types of stanzas you created. The language was evolving so that Icelandic, or, or Norse in general, but the Icelandic dialect we have, has all of these um, uh, beautiful monosyllabic or disyllabic words that are ideal for poetry. There is an, uh, an incredibly uh, rich vocabulary. Uh, with lots of synonyms that could be used in poetry, and the working out of these complicated kennings, these extended metaphors, which could take several forms. They could be a rather mundane object referred to in an oblique way, that is, um, the warrior's helm, uh, meaning um, a tall warrior who is compared to a, a tree helm. Or you could talk of a ship as the, um, the sea steed, or you could get even more elaborate and talk about, uh, I believe a, a common example is Granny's burden, that is gold carried by Granny, the horse of Sigurd, or the, uh, the seed of, of Friesville, or that is the, the field where Ralph Crocky uh, sowed it with gold on his escape from Uppsala. And so you have a combination of these types of kennings to fill out the line. Well, these developments in, Ice in Norse poetry occurred at the time uh, when the Icelanders are moving into their new homeland, and the Icelanders absolutely embraced uh, the recitation of this poetry, and particularly by poets or skalds, who began, in effect, to sign their work. They didn't actually sign it in a literary production, but it's at the end of the ninth century that we begin to get the names of poets, which we never had before.
The earliest one we know is a Norwegian known as Bragi the Old. And he composed a poem, uh, Ragnar's Drapna, that is the shield of Ragnar, Ragnar Lodbrok, who's thrown into a snake pit in England. And that is a description of the shield's various mythological designs. And that poem is an ex extremely important transition from the earlier uh, heroic poetry. It's seen as the first of the skaldic poems. And these are poems in a much more complicated and demanding verse, cluttered with kennings and uh, allusions to earlier myths and legends, and also poems that are now being associated with individuals. Bragi the Old lived somewhere between 850 and 900. He was writing immediately after the death of Ragnar. And so to some extent, the Viking Age is spurring on poets to come up with more marvelous poems and ways of reciting uh, the current heroes. And that poetry is being developed just at the time of the settlement of Iceland, and the Icelanders become absolutely adept in reciting it. Uh, by the 10th century, uh, Icelanders capture essentially the poet market in Scandinavia. They are within the second or third generation of the settlement of the island, regarded as the premier scalds in the northern lands. And uh, starting from the 10th century on, we get the names of uh, various poets. And many of their poems, uh, they don't survive in toto, but they're often cited uh, within family sagas and other sagas of the 13th and 14th century. We get long stanzas. And uh, you read the sagas. Uh, one thinks, for instance, Njal Saga, which is the, um, the longest of the family sagas and in some ways the most famous. Uh, there are many instances in that saga where someone who is regarded extremely witty and or often sharp-tongued, men and women both, are just ready to come up with a couplet on the spot to describe a situation. It might have been an insult. It might be a, uh, a prophetic utterance. I'm going to get back at you. And this is, this is a society that literally thinks in poetry all the time and is uh, constantly thinking in terms of alliterating, uh, devising new verses. And as a result, we know the names of numerous skalds that have come down to us, poets. Uh, in one manual alone in the 13th century, 146 different skalds are named, all of them Icelanders, and many of their poems are listed. Uh, we have uh, fragments or, or parts of these poems uh, embedded in the sagas, and this gives you some idea of the extent and the diversity of the, um, the literary tradition that emerges in, in Iceland. And this uh, poetry then, uh, which was everywhere present in Icelandic society uh, by the time of the act of conversion in 1000, continued. Once Iceland converted to Christianity in 1000, they received the benefit of writing, uh, of the Latin alphabet. Now there again, it took a little time. As I mentioned, it might have been two or three generations, that is much of the 11th century, from 1000 to 1100, when Icelanders really began to understand what conversion meant, that they were now Christians. Uh, it is at that same time that they begin to appreciate uh, the power of writing down poetry and other traditions. And it is only towards the end of the 11th century, we suspect, that writing becomes widespread among the, um, the wealthier classes in Iceland. And there was there, there there's several indications of this. One is that Bishop Gizar um, Islifsson, who was uh, Bishop of Iceland from 10, 1082 to 1106, made the first census of Iceland, which is actually the basis of all the uh, the very very dubious demographic figures that we give you. And this was a uh, this was a counting of households in order to collect the tithes necessary to maintain church institutions. 
Uh, nonetheless, it was an accounting, it was an important document, it was written down, and that is the first kind of census we know of in Iceland, and it probably represents an important step in committing information to writing. At the same time, as I noted, the uh, Icelanders begin to elect uh, law speakers for shorter terms. That is, men only serve for three years or six years at most. Someone new comes in, quite different from the earlier situation where you kept re-electing men who had that ability to recite uh, the memory of the ancient laws, the traditions, and also the prayers uh, that were invoked to the gods uh, when the assemblies were pagan. And finally, somewhere around 1115, 1116, uh, the customary laws of Iceland are finally written down in what are known as the Grages, that is the Grey Goose, uh, Goose Laws. Well, we believe it is at the end of the, uh, the 11th century, the beginning of the 12th century, that Icelanders start adapting writing to uh, their literary production and start writing down the poems. And this is a major step. It allows for the composition of these poems. Uh, the um, most famous collection represented in the Poetic Edda, uh, which I've mentioned earlier, and the origin and date of these poems is still highly disputed. Uh, they are in a literary Icelandic. Uh, they are probably written some at the earliest. They would not have been committed to writing until somewhere towards the end of the 11th century, the beginning of the 12th century. Yet they're in an extremely archaic language. They, sh they show the, the oral techniques of recitation, the complicated meters of the skalds, of which we have lots of comments, and skalds who were operating at least since the 9th century, such as Bragi the Old and his successors. And so the, the sense of it is, is that we, the Icelanders, under their peculiar conditions and the way they received Christianity and learned writing, were able to, to write down these poems to give at least a relatively faithful reflection of what poetry was like in the Viking Age. And those poems were read and recited, now in written form, and become the basis of the uh, manual of Snorri Sturluson, written about 1220. And I've mentioned Snorri's uh, prose edda. It was written in three parts. And the first part is essentially a handbook of mythology, but the second part is an extremely important instruction on how to use kennings, how to write metaphorical language, and how to, how to master those complicated verses which increasingly are going to require writing because the verses and the illusions become more and more ornate and uh, more and more is being committed to writing. And what that manual of Snorri shows in the numerous poems that he, he cites in, in part is that poetry now evolves to a, essentially a literary production and is appreciated by the courts of the kings of Denmark and Norway and the Icelanders are supplying this market. Um, that's where we get this document from Norway uh, mentioning 146 uh, Icelandic skalds who are known for various types of poems. And the types of poems become more uh, diverse. You have poems for funerary occasions. You have poems uh, to honor patrons. Uh, the third part of the prose edda, uh, the Hattatal, for instance, is, um, is Snorri's own effort at those types of poems. Uh, that is, uh, I guess we would call it as a panegyric. It's a poem honoring uh, the patron of, of uh, Snorri, who happens to be uh, Jarl Haken uh, at the, uh, the Norwegian court. And what he's in effect saying, look, this is how you do it the right way now that we have this type of excellence in poetry. So as a result, uh, not only the myths and the legends and the traditions of the past are preserved, but a whole new literary type of poetry is created in Iceland um, based on these traditions, but celebrating uh, the current kings, uh, uh, various types of events, and applied 
uh, starting in the 13th and 14th century uh, to other types of poetry, including translations of general European and Christian works. At the same time of the, the shift over to writing, where you're starting to put your poetry down uh, in written form, uh, the Icelanders' techniques in storytelling is likewise put to writing. And this gives rise to one of the most remarkable forms of literature that we have in the Middle Ages, and that is the Icelandic prose saga, which still endures today as perhaps some of the most attractive literature that comes from the Middle Ages. Uh, for moderns who essentially are, uh, I always think most of us are like um, Monsieur Jordan in the Bourgeois Gentilhomme of Moliere, uh, we're all astonished to learn somewhere in our lives that we speak prose. Uh, for a modern age that essentially speaks prose and doesn't really appreciate poetry, it's not valued to the same degree, it's, it's not the same type of communal experience, the prose sagas of Iceland have an immediate attraction because they uh, impress us as the equivalent of the novel, especially the historical novel in its modern sense. And many an argument can be made that this type of prose narrative um, uh, feeds very much into a very rich tradition of novel that still survives in Scandinavia today. Now, prose uh, sagas are quite a different type of genre from poetry. They are a genre that is premised on writing. The stories might be traditional. They might be of Ralph Crocky. They might be of the Volsungs, based on the old poems. Or they might be dealing with the lives of ordinary Icelanders or not maybe ordinary, but you know, fairly prominent, but certainly not kings or princes or heroes in the, in the traditional sense, Icelanders of the 10th and 11th century uh, who are caught up in these webs of family intrigue and clashes and blood feuds that have given rise to well over 40 very, very brilliantly written uh, family sagas. And this type of composition, uh, continuous prose narrative, is the hallmark of a literate culture. It, it, it indicates several aspects about Iceland and the way it transforms itself into this literate Christian culture. For one, there is a large readership uh, with an appetite for reading these types of tales, talking about the immediate ancestors of the Icelandic Republic. And if you read through these sagas, and many times uh, certain families appear in several sagas and you actually get to piece different perceptions on these people, uh, these sagas are uh, well known to all the Icelanders because many of them are related to these figures or at least know about these families because they happen to be the, you know, one of the leading figures of the Gothi of the district or was uh, descended from someone who uh, carried out the original act of settlement. And so the, uh, the sagas have very much the quality of, of a historical novel. They are uh, accurate in many details. They give the impression that on the one hand, these are you know, not quite history as we understand it, but certainly plausible ways of looking into some of the social and legal conditions in the Viking Age, and that the audience demands. They have, they have to have a certain sort of ver uh, veracity in the social settings and legal settings. Um, of course, you're dealing with the actions of exceptional figures, uh, not necessarily normal life. These are cases of blood feud and other great disputes. On the other hand, uh, the sagas also uh, represent a work that one could read uh, silently, alone, uh, appreciate the action, uh, appreciate the very matter-of-fact way in which these uh, cases are uh, presented to you, and therefore you're dealing with a literature that's written for a very different social setting than the culture of the Great Hall, which was the basis for generating all that poetry in the Viking Age. And the sagas represent a very, very important shift in the readership and attitudes and reflections of uh, expectations of Icelandic society and Scandinavian society in general 
that shows them being moved into the mainstream of European literature and European uh, thought, uh, and yet at the same time adapting the storytelling technique in a particularly Icelandic way. And there's a whole class of um, sagas, I mentioned them briefly at the start of this lecture, that really deserve more study. There is a very good uh, effort on the part of the Penguin Classics people to put out new modern translations of sagas. In each year, several of them appear. They're usually family sagas or they're the saga of Rolf Kroki or the Volsung saga. These things are immediate instant successes. To the modern readership, uh, they are the equivalent of reading a really wonderful historical novel. But there's a whole class of sagas that really have not been translated, or if they're translated, they're in, you know, very, very old editions and rather archaic language. And these, this is a third class of sagas, which include Arthurian legend. Uh, they include various Christian works, uh, some of which we would call hagiography. Uh, for instance, tales of, of uh, Christian kings who later became canonized as saints, and not necessarily Scandinavian kings. These could be kings anywhere in Europe. Uh, enormous amount of material on the, uh, the very rich romances surrounding Alexander the Great, figure from antiquity who was very popular in the Middle Ages. A French romance, especially starting in the 12th and 13th century. And um, all of these um, uh, sagas are prose renditions. Uh, very often a poetry from a, a general European context being rendered into Norse prose, into that elegant, lean Norse prose that is the hallmark of, of family sagas and the sagas of past time, which is again an, yet another indication of the maturing of the Icelandic uh, readership and audience and the integration and assimilation of Scandinavia into that wider literary culture of later medieval Europe. And so, as one uh, scholar has often put it, uh, one of the greatest uh, treasures to come out of the Viking Age, one of the greatest accomplishments of the Viking Age, was the settlement of Iceland, which provided the conditions for the production of this literature. Lecture 22, Western Voyages to Greenland and Vinland. In this lecture, I plan to deal with the voyages and colonizations of uh, Greenland and Vinland. Vinland referring to uh, that small fragment of North America, which the Norse discovered, uh, and Vinland is, is essentially Newfoundland today. The discovery of Greenland and the attempted settlement in, in North America from about 1001 to really 1014 is at the far end of the knowledge, the geographic knowledge and extent of the Vikings, and really had very little long-term historical consequences, and one could say actually they had virtually no historical consequences. These voyages of Western um, discovery really didn't uh, uh, excite the European imagination, lead to the voyages of discovery starting with Columbus. Uh, instead, it was the legendary travels or the semi-legendary travels out to China that inspired Europeans to sail west in order to bump into Cathay or China. Uh, the knowledge of these um, uh, Norse voyages in the North Atlantic was pretty much restricted to uh, Scandinavia. And there's no reason to doubt that these voyages took place. But their long-term uh, impact in European civilization is, is, is minimal or nil. On the other hand, 
these voyages are clearly what most, uh, certainly North Americans, remember about the Vikings. Oh, they were the first people to get to America, meaning the first Europeans. Uh, and they have been subject to all sorts of popular literature, films, you name it, uh, frauds. Uh, and uh, part of the uh, purpose of this lecture is to look at the record of what we actually know of the colonizations in Greenland and in North America and why they failed, and then to look at the popular perception and how this whole culture of just, you know, cottage industry of manufacturing uh, false maps and reports of Vikings in North America and what that tells us about perceptions of the Vikings and really a great deal about certainly uh, Americans as well as Canadians today. So let's look at the actual historical record first. Uh, we know most about uh, Greenland and Vinland from two sagas, family sagas, composed in the 13th century. And this is the saga of Eric the Red and the saga of the Greenlanders. Uh, both of these sagas are really more concerned with the events around Eric the Red and his family, uh, especially his elder son, Leif the Lucky, Leif Erikson, who's credited with probably, you know, really inaccurately with the discovery of North America. And, uh, and Leif Erikson was probably uh, remembered more as, as more important for bringing Christianity uh, to the Greenland settlement rather than anything he found in North America. Nonetheless, we have these two family sagas, and they are verified by other reports. Uh, we do know in 1070 that Adam of Bremen, in his history of the archbishops of Hamburg Bremen, makes reference to the fact that uh, uh, Danes and Norwegians and Icelanders know of this island called Vinland out in the Western Ocean, he means the Atlantic, and that that is at the extreme end of the known world. And so we do have a verification in a medieval source that these voyages actually uh, took place. And now we have archaeology that demonstrates uh, not only the settlement in Greenland, but also that brief settlement in North America. But nonetheless, as I said, this information was really uh, not very well known. It was only popularized to uh, Western Europeans in the 18th century at a time where, you know, America had long been known and, you know, no one was particularly interested in these, uh, these Norse ventures. Well, sailing um, uh, to North America required first the sailing to Greenland. And Greenland's discovery and settlement in some ways was a replay of Iceland. Uh, in the um, uh, uh, trips that took place between Norway and uh, Iceland, there were several instances of skippers being driven off course, uh, getting sightings of islands. They, they seemed to be the essentially the eastern shores of Greenland. So there was some knowledge that there was a land mass uh, to the uh, northwest of Iceland uh, by the, you know, 950s and 960s. But no one really took much attention to this and really cared to explore it. It really took an, a, a restless adventure and a very, very colorful figure, Eric the Red, referring to his uh, hair color, uh, who was actually under two um, uh, suits of uh, outlaw. He, he was outlawed from Norway for manslaughter and then got himself outlawed for three years in Iceland. Uh, there's, there's various degrees of being outlawed. You can be forced to leave the country for three years or you can get a permanent banishment. It depended out how um, offensive the crime had been and how important uh, the family you had uh, transgressed. So Eric the Red is essentially running two outlaw, uh, outlaw terms and decides, well, this is a great idea to turn explorer. And he apparently bought the vessel, the Canar, used by one of these um, um, uh, skippers who had, had sighted uh, Greenland, and we suspect he might have actually had some of the crew. And he sets off on a voyage of adventure in um, uh, 983 or 984 and sails 
west and he hits the eastern shores of Greenland and follows it down to Cape Farewell and comes up the west coast. And there he, is, he finds several um, uh, fjords which could provide conditions for settlement the same way you have in Iceland. The most important of these is known as Eriksfjord. It becomes the basis for the main settlement, very often known as the Eastern Settlement. And what's confusing about the settlement in Greenland is the settlements are all on the west coast of Greenland, but the southernmost one was called the Eastern because it was farther east, and the northern one is often called the Western Settlement. So the names are a bit deceptive, but they're all on the western shore of Greenland. Well, the other aspect about Greenland that was very attractive was that there apparently were no natives. At the time, there were no Eskimos uh, or very few Eskimos in Greenland because of the changing Arctic conditions. Many of them had migrated back into Canada and they would only reappear in Greenland in the 14th century when you have this period known as the Minor Ice Age. So again, free land, uh, no uh, natural predators, human or otherwise. And Eric returned uh, to Greenland, uh, to Iceland, and played up this new discovery and named the area Greenland. Now, I always like to think of Eric the Red as in a very, very good and long tradition that certainly is characterized in American development, and that is luring settlers under false pretenses. Uh, and the name sounded great, I mean Greenland as opposed to Iceland, uh, although when those settlers got to Greenland they were probably quite disappointed in the amount of free land there was for the taking. Even so, in 985 Eric was able to assemble 500 settlers, which is indicative of the fact that Iceland had filled up. Uh, about a generation or so earlier, and there were a number of people willing to take a risk to go out and get that free land, just as their ancestors had done uh, back in the late 9th century when Iceland was first settled. They take off in 25 ships, and only 18 of them make it. It's a long journey. It's over a thousand statute miles. It's difficult uh, to navigate. And from the start, the Greenland settlement was really at the edge of uh, the technology and the assailing abilities of, of the Norse. It didn't mean that it was doomed to failure, but it was going, if, if Iceland was tough, Greenland was daunting as a settlement. And uh, these, these settlers must have known that they were uh, short on timber and iron, uh, that they had a far more restricted area to raise their animals, uh, they really couldn't grow any kind of grains, and it was essential that they develop trade goods to ensure the contact with Iceland and Norway. And what they found in Greenland were the types of Arctic animals uh, that their ancestors in Norway could get, usually by trade with the Laps, and this would be the, the uh, walrus ivory, the, uh, the skins, the seal skins, uh, the furs, uh, the types of um, animals that would, uh, would produce uh, products in high demand in the luxury markets in Europe. And so long as Norwegian kings essentially ruled the North Atlantic, that is before the unification of Norway under Denmark in 1397 and before the Germans took over the shipping trade in the North Atlantic, uh, there was trade to Greenland and European products and wood and supplies could be imported. Once those conditions changed and once climactic ch conditions changed in Greenland, that is they deteriorated, uh, the colonies were very quickly doomed in the 14th century. But at the start, it, it didn't look like a bleak prospect. Uh, Eric was able to set himself up uh, in Eric's Fjord in the Eastern Settlement as, a, uh, as essentially a Gothi, uh, as the leader of the settlement, and that, um, that Eastern Settlement where he was uh, uh, essentially grew to about 4,000 residents by 1300. 
the uh, more northern western settlement was about half that size. There was a smaller uh, collection of farms known as the Middle Settlement. And we think these Greenlanders went pretty far north uh, along the island uh, to various hunting grounds well over a thousand miles north of, of that northern settlement, the so-called Western Settlement. Now, uh, the success of this uh, settlement in Greenland depended on maintaining that long-distance trade with Iceland and Norway. It could have also been assured if the Norse had been able to uh, capitalize and, and settle uh, North America to their west, which they happened to stumble upon shortly after Eric the Red set up his settlement in Greenland. Because in North America, you had the kind of timber and resources that could have easily fed these settlements and actually could have led to a transfer of the population from Greenland to more hospitable shores, which could lead to a more successful settlement. And that gets us to the second great Western voyage, the one that has captured popular imagination, and that is the Norse discovery and colonization, or failed colonization, of North America. Well, once again, North America was sighted uh, by accident. Uh, a fellow named Bjarni um, Herlofsson, who was the um, son of one of the, um, no, his, name is, his father's name is Herjolf, Her who's who's one of the reg uh, original settlers in Greenland and is a pal of Eric the Red, uh, uh, Bjarni was sailing back from Norway uh, hoping to meet up with his dad in the, um, the eastern settlement, and he was a skipper involved in long-distance trade. He's just the sort of guy you want in order to develop that trade in Greenland. And somehow he overshot his voyage and ended up landing uh, on a coast which he was astonished by the amount of trees, and he knew enough that Greenland didn't have trees. Uh, and named this area Markland, meaning woodland. Uh, he sailed north to a, um, a large island described as uh, collect, uh, with large numbers of round stones and only uh, minor uh, 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 trees or woods around, uh, and he called it Stoneland, Halua Land in, in Norse, uh, probably Baffin Island, and eventually made his way back to Greenland, essentially uh, sailing uh, clockwise back to that uh, eastern settlement, and reported his findings. Well, no one really wanted to act upon this. Uh, it was just one of a number of findings that you get. But in 1000 or 1001, and the date is disputed based on what we're told in the two different sagas, Eric the Red's son, Leif Erikson, often known as Leif the Lucky in popular literature, who had returned from Norway, bringing Christianity, much to the distress of his father, who remained devoted to the old gods, Leif Erikson bought the same ship that Bjarni had used and enrolled part of the same crew and decided to set off and find out what this place was like. And what Leif essentially did was um, uh, uh, sail in reverse uh, in the direction that Bjarni went, that is, he landed first in Baffin Island and then came along the Labrador coast, which we think is Markland, and made a landfall in um, Newfoundland, uh, which was then dubbed Vinland, because once Leaf's people um, set up a booth there, it's called Leaf's Booth or Leaf's Boudere, which is a, a minor camp. It's a building a hall and setting up uh, uh, some shops in order to repair ships. Uh, and this becomes the basis where uh, the Norse later try to set up settlements. Um, by landing in Newfoundland there, um, uh, Leif and his followers uh, discovered that there was uh, lots of game, particularly salmon, which uh, was a favorite dish for the Norse, plenty of timber, 
And above all, uh, uh, Thierker, who was the foster father of, of Leif, wandered off into the forest one day and came back deliriously happy that he had found uh, vinbeer, that is berries or, or, or vines or often translated grapes. It probably weren't grapes. They're probably some sort of cranberry or gooseberry or something, uh, which uh, Leif's guys uh, immediately brewed uh, into a pretty heady uh, brew uh, 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 wine there and got very, very happy in toasting each other that they had made it. Uh, to this new land. Uh, so it had game, it had lots of timber, it certainly looked like a much better prospect than Greenland, and furthermore, it also looked empty. Well, Leif uh, returned uh, to uh, Greenland, uh, and on the way back, he actually rescued some uh, uh, shipwrecked uh, companions and, 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 uh, and, and merchants who had, had um, run across, uh, run aground on the shores and rescued all the passengers. That's how he got the term Leaf the Lucky. That's how he got his, his uh, little extra name there. And he reported the uh, discoveries to his father and was going to act on it, but that winter, Eric the Red died. And Leaf essentially took over the running of the colony uh, in Greenland and was not in a position to mount a new expedition. Instead, it fell to one of his younger brothers, a fellow named Thorvald. Uh, Thorvald um, recruited a crew. He had very good information now where this Leif's um, uh, booths or Leif's Budar is located, which we believe is in Newfoundland at uh, Lonzo Modo, uh, a site that has been excavated which shows a Norse settlement of the 11th century with two major halls, with smith shops, all sorts of uh, soapstones, other, uh, other archaeological information consistent with Norse material life of the 11th century, which verifies what the sagas tell us, that there was some kind of landfall in Newfoundland and a base was set up there. It could only accommodate 75 to 100 people. It's a rather small settlement, but nonetheless, it is a vital base for any of the Norse who wish to explore and colonize in these areas. So uh, Brother Thorvald set off. He too sailed along the shores. He used the same base as his brother did. And, um, and taking note of where possible settlement could, could, could take place. And then all of a sudden they ran into local people that weren't supposed to be there in their mind. Uh, they called them the Skrelinger, which is a, a Norse way of calling the locals something like screechers or screamers. That is, they don't, they don't speak Norse. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, they, they're probably Algonquins. And they uh, apparently ran into a group of nine of them and killed most of them. And um, two of them escaped. And they reappeared in their canoes and started shooting arrows. And, and Thorvald got wounded uh, and died of his mortal wound. And his crew uh, uh, buried him and then set sail to Greenland and reported to Leif, yeah, there's lots of land there, but there are these people, which we didn't quite count on, who are living in the area. Well, the need for timber, the need for land, the need to get better resources to support the colony of Greenland uh, is what prompted a second effort at settlement. Leif is essentially a voyage of discovery. Um, Brother Thorvald was an attempt at settlement, apparently. They were going to try to stay there. And the first really big colonial expedition sets out in the summer of 1009. It is headed up by a fellow named Thorfinn, Thorfinn Karlsefni, uh, uh, who is um, married uh, to the wife of Thorvald, who just got killed a couple of years earlier. He also took along a half-sister of, of Leif Erikson. She was actually an illegitimate 
uh, daughter of Eric the Red, uh, Freitas, and her rather colorless husband, also named Thorvald. Uh, and uh, they were um, uh, in on the expedition. It's obviously a family affair. And they were able to assemble several hundred settlers. There's two different accounts on how many were there. May have been as many as 250 people. Uh, they had several ships. They set sail, made landfall at the same place in Newfoundland, and set up a, set, uh, a, uh, a settlement there. They moved into Leaf's Booths and proceeded to exploit the surrounding area, the, the fish, uh, the various uh, fowl, the hunting and trapping. Uh, they had wood. The first winter was difficult. Uh, even so, Thorfinn and his wife, um, and that would be um, uh, Gudrid, uh, had the first European child in North America. They gave birth to a daughter there that winter. The next spring, uh, the settlement was in danger of breaking up. Some of them left. Uh, that group tried to sail back to Greenland. They actually missed Greenland and ended up in Ireland, and the Irish found these guys really, where, where are you coming from? Uh, the, the rest of the settlement, um, the settlers relocated to a new site. Uh, it's still a debate where that might be located. And they built a stockade, and sure enough, uh, the locals showed up, the Skrælinger that had been reported a couple of years earlier. Now, Thorfinn was a clever, clever guy, and he immediately told the, told the colonists, uh, look, you can, you can trade cheese and dairy products and all the cloth you want, but no weapons. And so they carry out a trade. It's very, very amicable, and who knows exactly what the locals made of these strange people, but it, it went off fine. Three weeks later, the Skrælinger appear en masse and attack the settlement shooting arrows. And you, you, you wonder what poor Thorfinn is thinking at this point, like, what did we do wrong? Well, I have no proof for this, but my suspicion is that these poor Native American Indians were lactose intolerant, went back with all this milk and cheese and consumed it and nearly died. And some of them may have died. And the immediate reaction was, oh, these strange people are trying to poison us and came back really mad, armed to the teeth and attacked the settlement. Uh, Thorfinn, of course, is, is completely bewildered. I mean, what's wrong? We did everything right. We didn't give any weapons. We were nice to him. We didn't kill anyone. Uh, and the size of the attack was really pretty daunting, daunting to the, to the Norse. They, they, uh, the Skrillinger actually break into the settlement at one point, and it really takes uh, Fridus, the, uh, uh, that illegitimate daughter of Eric the Red, to go out there bellowing uh, like a Valkyrie right out of Valhalla uh, to rally the men and get them back into the battle. And also, uh, uh, the Skrillinger are really kind of afraid of these cattle. They're not sure what they are, and some of the cattle get loose and make noises. And, you know, they eventually, they, they pull off, they back off, they withdraw. Well, this is alarming to have locals around, you know, they expected to have an empty land. Uh, the settlement relocates yet again. Uh, they endure never, another very, very difficult winter in the year 1011-1012, and then decide to call it quits, and they sail back uh, to Greenland, where Leif Erikson is waiting for them. And the reports are this, this, this is not what, what anyone expected. It certainly didn't dissuade Fridus uh, to attempt another settlement. And she hooked up with two Norwegian brothers and put together another team of settlers in the next year, in 1013. And uh, these were the brothers Helgi and, uh, and Finbogi, uh, fresh from Norway. And she and uh, this, uh, these Norwegian brothers and her colorless husband, Thorvald, uh, sailed off again to Leif's booth and attempted a, a resettlement. 
In this case, it wasn't the Skrelinger that did in the Settlers. It was a classic Icelandic blood feud over who should get the bigger haul uh, that immediately got involved in all sorts of insults, which comes right out of a family saga. And Frida's egged on her colorless husband to kill the other settlers. Uh, she actually took charge of killing the women in the other party. Uh, and she, she really is something right out of Valhalla, whatever her Christianity may or may not have been. And, uh, and at this point, uh, there were just too few settlers to make it go. The conditions were too difficult. And she and her husband returned to Greenland and the apparent the efforts at any kind of settlement in North America were ended. That doesn't mean that uh, Greenlanders and even Icelanders didn't show up at Vinland and harvest uh, timber. And there are reports as late as 1347 that some of them did that, that there was just too much timber over there, so they'd sail over and cut down timber. There has also been found on an Indian site in Maine a Norwegian coin of... of um, of uh, the 11th century, I believe it's of Harold the the um, the Quiet, and uh, that uh, that's the son of Harold Hoddery, uh, who ruled from 1067 to um, 1093. And if that coin is in a legitimate site and is not a plant, it may have been obtained in either trade or it might have been a salvage from some ship that had been wrecked. So there were probably efforts to to get the timber, but the failure of the settlements in Greenland uh, in Vinland essentially condemn Greenland to extinction once the climactic changes in political, uh, climactic conditions and political conditions change in the 14th century. And you have to remember that these Viking settlements were small. Jamestown, founded in 1607, which was the second English colony, the first one had failed, uh, Jamestown, by 1610, out of the original 900 settlers, only 150 were left. They died from malnutrition, the harsh winter, disease. And there was just not the type of population or organized government to sustain the type of settlement that would be necessary to make a go of these Norse settlements in North America, especially against a native population in which the Norse did have a superiority in iron weapons, but they were too few uh, to make any real difference. And so from the start, this Vinland settlement was, was, was pretty much doomed to failure. That meant that the Greenlanders left in uh, the eastern and western settlements very, very quickly became isolated. There were deteriorating conditions in the 14th century, plus the Black Death brought in by the merchants, and the colony is really greatly reduced in its numbers in the 14th century. Uh, perhaps the western colony is abandoned, that is the more northern one, sometime in the 1340s or 1360s. Uh, the archaeological evidence shows that the last Greenlanders probably died off somewhere around 1500. There are reports of very few ships going there after 1400. A couple of instances of bishops being commissioned to Greenland, but uh, no one could find a ship to take them there, so they were usually hanging out in Bergen looking for some German ship, and it just wasn't worth it. Uh, the Greenlanders never could develop the kind of market uh, that uh, developed in Norway for Arctic goods, and starting in the 14th and 15th century, Novgorod, that is the Russians, essentially provided all the furs that the European market demanded. So there's just really no reason to go there. Uh, and somewhere between 1500 and 1540, the population essentially died out. The Eskimos moved in. They were much better adapted to these uh, harsher conditions. In fact, for them, the minor ice age, as it's usually called, uh, was a windfall because that brought in all sorts of Arctic animals into Greenland, which they could hunt and live off. And essentially, they were just better adapted to the conditions. To give you a, give you a sense how everyone forgot this, 
1712, the Danish crown decided to send a Protestant missionary off to Greenland to convert these Norse settlers that they're vaguely aware of. They're people out there. They're Christians. And by the way, I guess they never had the Reformation. And this fellow by the name of, of Hank, Hans Egede shows up uh, expecting to convert Norse, and what he finds is just Eskimos. And that goes to show you how little that even the Scandinavians themselves remembered of this remote colony. Well, overall, the, um, the whole venture, both in North America and Greenland, proved ephemeral, and really without any major historical significance other than a testimony to Viking skill in shipbuilding and shipbuilding and determination to colonize these extremely uh, difficult landscapes. On the other hand, the interest in this is what it has uh, spawned in the way of frauds and hoaxes attesting to the Viking presence in the New World. Uh, there is a whole literature, especially from the early 20th century, somehow trying to connect the Vikings with any number of civilizations attested in North America uh, or in Mexico. Uh, for instance, um, uh, there's a whole literature claiming that the legend of Quetzalcoatl, the white god, which really was created in the 16th century, uh, that this white god is really a Viking who came in a ship and they established Maya or Aztec civilization. And yeah, I guess there's a chance that a Viking ship could be blown off course and end up in the Caribbean. I don't know how it would get to Mexico, uh, and, uh, but I don't even, also don't know how it would even get back to, to, um, uh, to Europe. It was just a goner. Uh, so there's always that danger. Uh, what I'd like to do is close with two of the most uh, outrageous and entertaining frauds that have been created, and they really are very, very telling of popular notions about the Vikings. The first one was, was quote-unquote, discovered in 1898. Uh, it's known as the Kensington Stone. It was uncovered in Minnesota, in Douglas County, Kensington, uh, by a Swedish immigrant named Ulf Omen, who had a reputation in the Swedish community of being a great jokester. A joker. He always was playing tricks and practical jokes. He claimed that he dug up this 200-pound stone underneath a huge tree. Uh, he cleaned it off, and, and lo and behold, there was a runic inscription, which was uh, transcribed and translated as follows. Eight Goths and 22 Norwegians exploring west of Vinland. One day's journey north of this stone, we made our camp near two skerries. Uh, one day we went out fishing and found on our return the dead bodies of ten of our men, red with blood. Ave Maria, preserve us from evil. Fourteen days journey from this island, ten men are looking after our ships. Year 1362. Now, considering the fact that the whole thing is chronologically preposterous and no one ever used a runestone to record anything like this. Uh, the runes were also silly. It's, it's really modern Swedish written in a very bad rendition of uh, the short Futhark. Uh, nonetheless, this thing was accepted, uh, and it was picked up by a cherry farmer by the name of uh, Yalmar Holon, who took it as his, he's kind of a crackpot, uh, as his mission to prove Scandinavian settlement in North America. Uh, and he actually took this 200-pound stone to Rouen in 1911, where everyone was celebrating the 1,000th anniversary of the Duchy of Normandy, and the German and Scandinavian philologists looked at the stone and just laughed their heads off. Charles Homer Haskins, probably the greatest scholar of the Middle Ages in the 19, uh, or first half of the 20th century, thought it was a, you know, this is a great joke, it's not real. Nonetheless, uh, uh, this, um, this cherry picker uh, uh, magnate managed to push this stone, and in 1948, it was actually on display in the Smithsonian rather briefly as a national monument of the United States, and eventually they realized this is pretty tacky, even, you know, they removed it very quietly. Um, the other, uh, and even more remarkable fraud that's been perpetuated is the so-called Vinland map. 
uh, which is supposed to date before 1440, and it shows Greenland and Vinland as islands in the Western Ocean with a Latin caption identifying them. The map was purchased by, of all places, Yale University, for well over $250,000 by an unknown, anonymous donor, uh, and it had been obtained from a legitimate book dealer in New Haven who had purchased it from a fellow in Barcelona around 1957, he claims. Uh, the map um, uh, was uh, studied. It was matched up uh, by the wormholes with the Codex, that is an early book, uh, which preserves a Latin account of the mission of Giovanni Caprini, uh, envoy of the papacy uh, to the Mongol court, uh, which is actually a legitimate document and is more important uh, than this, this map. And from the start, there were a number of scholars who wondered, you know, this thing doesn't look right. For one, Greenland is shown as an island in all maps up until 1650. They thought Greenland was a peninsula. Uh, nonetheless, Yale went ahead and purchased the, uh, the map and then had the uh, misfortune of announcing this purchase just days before uh, Columbus Day was due. It got out into the New York Times. Uh, there was an enormous furor uh, between Italian-American clubs and Norwegian-American clubs in Brooklyn. They almost came to blows with each other. Uh, I, uh, having descent on both sides, it doesn't really matter to me, and my mother once suggested at that very time, why don't they have a Columbus Day parade with Eric the Red walking and then the three ships of Columbus following? Perfectly, perfectly logical solution. No one paid attention. Uh, people got very, very heated over this. And then in 1974, there was a symposium held, and it turned out to be a fraud. Uh, the ink was modern. There were all sorts of problems with it. Yale had to announce that the purchase that was done nine years later, or earlier, uh, was a complete fraud. Um, withdraw the map, and uh, and the issue has been quietly pushed aside. Well, these types of hoaxes and frauds, and they're not as they're not as common now as they used to be. And I think we can uh, we can thank um, uh, the fascination in UFOs as taking that sort of fringe group off to worrying about that rather than Vikings in North America. Uh, nonetheless, what do these actually prove? I think, in a way, Icelanders of the settlement period would actually appreciate this North American desire to have some sort of link with this Viking age. It's very very typical of a relatively new society, a frontier society, as we still like to think of ourselves, to hope that we have some sort of tie to a past, any past, a remote past, that antiquity somehow gives us legitimacy. So all of these frauds and hoaxes and the like are not too different in a way, in the way the Icelanders wanted to attain that sense of, um, of continuity with their Norwegian homeland. It's just in North America, it's turned out into some rather silly frauds and hoaxes, uh, uh, speculations on, on fraudulent objects, whereas in Iceland it produced uh, the great literature of the sagas and the skaldic poetry. Lecture 23, Swedes in the Baltic Sea and Russia. In this lecture, I plan to start a series of three lectures that deal with the uh, Vikings in Eastern Europe, and these would be primarily Swedes. Uh, there are some Finns and Danes that are recorded in the sources as well, uh, and they're often known by one of two terms. One is the Rus, a term of experience obscure origin. There's several uh, uh, explanations for the origin of that term. And later, a term known as Varingian, meaning men of the pledge or pledge men. And that term 
often is reserved for Scandinavians of the uh, later 10th century, 11th century, who end up in the city of Constantinople and serve uh, the Byzantine emperor. But very often, Rus and Varingian are used as synonyms describing Scandinavians and the descendants of Scandinavians operating in what eventually comes to be Russia, or today, uh, or a good deal of that is actually the Republic of Ukraine centered on Kiev. Well, the, um, the Swedes, uh, for uh, centuries, had had ties with the eastern shores of the Baltic. Uh, particularly uh, the southern shores of Finland. The Swedes had settled the islands quite early. Uh, there has been a succession of settlements, we suspect, along the southwestern and southern shores of Finland where Swedish immigrants intermixed with the local populations there. And uh, they were then to be drawn into the river systems of Russia starting from about 750 AD. And I think what we need to do in this lecture is to explain what were the areas in which these Swedes would operate. Uh, the geography, which is really quite daunting in some ways, as the uh, Western geography we just finished lecturing about, that is the great voyages of discovery uh, to Greenland and to Iceland and Vinland. Then the second point is to deal with the types of people that the Swedes encountered. And here the Swedes differ from their kinsmen in Western Europe, uh, that is the Danes and Norwegians, because the Swedish Vikings came into, a, a, came into contact with a, a great variety of different people on different levels of civilization. And the relationships are quite different in some ways from those in Western Europe. And then we can get some appreciation and understand how these trade routes were exploited by the Swedes in the 8th and 9th centuries and why the axis of Swedish trade would change in the mid-9th century with major consequences coming up in future lectures. So we essentially have three issues to deal with here. As I mentioned, uh, starting around 750, we believe that there is contact already in the Russian forest zones, as we like to call them. And this is in part based on archaeological excavation from Berka, that is the great port on Lake Malloran. And you'll note in this lecture that a good deal of our evidence is coming from archaeology and that our sources are almost exclusively sources written by non-Scandinavians. These are Arab geographers. There are at least four major such uh, uh, accounts. Uh, the most important is by um, Ibn Fadlan, who was an envoy of the Abbasid Caliphate on the Volga River uh, in the year 921-922. Uh, there's a lot of reports from Byzantine accounts. These are written in Greek by um, uh, historians and other authors in the city of Constantinople. And then we will encounter uh, a, a document known as the Russian Primary Chronicle that's put together somewhere around 1115. It's in Slavic. It's written in the Great Cave Monastery near Kiev and records various legends and traditions about the original settlement of Russia by these Scandinavian Rus or Swedish Rus. So that the Scandinavians themselves do not provide the sort of documentation that we have in Western Europe and, and especially in Iceland and, and in the great uh, voyages in the Western Seas. So sometime in the mid-8th century, based on coin finds and other products arriving in Burka, it's clear that the Swedes have established uh, trade connections along the Volga. There have been excavations of several market towns in Russia. Uh, one of the most important is the future city of Novgorod, Holmgard, as it's known in, in Norse, which means hill city. Uh, there was apparently an earlier establishment near Lake uh, Lado uh, Ladoga, and it's um, Aldiegsjuborg, which is uh, ideally stationed 
for trade coming out of the Gulf of Finland and for those Vikings who want to take their ships by portage to the upper Volga and sail down the Volga ultimately to the Caspian Sea. Whereas Novgorod is positioned on a different set of systems that's on the um, Volkov uh, River and the Ilmen Lake uh, axis and from Novgorod you actually go south, directly south and eventually pick up the Dnieper by a series of portages and you go into the Black Sea. It is this Volga route that will be developed first. Um, that is the earlier route, all the archaeology points that way, and the minimal literary sources we have also seem to confirm this. So from the start, uh, the Swedes were attracted out to these areas as a combination of merchant princes and slavers. Uh, the biggest commodity, as I noted, was going to be the slave trade, and the Swedes will be obtaining slaves largely by raiding the peoples of Eastern Europe, notably Slavs. They're also engaged in the export of uh, products of the, of the forest and the Arctic products, the furs. Uh, these are obtained from Laps and Finns and other people through trade connections. And all of this material will be traded along the Volga, and in return, silver and the commodities of the Islamic world will be then uh, brought back uh, to the Baltic and end up at the Swedish market towns. Well, what were the types of peoples? that the uh, Swedes were going to encounter on these two river systems, that is the great system of the Dnieper and the Volga river system, both the western and the eastern trade routes. They could be classified in one of several ways. One is to just deal with them linguistically, and maybe that is the best and easiest way to classify them. Uh, the Swedes came into contact with people who, who spoke a variety of different uh, uh, mutually unintelligible languages, and they fall into different language groups. Uh, none of these languages would be understood by the Swedes. There could be a lot of misunderstanding that would take time before you'd have uh, bilinguals. And undoubtedly in that slave trade, what was important uh, were especially women who could act as translators. Um, that's one of the reasons why these Swedish roots always have local women around with them. They generally, uh, from my experience, uh, many of your best translators, simultaneous translators are women, and they're able to pick up on the language and act as translators between their Swedish masters and, uh, and their uh, native populations. Uh, first and foremost, there were people of different, uh, speaking different Finno-Ugurian languages. This is an agglutin of language structure. It's uh, related to the Italic Turkish languages uh, rather remotely. Uh, these would include Finns, Laps, uh, other people living in the northern zones. In the case of the Finns and the Laps, uh, Scandinavians had long contact with them. Finns, uh, especially along the southern shore, were agriculturalists. They'd been, contact, uh, been in contact with Swedes. Some of them actually teamed up uh, with the Swedish Vikings to go east. Uh, the Laps and their kin were uh, settled across the Arctic zones and in the forest. Uh, the Karelians are another group. All of these people would provide the furs necessary in the great fur trade. And it seems that the, this, this was not the source of your slaves. These people were too valuable as Arctic nomads, uh, people who had domesticated the reindeer, knew how to travel these great distances, and could get the, the high-grade pelts that would bring in the great prices, the seal skins, the walrus ivy, ivory, which was in high demand. There are also other members of this Finno-Ugurian language, and these are people known as the Magyars, or Hungarians, the ancestors of the modern Hungarians. Uh, they spoke a related language, but they lived a very different lifestyle, and they were uh, nomads of the steppes, that is, they had acquired very much uh, the ability to move across the South Russian steppes, exploiting the landscape, uh, steppe nomads, handling their herds of uh, sheep um, and uh, horses, 
and absolutely similar in their customs to the Turkmen. Uh, the Magyars were encountered very early by the Swedes and probably posed something of a problem. They were potential competitors for the slave trade. But fortunately, from the Swedish viewpoint, these guys eventually moved west. Uh, there was actually a Byzantine miscalculation in diplomacy. The Byzantines are always moving tribes around to attack each other. And somehow the Magyars got relocated by a Byzantine diplomatic mistake uh, for war in Bulgaria from southern Russia to where they are now, where they plagued Western Europe for the next 60 years. Um, and so that group of related languages uh, that I've just mentioned, these different people, show the, that the language was not so important very often than the type of life they, they pursued. That is, were they Arctic nomads, were they steppe nomads, or were they people of the forest? And the Finno-Ugurian peoples have essentially both. They have Arctic nomads and steppe nomads. Uh, that gets us to the second big language group of people encountered, and these would be people uh, speaking Turkic languages. And there are three extremely important people that figure in the Viking experience in Eastern Europe. Two of them are settled communities of sorts. They're on the Volga, on the middle and lower Volga. One group are known as the Bulgars. Uh, these were Turkmen, that is uh, nomadic steppe people. Turkmen refers to Turkish speakers of the steppe as opposed to Turk, which means anyone who's speaking a Turkish dialect or language. Uh, these people had established tent cities and eventually they grew into fortified settlements, including the town of Bulgar, named after the ethnic tribe. They were re remotely related to the kinsmen who migrated into the Balkans and gave their name to the modern area of Bulgaria, which is uh, a whole different outfit. Uh, these Bulgars were uh, in close association with the Islamic world, and over the course of the 9th and 10th century, many of them converted to Islam, uh, almost to a folk Islam. And just south of them, on the lower Volga, were a related uh, Turkmen people known as the Khazars. Their great uh, market town city was at Atil, at the mouth of the Volga River, just as it entered the Caspian Sea. Well, the Bulgars and the Khazars who essentially controlled the river route of the Volga, were the first serious trading partners that the Swedes came into contact with. Starting in the early 8th century, Swedes brought their ships, their canar and warships, uh, across to the Volga and ended up in these market towns swapping various goods. And the Bulgars and the Khazars both were bringing in goods from the Islamic world, which were shipped over the Caspian Sea and goods that originated in Iran or in Baghdad. But excavations and study of these products have shown that the scale of this trade, as it mounted, starting uh, from about 800 on, that many of these so-called Islamic products were actually being manufactured in the Volga Valley among these, these khanates or khaganates, the, the head of a Turkmen tribe is usually known as a khan or a khagan, uh, that the, um, the goods were being created for the export trade to Scandinavia. That is, the success in the early 8th century and 9th century was so great and the Scandinavians became accustomed to demanding Arabic silver coins, uh, different types of furniture, um, aromatics, um, uh, ceramics, textiles, especially silks and tapestries, that it was now worth it for the Turkmen tribes to produce their own version of Islamic goods, cut out the expense of, of importing them directly from Baghdad, and then selling them to the Swedes on the Volga which is a significant indication of the scale and importance of this trade. And then these products went uh, to Berka, to Hedeby, and out to places in Western Europe. They end up in places like York and Dublin. So that trade connection uh, proved extremely powerful down to about 975. 
and it is the primary trade access connecting Scandinavia, particularly Sweden, the cities, the market towns around Lake Maloran and the island of Gotland uh, with the eastern markets. There were other uh, Turkmen tribes who uh, roamed the uh, southeastern steppes of um, Russia today. That is the Great Steppe system that runs from the lower Danube all the way to the lower Volga, just north of the Black Sea and just west of the Caspian Sea. These are the traditional zones of the Great Steppe empires going back into uh, antiquity. And starting sometime in the um, uh, late ninth uh, century, a new people emerged known as the Pechenegs. The Pechenegs actually pushed the Magyars out in part. Uh, they were allied to the Byzantine emperors. Uh, they were known by their eight hordes of the Pechenegs. They were reputed to be the most deadly horsemen on the Russian steppes of the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries. They um, had uh, perfected the composite bow. Uh, they are your classic uh, warrior horse archer. And these are some of the most difficult opponents you will ever encounter. Furthermore, uh, especially for the western routes going down the Dnieper, at any point where the Norse would have to take a ship to get around a set of rapids or falls, uh, there's a famous set of them on the lower Dnieper, or if they're trying to make a portage, if they're doing this on the step zone, they very much run the risk of being attacked by Pechenegs, who could wipe out the group very quickly. The final uh, group of people were Indo-European speakers, and these were peoples of the forests. And they spoke languages that belonged to the great Indo-European language family, but again, these languages had evolved into quite independent dialects uh, by the time the Rus appeared in the 8th century. Along the eastern and southern shores of the Baltic, there were different people who spoke what are today known as Baltic languages. Um, highly inflected, very, very uh, archaic languages in some of their structure. Uh, these are today the languages of Lithuanian and Latvian, but there were other such peoples. Uh, the people uh, uh, known as the Prussians, who gave their name to Prussia, which was later Germanized. These people get essentially exterminated in the 13th century. Uh, there were Letts, uh, there were Livonians, there were um, Curlanders, uh, but all of these people occupying now what would be the shores of, of uh, Poland and those Baltic republics that just broke away from the Soviet Union in recent years, um, these people dwelled uh, along those river systems at the mouths of the, uh, the Vistula and the Davina and the Niemen and in the forest and bog zones. Uh, they had trade connections with uh, Berka uh, going back very early. Some of them uh, actually had communities in uh, linked uh, to the Swedes uh, on the shores. Uh, the other uh, group were the people of Slavic languages, of the great Slavic language families. Now the Slavs, uh, their history and origins are really quite obscure. They are too uh, speaking a variety of Indo-European languages. In the year around 600, in the 7th century, the Slavic populations located in Central Europe had expanded considerably. Many of them have moved west as far as the Elba River. Others had pushed into the Balkans where they ran into the Byzantines. They also spread across Eastern Europe. And at the time that the Swedish Rus appear in Eastern Europe, you have to think of uh, different linguistic and cultural groups more or less conforming with their patterns of life and the, uh, the geographic landscape there. In the forest zones, which will become the classic heartland of Russia, were largely Slavic-speaking peoples. There were some Finns and related people, but that's where the Slavs lived. They lived in the forest zones. 
and they were in scattered tribal societies. Their, um, their mastery of, of iron technology was on a lower level. It's in these areas that the Scandinavians raided in great numbers and carried off large numbers of Slavs destined for the slave markets of the Islamic world. And it's in these zones that the Scandinavians moved in and built fortified towns, a, a guard, on the river system and developed the kind of market town that I mentioned in Ireland in a way. That is, the Scandinavian uh, merchant princes moved in, set up uh, these fortified settlements, got in touch with the local Slavic tribes, convinced them to raid against their neighbors, to pay tribute. There would be exchange. They'd bring in um, some of the products gained in the eastern trade or products coming in from Scandinavia to buy the timber and the slaves, which then would be brought across to the Volga and sold in those Turkish markets. So the forest zones were very much the preserve of the Slavic peoples, and that's where the Swedes moved in to settle and establish their market towns and bases. Then along the Volga River system, you have these quite impressively organized cognates or khanates ruled by Turkish um, warlords or khans who had a mixed population um, under their control, including many settled people and agriculturalists. And in the towns and the, and the tent cities, the market towns of the Volga, were numerous Muslims. Uh, these were people from um, Iran very often. They were Persians who knew Arabic as their literary language. There were a number of Arabs, um, both uh, among the Bulgars and the Khazars. These ties to the Islamic world were very strong. And so in these areas uh, along the Volga, the Norse moved into a region where there was some kind of organized political structure. And on the Volga, throughout the entire Viking experience, from they, when they first show up in the 750s and down to the late 10th century where this trade route flourishes, you have to think of the Rus largely being there by permission. They came as merchants, allies, mercenaries, uh, friends. And the uh, Arab geographers really capture the relationship very well. Um, Ibn Fadlan, who had an opportunity to observe these Rus on the lower Volga uh, for some time and wrote a number of descriptions, explains how this worked. For instance, he at one time apparently attended the ceremony presided over by a Rus merchant prince. And this merchant prince is on a great platform. He's attended with uh, various warriors. He has a number of concubines. These are apparently Slavic girls who have been picked up in the forest zone and they're not the ones that have been sold off yet. And the whole ceremony and the arrangement is very, very similar to the ceremony that we know from Arabic and Byzantine sources uh, practiced by the Khans of the, uh, the Turkmen tribes and later by the Mongols. And so what happens is the Rus move into an area where they're encountering a more organized political structure and they're adapting it. They're, they're taking over some of the ritual and forms uh, in their essentially market settlement. Uh, next to Atil, the great capital of the, the Khazar Khagan, and are therefore basing their political structure on what they find around them. And what they find around them, the most successful organization, are these Turkmen Khans and Khaganates. Uh, and that's a, uh, an, a very significant point. He also tells us, uh, Ibn Fadlan, of the way trade is carried out and how the Rus uh, invoke their various um, divinities. They set up these posts, these totems to ancestors and gods to invoke good market. And they are extremely eager in acquiring silks and especially silver. 
in either in the form of jewelry or in Muslim coins. Uh, the wives or concubines of the primary wife of a Rus merchant, uh, her aim was to get 10,000 uh, Muslim silver, silver coins, which she would string together as a sign of wealth, and then push her husband out there to get another 10,000. And he's very, very um, good on telling us something that we, we surmised just from the uh, visual arts I discussed earlier in this course, uh, that these Rus are very, very conscious about personal ornamentation, about uh, objects and textiles that denote rank. They are eager to get a hold of silks. They are eager to get a hold of silver. All of this, not only for themselves, but for that market in Scandinavia. And finally, all four of the geographic writers, uh, Muslim geographic writers, constantly stress uh, that the biggest commodity is slaves, and these are Slavs. Um, being purchased, being uh, acquired by raid, by exchange as tribute, uh, coming from the forest zones, moved along the Volga, and sold off in the Cognates. So that whole river structure, uh, river system of the middle and lower Volga, are these organized Turkmen states in which the Rus move around very, very much uh, by permission as agents to the Khazar Kagan or to the Khan of the Bulgars. That means we have very, very little in the way of reports of the type of Viking activities we associate in Western Europe. There are reports of some Viking raids on the Caspian Sea, where certain Muslim towns are attacked. Uh, there's a few reported in the 9th century and then a couple in the early 10th century. These raids are being launched from the Khazar capital, uh, Atil, and are being done with the cooperation of the Khazar Khagan. Um, that is the ruler of the Khazars. And in one instance, in the raid in 912-913, uh, the Khazars uh, took the booty and killed their Viking allies. Uh, now that the raid was over, that was convenient. But on the whole, they are not able to operate as the type of independent operators that you would see in Western Europe. They're moving through these very organized structures uh, linked to the Islamic world. Then there are uh, the Turkmen populations dwelling to the west and south of these great uh, Cognates or Khanates on the Volga and immediately south of the Varasone, and these are the Pechenegs, the possible competitors, the foes, uh, the dreaded horse archers who are organized in tribal and clan structures and really owe allegiance to no one but themselves. And any, any, uh, any Viking or Rus ship coming down the Dnieper or uh, its tributaries in this area would have to deal with these peoples. And, um, and, and in this area, is where the uh, Swedish Rus encounter potential problems. They have to fight with these people. And the um, development of that other trade route along the Dnieper is later and requires a whole different set of um, organization in order to exploit that trade route. And that is uh, the point I want to um, uh, develop here. And the final point in this lecture is in the ninth century, there is a distinct shift from that Volga trade route uh, where all the trade is going down to the Caspian Sea, ultimately, in the Islamic world, to a western route based on the Dnieper. Uh, this uh, shift in access has only been really noted in the recent scholarship as a result of excavations, intensive uh, study of uh, settlements in what are now Russia and Ukraine, uh, looking at the trade goods, sifting through the very contradictory reports we have of Arabic and Byzantine sources. And these are extremely frustrating at times because the Arabs and the Byzantines both are very, very unfamiliar with these uh, Norse names and they tend to stylize them. They often use names um, you know, based on earlier uh, barbarians in the area and especially the Greek sources often call them Scythians. Uh, these were the people that appear in Herodotus in the 6th century BC and the Norse are simply being called along these same names.
Well, in any case, that shift can be dated fairly accurately from the literary sources and the archaeological evidence. And there's a debate going on, why did it take place? The Volga was very convenient. Uh, the bases had been set up very early at uh, Lake, uh, around uh, Lake uh, Ladoga. You're able to pick up your furs from the Finns and the Carleans and the Sami, the Laps, move on to the Volga and trade with the Bulgars or with the, um, the Khazars. Bring in all the goodies you want. On the other hand, if you go south, directly south, you follow the, um, uh, Il, uh, the, the Volkov River and the Ilmen Lake, you set up a base at Novgorod, home guard in Scandinavian, that requires you then to pick up the um, headwaters of the Dnieper and follow the Dnieper, which is over 500 miles to the Black Sea. And, and until you get to the Black Sea, there isn't any kind of organized state. There are these nasty Pechenegs riding around. And especially on the lower Dnieper, there are a series of 12 very dangerous falls uh, where you have to take your ships out and you're exposed to attack. Um, Prince Svetoslav of Kiev gets wiped out there in 972. When his army's returning, uh, the Pechenegs show up and, and massacre him. Once you get to the mouth of the Dnieper, then you're in the Black Sea, and it's about 350 miles to sail along the shores of the Black Sea to get to Constantinople, the great city, uh, Mikligard, the center of the Byzantine Empire, where you do your trading. Um, this is a much longer route. It requires a great deal more organization. Uh, the dangers are much, much greater, especially negotiating those falls and those points along the Dnieper where you have to make portage. And yet, this becomes the preferred route starting in the mid-9th century. And we get some sense of this uh, from the Byzantine sources in 838, 839. We have our first reference to Rus or Varingians in a Byzantine account. Apparently, a group of envoys had been sent by the Khazar Khagan, who's in close alliance with the Byzantine court. And they remain in close alliance through much of the ninth century until the Khazars convert to Judaism and then the Byzantines aren't so interested in the court anymore. Uh, but a uh, mission comes from the great Khagan and there's been a marriage alliances and connections. And in that troop is a group of Rus who claim they can't get back to their homeland, that they're, they would like to accompany a Byzantine mission that is leaving at this time for Western Europe. Uh, at the time, the Emperor Theophilus is ruling in Constantinople. He's very eager to uh, have an alliance with Louis the Pious in the Frankish Empire. And so these Rus hook up with the Byzantine Empire em, uh, envoys and show up at the court of Ingelheim in the Carolingian Empire. And Louis the Pious is very curious about these guys, and they inquire, who are you? And eventually, it's uh, reported in the Annals Berna, uh, Annales um, uh, Bertiani that these guys are Northmen, Normani. And Lewis gets extremely excited. I mean, the same people who are attacking Frisia and all my, my uh, cities in France. And, you know, this, this, is, this is just, uh, they immediately, you know, put them under house arrest and try to figure out who these guys are. Well, those Swedish Rus who showed up that way, and they eventually are released and get back to their homeland, which is probably Burka, um, are indicative of, of, of several important points. By the early 9th century, some of these Rus are beginning to figure out it's worth the effort to get to Constantinople. You don't have to go through middlemen. You don't have to deal with the Turkmen peoples along the Volga who are marking up all of these products which are coming from a greater distance. You can get to Constantinople and get direct access to the silks, the silver, the goodies you want. 
The second interesting point about this uh, mission is that they describe themselves as representing a Swedish ruler who is known uh, in Latin, it's rendered by the, uh, uh, the Frankish author, as uh, Chan Agus, which is the Latin for Kagan. That is, these Swedes are organized in some way along the Turkmen um, political organization that's described by the geographic um, writers, the Islamic geographic writers. And so that the Swedes are adapting the political institutions they found there in the Volga to set up their own kind of communities. The other advantage by shifting over from the Volga to the Dnieper, to that route into the Black Sea, you're no longer operating as allies, mercenaries. That is, you're not on permission. You have free range to develop that trade route. To be sure, you have to fight Pechenegs. You're going to have to establish fortified bases. You're going to have to come to terms with some of the Slavic tribes in order to acquire the slaves you need. Uh, and that's a whole level of organization. But now you have direct access, when you're done with this, to the greatest city in the world, at least to the Scandinavians, Constantinople, Mikkelgard, the great city. And that shift that occurs somewhere between the 840s and 860s is to have decisive impact on the history of not only the Scandinavians and Russia, but the whole of medieval history. Lecture 24, The Road to Byzantium. In this lecture, I plan to follow up on the um, issue of the creation of a Rus state, uh, which eventually gives rise to Orthodox Russia. And I had discussed the development of trade routes along the Volga and the Dnieper, and the shift of the axis of trade from the Volga to the Dnieper somewhere around the middle of the 9th century, somewhere between the 840s and 860s. Uh, that shift is of major historical consequence because increasingly the Scandinavians in Russia will direct their interest towards Constantinople and away from that Volga route. And that leads to two important consequences. First, these uh, Rus or Varingians, both terms are used for the Scandinavians in the East, uh, had come into contact along the Volga route, uh, particularly in the market towns of the Bulgar Khanate, but also in the Khazar Khaganate, where many of the merchants and subjects of the Khagan were Muslims. And there is some suggestion that the um, Rus were interested in Muslim objects, uh, in jewelry styles and the like. And that could have led the uh, Scandinavian world into closer alignment with the Islamic world uh, and perhaps lead to some kind of conversion to Islam. Uh, many of the Turkmen peoples along the Volga would eventually embrace Islam in the 10th and 11th centuries. Instead, by 975, that Volga route had declined uh, to really secondary importance. And some scholars even argue that it essentially fell off. And there's, there's a number of reasons deduced for this. Part of it is that the market demand was not as great in the Islamic world. Uh, there is what is known as a silver shortage in the Islamic world. That is, there's not sufficient silver specie to maintain coinages in the Abbasid Empire and its associated states. And therefore, there's less hard currency for 
uh, export trade, um, that there's a general decline in Baghdad starting in the 10th century. There's a number of reasons deduced within the Islamic world. But the other important reason is that the Rus themselves had relocated their interests along the Dnieper, and by 975, that is where the action is. Uh, on the Dnieper and in contact with Constantinople. And that leads us to the second significant point, and that is the Varingians or the Rus are not going to come in contact with Islamic civilization in any profound way. It's going to be Orthodox Christianity. Christianity as articulated in the great city of Constantinople. And that will be a decisive factor in the development of Russia and really in the whole course of European history thereafter. Well, how does this happen, and what are the sources on this? And in this lecture, what we wish to trace is that first century or so that led to the contact and the very close contact between Varingians and Rus uh, in Russia with the Byzantine world. And then in the, then in the upcoming lecture, we'll look at the transformation of these Rus or these Varingians into Slavic Orthodox Christians, uh, which is one of the important ethnic and religious changes of the Middle Ages. Well, according to our archaeological evidence and our Byzantine accounts, this shift uh, in trade routes uh, occurred somewhere in the uh, mid-9th century, and this is borne out by this other source I mentioned, which is a very peculiar source and difficult to deal with. This is known as the Russian Primary Chronicle. It survives in different versions. It's a 12th century account written by a monk outside of Kiev who is writing uh, this document in the literary Slavic language. It's usually known as Old Church Slavonic. Uh, this was the language that was created by Cyril and Methodius, the apostles to the Slavs back in the ninth century, when the first efforts were made by the Byzantine imperial government to convert the Slavic peoples to provide them with their own orthodox liturgy and translations of the Bible so they could set up autonomous orthodox churches linked to the Greek church, the Greek-speaking church in Constantinople, uh, by emotional and theological ties, by common liturgy, and by staff or personnel, and the creation of that orthodox uh, Slavic language. And it is a literary language. It's a language that was, uh, in some ways, an artificial creation. Nonetheless, that language made this, um, that uh, grammatical reform, made that language into a language almost on par with Greek and Latin. Slavs to this day, worshipers in the Orthodox Church, consider that old Slavic uh, church language as virtually a sacred language on par with Greek and Latin. And you um, have to attribute this to the success of the Byzantine missionaries in the ninth century. In that Russian primary chronicle survives all sorts of information about these Rus princes from a Slavic viewpoint. We have to turn the names from Slavic into Norse. Uh, there are some strange exaggerations. Uh, but the uh, account also preserves the treaties that were negotiated by the Rus princes uh, with the government of Constantinople. So there's a wealth of information in this chronicle that we don't really have in other uh, accounts about the Vikings overseas. Well, what the Russian primary chronicle tells us is that uh, the Rus had been among the Slavs fairly early on at some date in the ninth century. Uh, there's references to exacting tribute in the form of, of furs and slaves. These uh, Slavs uh, rose up in rebellion. They drove out these interlopers, uh, especially around the region of Novgorod, the uh, north settlement of Holmgard. And then around 860, the Slavic tribes who fell into warring among themselves appealed to a Rus leader. His name is Rurik. 
probably a Slavic rendition of the Norse name Eric, uh, a name that also is rendered as Horik in the Western Chronicles. It's probably a very common Norse name. It's, they try to associate with Vikings in Western Europe, and it's not very successful. But in any event, they appeal to this fellow Rurik uh, and his followers to come in and rule over them, according to customary law. And in the tradition of the um, Russian primary chronicle, the uh, Vikings are in effect invited in as a military warrior caste to rule over the warring Slavic tribes. They establish a site, uh, a capital at Novgorod, Homgard. That is now confirmed by archaeology. That had been a Norse fortified uh, market town. And furthermore, we are told that uh, Rurik sent two of his boyars, is the term in Slavic, by which they mean nobles, probably the equivalent term in Norse would be jarls, um, a man named Deer and Oskold, south to establish a position at Kiev on the Dnieper River system. Uh, these names in the Slavic are easily rendered by the Norse names Hoskold, a very common name in Iceland, and, uh, and Deary. And so the Russian primary chronicle thinks of the arrival of the Norse as merchant princes who've been invited to rule over the Slavic tribes, bring order to confusion. Um, and there's a bit of truth to that. Uh, it's also a way of uh, assuaging later uh, 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 views about this uh, conquest, um, the hard feelings that the Norse came in and actually took slaves and built these, these fortified posts and imposed tribute. And so there's been a fair amount of retelling you know, in this story. Uh, but the uh, account in the Russian primary chronicle is well borne out by um, another set of uh, tr uh, traditions, and that is what Byzantine historians tell us about these Rus or Varingians at the same time. It seems that these two figures who were sent to Kiev as agents of Rurik took it upon themselves not only to build a fortified post at Kiev, um, which um, uh, is about 500 miles north of the Black Sea. They also equipped a fleet of some 200 ships, sailed down the Dnieper uh, along the shores of the Black Sea, and attacked the city of Constantinople. And we know this from Byzantine accounts. We have historical records as well as a sermon written by the then patriarch Photius that on June 18th, 860, a huge Scythian fleet, and this is a old-style term to refer to any northern barbarian, appeared in the Bosporus and that the imperial fleet went out and intercepted him. At the time, it was extremely frightening for the Byzantines. The emperor, uh, his name is Michael III, or more affectionately known as Michael the Drunkard, uh, who was off battling the Arabs somewhere, he had his own problems, uh, was not around to organize the defense. The patriarch took the initiative, uh, gave this stirring ceremony, and the imperial fleet sailed out and encountered uh, these Viking um, ships. They're probably some type of version of the Gokstad ship. And in the ensuing battle, um, the Vikings were driven back in disorder. This is the first time the Scandinavians had run into any kind of power that could launch ships. And actually, what is more uh, impressive to the Scandinavians, uh, they, were, they were forced to retreat. Now, there's reasons for this. The waters of the Bosporus are extremely treacherous, but the Imperial fleet at this point was uh, equipped with a secret weapon, which they shot from siphons, uh, called in Greek, um, fire prepared with thunder and lightning. This is a liquid Greek fire some type of petroleum product which they spray on their opposing ships and ignite and it, since it's petroleum it's lighter than water and it will float on water and you can incinerate uh, the opposing fleet and this is this is this is this is sort of discouraging when the Vikings run into this uh, and a number of Viking ships apparently were, were burnt up this way 
The, um, uh, nonetheless, the attack impressed the imperial government. Uh, this was completely unexpected. It had come from a northern quarter. And Michael III apparently very quickly gets in touch with the Rus at Kiev and arranges some sort of agreement. Uh, there probably was uh, an understanding in trade relations. We do know. Uh, that certainly in the early 10th century, that a number of Rus, and they're usually called Varingians in the Greek sources, uh, pass into imperial service as sailors and marines. They're recruited into the imperial army. We know that they're actually used on three separate imperial expeditions against Crete. The last one in 957, uh, the Arabs controlled Crete for much of the 9th and 10th century. In the 960, um, um, uh, 957 operation when the future emperor Nicephorus Phocas sees opposition on the shores from the Arabs, which you do is you send in the marines, that is you send in the Varingians, they land these guys with their axes and swords and they make mincemeat out of them. Uh, it's essentially using a Scandinavian shield wall against these unsuspecting Muslims. So some type of treaty arrangement had been um, uh, established. We also know that uh, very quickly uh, there's terms for conducting trade in the city of Constantinople. Uh, and uh, there are two treaties uh, uh, recorded in the Russian Primary Chronicle we'll get to, and there's a surprising amount of information about the Rus uh, in an important work uh, written by the Emperor Constantine Porphogenitus, Constantine VII, uh, perhaps the most likable of Byzantine emperors. He's really a, a scholar who was really reluctantly emperor, and he wrote a work called De Administrando Imperio in its Latin terminology on the governing of the empire, and what it is is a handbook to his son, Romanus II, how to deal with barbarian peoples, whether in the west, the north, the east, and he has significant information about the Rus. Uh, one of the points he records is those dangerous rapids on the lower Dnieper are named in Greek by their Norse names, uh, which is an indication that the Norse were really probably the first people to negotiate those rapids. They're not by Slavic names, but by Norse names, and it bears out the fact that it's the Norse who developed the Dnieper trade routes, not the Turkmen or the Slavic peoples. Well, the um, Constantinople um, was impressive, and it is a great walled city. Anyone who travels to Istanbul today can still see the imperial walls, especially the sea walls built by Theophilus. Uh, most, uh, most barbarian peoples found the walls of Constantinople daunting, uh, discouraging. One would argue that the whole 5th century AD is essentially a case of barbarians coming over the Danube, seeing the walls of Constantinople, deciding it's too difficult, and migrating west to attack places like Gaul and Italy. But you're dealing with Vikings, not with other barbarian peoples from the Byzantine viewpoint. The Scandinavians, the Rus, saw Constantinople not as, as a deterrent, but as a challenge. Uh, the new prince who followed uh, Rurik, his name is Oleg in the Slavic account, and most of these uh, princes have both Slavic and um, Scandinavian names. His Scandinavian name is probably Helgi. Uh, he comes to power in Novgorod and decides to relocate his capital down to, capital down to Kiev. And that is a decisive move. Uh, henceforth, the leading prince among the Rus and the forest zones are going to be resident at Kiev, which means they are looking directly at the Black Sea, they're direct, directly looking at Constantinople, and their intentions are to somehow um, exploit the trade routes or gain advantages um, in the Byzantine world. He is reported to have launched his own attack, and this is the first attack launched by a prince himself, um, in 907. Uh, the Russian Primary Chronicle tells us he has 2,000 ships and 80,000 warriors. We believe that's a bit exaggerated, uh, to say the least, uh, even if part of his forces are Slavic allies. 
The Byzantine sources don't tell us much about this attack. It was actually rather embarrassing. There is some evidence in the sources. Uh, apparently, uh, Oleg, or Helgi, very cleverly avoided the Imperial fleet, landed north of the Golden Horn, and tried to move his forces uh, around to the vulnerable uh, northeastern sections of the city, the so-called Blakarni district, the same area the Crusaders and later Metmet II entered the city when the city was captured later in the Middle Ages. Uh, and this was countered, and eventually the Rus pulled back, and this resulted in a formal treaty being um, arranged between um, Oleg, or Helgi, and the imperial government. And this treaty is preserved in the Russian Primary Chronicle, and it's an impressive piece of writing. Uh, the treaty was probably composed in Slavic and Greek. There is no written form of Norse at the time. And so Oleg is using his Slavic subjects um, to do the translating for him. But what it does do is sets up very, very specific terms in how uh, marketing can occur in Constantinople. The Rus are allowed to come. They are given privileged quarters. They are given a special position in the city. And in later treaties in the 10th century, that position is expanded uh, so that they become, in effect, uh, favored residents in the city of Constantinople. Also, it is hoped that these people convert to Christianity. It's not required. Uh, some of the Rus take a preliminary step that's sometimes known as, um, um, you know, the first baptism, the first water, the first christening. That is, they're, they're catechumens. They can attend services, but they're not yet really Christians. And so some of these Rus very quickly realize, well, actually, we get advantages by being Christians under these terms. There's also terms for taking the Rus into military service of the emperor. And the Rus very quickly found out that in the Byzantine Emperor, they got an employer who played, paid really well, both in gold and silver and silk garments. And so the treaty is an important step um, uh, between these Scandinavians in Russia and the Byzantine Empire. And no other, uh, you know, you, you, even, even the Treaty of Wedmore uh, between Alfred and the Vikings and Dane doesn't have nearly the kind of terms and regulations that this Byzantine Treaty has. This is a bureaucratic state with an imperial government served by all sorts of officials in a great city that wants to keep track on people. And that type of organization clearly impressed the Rus. They understood quickly what, what the power of this organization meant. You could mobilize fleets. This is the first opponent that we ever came into contact with. And so the contact with Constantinople is, is very, very important to the Rus and Varingians who are living in a world far outside of Roman civilization. In some ways, that's why I always say Ireland and Russia are similar. That is, Russia never was part of the Roman world. It doesn't have the urban institutions that Western Europe had. But the Rus, because of the nature of their trade act, uh, routes, end up in Constantinople and learn those Byzantine institutions and will bring it back to Russia. That was not done in Ireland, where the, Rus, uh, where the uh, Norwegians there never brought in those type of Roman institutions to organize a kingdom in Ireland. In Russia, uh, those Roman-style urban institutions, written documents, laws, bureaucrats, institutional Christianity with bishops will all be brought in from Constantinople. And it's a result of these trade agreements going back to the 10th century. Well, uh, Oleg, after cons uh, uh, concluding that treaty, goes about and starts imposing his authority across the forest zones of Russia. Uh, and he's remembered in the Russian primary chronicle as building many fortified posts, as founding many later Russian cities like Psukov and um, uh, Novgorod is rebuilt. He's at Kiev. He's at uh, Chernoff. Um, uh, almost every major Russian principality encountered in the 14th century claims some sort of origin back to a Rus market town at this time. 
And the Scandinavian sources start speaking of Russia as uh, Garda Riki, that is the kingdom of fortified posts, fortified markets, which reflects very much what's going on in the late 9th and 10th century. That is a, a vast expansion of the power of the prince uh, to expand the uh, raiding activities to get slaves and timber in order to trade directly with Constantinople. The successor of Oleg is a man named Igor, or Ingvar in his Norse name. Uh, his affiliation is a little uncertain. He claims to be a son or something, or maybe a grandson of Rurik. And all of these figures try to always link themselves back to Rurik as their uh, eponymous ancestor. Uh, he launches two attacks on Constantinople, and this is different from the previous two. It seems that Igor, or Ingvar's no, uh, uh, objective, is to pressure the imperial government to give him a more favorable treaty. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, in 945, the second treaty we, that is preserved in the Russian uh, primary chronicle is concluded, and it expands a great deal the provisions um, and advantages for the Rus operating in Constantinople. There's also another significant point in that treaty, and that is the names recorded as witnesses to the treaty and this is true in both the 911 treaty as well as the 945 treaty. In the earlier, tr earlier treaty, the witnesses from the Rus side are all Scandinavian. For the 945 treaty, a number of those names seem to be Slavic. And at this point, it's about the third or fourth generation of Scandinavians settled uh, in Eastern Europe. And what has happened is they are acquiring uh, local wives. Some of them are bilinguals. Uh, some Slavic um, people have been brought into the families by marriage. Uh, or by fostering and in effect uh, kind of forms of adoption. And so over the course of the later 10th century, increasingly these Scandinavians become a colonial population similar to what you have of the Hiberno-Norse um, uh, in Ireland. Uh, it's not as rapid as the assimilation of the Danes in Normandy, but slowly the Scandinavian component uh, in those market towns are being assimilated to the much larger Slavic population. This is borne out by the treaty. It's also borne out by a remarkable description of the prince who follows uh, Ingvar or Igor, his son, uh, Svetoslav, or perhaps in Norse his name is Svenheld. And that is a description, a very rare description we have of that prince, penned by a Byzantine historian when Prince Svetoslav negotiated a um, treaty with the Byzantine emperor John Smiskos, uh, Smiskes on the Danube in 971. And the translation runs something like this. This is from the account of Leo the Deacon. Sviatoslav crossed the river in a kind of Scythian boat. That means any kind of Norse boat. He handled the oar in the same way as his men, which as you would expect of any Viking sea king, you've got to be good as rowing just as your men. Here's the interesting part. His appearance was as follows. He was of medium height, neither too tall nor too short. He had bushy brows, blue eyes, and was snub-nosed. He shaved his beard, but wore a long and bushy mustache. His head was shaven except for a lock of hair on one side as a sign of nobility of his clan. His neck was thick, shoulders broad, and his whole stature pretty fine. He seemed gloomy and savage. Well, that's true of all barbarians as described by Byzantine authors. On one of his ears hung a golden uh, earring uh, adored with two pearls and a ruby set between them. His white garment was not distinguishable from those of his men, except for its clean, uh, cleanness. Well, the description is not that of a Viking sea king, but more of a, a Cossack hetman of the 18th century. Clearly, in dress and manners, 
the um, Varingians or the Rus in, in Kiev are acquiring the dress, the aesthetics, the customs of their Slavic subjects and their Turkmen neighbors. And this description that we get from Leo the Deacon uh, confirms uh, uh, other evidence that slowly the population is being assimilated into the wider Slavic population. The process is accelerated by the power of Constantinople and of the great churches of Constantinople and all of these trade connections. Uh, the 945 treaty uh, resulted in more um, Varingians and Rus coming from Russia into Constantinople, many more Scandinavians coming directly from the homeland into Constantinople. One of the most important visits, and it's difficult to date because, again, it's the Russian primary chronicle is a little vague on details, is that the mom of Sviatoslav, the prince I, uh, uh, who's, of, of whom I just spoke, uh, her name was Olga or Helga, uh, she carried out a great state um, um, visit to Constantinople while her son Sviatoslav was still a minor. She arrived there with a large number of attendants. She went into the church of Hagia Sophia, the great church built by the Emperor Justinian uh, in the 6th century, saw a full mass on saw that dome floating on a flood of light 17 stories above her and immediately concluded God lives here I'm becoming a Christian and she's regarded as the first Christian ruler in Russia uh, she went back to Kiev and her son was very uninterested in this Christianity he was devoted to the ancestral gods probably both Norse and Slavic but the story even though it is um, you know highly exaggerated and a and a, and a very colorful story is gives you some sort of impression of the power of institutional Christianity, the power and richness of the Orthodox Christianity, and how that is associated with the great monarchy, and why these Scandinavians would consider this as a faith to embrace. And once they do that, that will have major consequences. Svetoslav, uh, just like his father and grandfather, saw Constantinople uh, as a challenge. And he carried out uh, the last of uh, the serious attacks on the Byzantine Empire, and this in some ways was the most impressive organization to date. The previous four, four assaults had been naval attacks. In launching those attacks, that involved a considerable amount of logistics. I think of the 860 attack, sending 200 ships uh, into the Black Sea against Constantinople, 1,500 miles away from from, from Novgorod, where the prince was, uh, is, a, is a feat on order with any of the operations we saw in Western Europe. But due to um, uh, some very complicated politics in the Byzantine Empire uh, in the 960s and 970s, uh, the Kingdom of Bulgaria, which was an Orthodox Slavic state allied to the Byzantine Emperor, uh, uh, there were hostilities uh, with Bulgaria that erupted, largely due to the... Um, <laughs> uh, the ill-tempered manner of the Emperor Nicephorus focus. And in 967, with a war looming on the eastern frontier against the Arabs, Nicephorus convinced Svetoslav of Kiev to attack the Bulgarians in the Balkans as a Byzantine ally. Svetoslav was more than happy to oblige. He had just smashed the power of the Khazar Khaganate. That is, the great Turkmen power on the lower Volga, which had been a rival in trade relations, they sacked, uh, uh, the Rus went in there, sacked Attil, uh, Svetoslav had the army and men ready to go. And so he obliged the emperor by invading Bulgaria, wiping out the Bulgarians, and proceeding to attack imperial territory with the goal of taking Constantinople. 
This precipitated a crisis in the uh, imperial government. Uh, the emperor Nicephorus Phocas was eventually murdered by his nephew, John Samiskes. It was a total scandal. Uh, the Varingians rolled over uh, imperial provinces, massacring uh, towns and populations. Uh, and it was only in 971 when the new emperor, John, took the field, uh, drove back uh, the Rus, and defeated Svetoslav on the Danube in a great siege around an old Roman military uh, fortress um, at um, Dorostoldrum, uh, and forced Svetoslav to surrender and negotiated terms with him. This invasion by Svetoslav marked an important departure in Rus-Byzantine relations. Uh, for one, I think the imperial government was stunned. Uh, by the size and organization of these campaigns. Second, the only way these campaigns could have been conducted is that uh, Svetoslav is now being, uh, is now tapping into the great reservoir of manpower among his Slavic subjects, the very people that he's often been selling into slavery, but clearly the armies that are described in the imperial uh, annals are of a size that they cannot be just Scandinavian. The description we, re uh, we have of Leo the Deacon of Svetoslav also indicates that at least the prince and members of the court are now uh, dressing themselves in the regalia of Khazar Kagans. Uh, they're adapting some of the dress and manners of their Slavic subjects. So you're now dealing with a much more composite society than you did three generations earlier when the first Rus showed up attacking Constantinople. Uh, Svetoslav agrees to pull out of Bulgaria, a treaty is signed, and on his return on those treacherous rapids of the Dnieper, um, his army is set upon uh, by the Pechenegs and destroyed. Svetoslav is killed, and as happens with all Turkmen armies when you're defeated, uh, you, you kill the prince, you cut the head off of the prince, and you turn it into a drinking skull. This is a common Turkmen uh, technique, and, 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 and it's really useful for the Pechenegs because when future envoys come from Kiev, you know, you can just trot out the drinking uh, cup. Uh, oh, yeah, this was, uh, yeah, we picked this up with uh, uh, Prince Svetoslav, and you can, you know, drink a toast to a treaty, and sort of reinforces on the Rus that we're tough guys, you don't mess with us. Um, that's how poor Svetoslav ends up. So also, since he was a pagan and hated Christianity, I mean, some of the Rusmen say, well, maybe that wasn't a good idea either, too. And, but uh, his death in 972, in the spring of 972, uh, puts the Rus state in Kiev into a period of uh, civil war and succession crisis. Uh, the network of fortified towns are in danger of breaking up. Uh, many of the princes who are related to the royal family want to assert their own authority. There are at least two or three candidates to be prince of Kiev and therefore of the whole of this uh, loosely organized Rus state. And for the next, oh, seven or eight years, there's a complicated civil war. And the eventual victor in this war will be a man named Vladimir, or Valdemar, as he's known in Norse, who will reunite um, the realm of Rurik and of Svetoslav and impose control. Well, the lessons that, Svetos, uh, that um, this new Kievian prince, Valdemir, uh, draws is that it is far more useful uh, in playing the role of an orthodox prince and ally of Byzantium rather than a Viking sea king. He, t he will take the momentous step of embracing orthodox Christianity. Uh, he does this uh, sometime around 988-989, and in so doing, he lays the foundations for the creation of Russia and also takes an important step of transforming the Scandinavians into Slavic Orthodox Christians. 
and that will be the subject of the next lecture. These lectures are titled, The Vikings, Part 3. Lecture 25, From Varengians into Russians. In this lecture, I plan to conclude our discussion on the Viking impact in Eastern Europe, and we'll conclude this lecture with the creation of uh, Slavic-speaking Orthodox Russia. And what happens in the course of this lecture is the Scandinavians who arrived uh, starting in the ninth century have slowly become assimilated to their Slavic subjects. And by the act of conversion of Prince Vladimir to Orthodox Christianity in 988 or 989, he propels uh, this change into the creation of a new civilization. And the resulting civilization will be Slavic in its language, it will be orthodox in its faith, and it will be very much Byzantine in its political and legal institutions, that is, the East Roman state resident in Constantinople. There will be a memory of the Norse or the Viking heritage, and especially the princes of Kiev, uh, the two we will discuss a great deal in this particular lecture, uh, Vladimir, or as he would be known by his Norse name, Valdemir, and not his immediate successor, but his imp the most important successor to him, Yaroslav, uh, and those two men essentially rule over the first half of the 11th century, uh, they will have a sentimental connection and they will continue to host uh, visiting or exiled Viking sea kings or princes or warriors, uh, but they would have redefined themselves as Christian Orthodox princes. And by the year 1100, Kiev and Novgorod, to use the Slavic as opposed to the Scandinavian name for the northern town, will become Russian cities and henceforth the direction of this civilization is, is going to be quite different. So how did this important change occur? And this change is on the same order of importance of, say, the um, transformation of Vikings in France into Christian Normans. Well, a lot of it has to do with the aims and personality of Prince Vladimir of Kiev who came to the throne in 980 and had to fight a series of civil wars to reimpose his authority. He was the son of Sviatoslav, the king who, or prince, prefer to use the term prince, uh, who was the prince of Kiev who had invaded Bulgaria and taken on the Byzantine Empire and had been ambushed in 972 by the uh, Pecheneks on the Lower Dnieper. And the uh, Sviatoslav's head turned out to be the drinking skull of the Pecheneks, as I mentioned, and the disaster of, of his army uh, resulted in wars of succession. Now, since the uh, end of the 9th century, beginning of the 10th century, what was to become Russia, the primary forest zone of Russia, was bristling with different fortified market towns, and hence the Scandinavian name for the area as uh, Gardariki, that is, land of fortified towns or market towns. Sometimes it was also known as Sweden the Great as opposed to the Swedish homeland. Well, as a result of the prosperity that developed uh, because of the trade with Constantinople, any prince in one of these towns who had a retinue of warriors could assert himself as an independent uh, ruler. And once that uh, prince of Kiev was slain, 
Sviatoslav in 972. There were candidates not only for the throne in Kiev, but all these various towns could break away and establish their own autonomous states. And so Vladimir spent a good deal of the first 10 years of his reign bringing these areas back under control. And he was very conscious of his need for legitimacy and for institutions to make that rule effective. The other important aspect about Vladimir is he also drew some important lessons from his ancestors, particularly from his dad, Svetoslav. Uh, Svetoslav had attempted to invade uh, the Balkans and either create a uh, province there or capture Constantinople. His motives are rather unclear. But what it, it did reveal were two aspects of this early uh, um, state in Kiev. One is it didn't have the institutions to sustain the type of warfare and conquests uh, in the Balkans that, say, the Byzantine emperor had. Uh, there, were, there was no literacy. There was no bureaucracy. There were no types of institutions you could associate uh, with any kind of hierarchical structure, the Christian church or monarchical. And Vladimir appreciated this. And he also appreciated the fact that a number of his ancestors were impressed by the great Orthodox civilization of Constantinople. And he was the prince who concluded that it is much better for the prince of Kiev to rule as an ally of Constantinople rather than to uh, act in the, uh, as a restless Viking sea king to capture Constantinople, that is to launch these naval attacks or conquer areas in the Balkans. And that decision, with one exception, Yaroslav actually launches an attack later on on Constantinople in 1042, but that's, that's rather questionable what his motives were. That perception by Vladimir becomes an important cornerstone of later diplomacy between Kiev and Constantinople. They become related Orthodox civilizations, much more in alliance rather than in competition. And uh, there's good reason for this. Uh, for one, Vladimir realized that as his state became increasingly organized and as more and more Rus converted to Orthodox Christianity, as there were more and more advantages to being part of that Orthodox Commonwealth, as, as uh, scholars of the Byzantine world like to describe Eastern Europe, uh, they found themselves becoming more and more estranged from the Turkmen peoples of Eastern Europe. Uh, this was already evident in the reign of Svetoslav, who launched a uh, impressive campaign uh, uh, against the Khazars of the lower Volga and smashed the Khazar Khaganate. He essentially removed it as a political factor in the uh, diplomacy of Eastern Europe. And that victory actually was probably one of several reasons that led to the breakdown of the Volga trade route up to Sweden. The Khazars had been knocked out as an important set of middlemen. And the Byzantines had largely applauded this. The Khazars had converted to Judaism sometime back in the 860s. They weren't such useful allies. And, uh, and the relations had cooled. So Vladimir could see that the Turkmen increasingly are going to become rivals rather than trading partners as Kiev moved into alignment with Orthodox Constantinople. Finally, uh, Vladimir was uh, an extremely adroit diplomat. And he exploited a situation uh, that developed in the Byzantine Empire that allowed him to convert to Christianity under the most favorable of terms. And here we have to depend on the report of the Russian Primary Chronicle, uh, which tells us part of the story. But we also have information from the various Byzantine historians who, who report this very important event. And either in late 988 or early 989, there was a formal conversion. Vladimir was actually uh, baptized uh, in the city of Sherzon, which is in the Crimea today, which was a, a Greek 
uh, colony uh, in the Crimea and affiliate it with the Byzantine Empire. And he receives an imperial marriage. He marries the sister of the then reigning emperor of Constantinople, Basil II. Uh, Bulgar Octunas, the Bulgar Slayer, uh, one of my favorite Byzantine emperors who really uh, was a ferocious emperor and, and probably only stood about, you know, 5152, was, was barrel-chested, ferocious warrior, and all Scandinavians absolutely appreciated him as a paymaster and leader. Uh, the reason for this is uh, twofold. According to the Russian primary chronicle, before this political opportunity emerged, Vladimir was seriously considering a conversion to Christianity. And we're told a delightful story, and whether it's true or not is not so important as some of the um, fundamental truths behind this tale uh, of what caused northern people to convert. Uh, Vladimir consulted with religious leaders from the major religions that would have been available to him in Eastern Europe. According to the Russian Primary Chronicle, and once again, you have to remember, this is written by an Orthodox monk, so it's, you know, the whole story is sort of slanted in that direction. He consulted with um, uh, religious teachers from the Bulgars, that is the Turkmen's of uh, the Middle Volga, long trading partners of the Rus in, in Russia. And they told him about Islam, and circumcision wasn't too thrilling to um, Vladimir. Uh, uh, furthermore, uh, he was not particularly intrigued by the fact that they'd have to give up drinking alcoholic beverages. And as the Russian primary chronicle puts it, Vladimir says, no, this is not possible. Vodka is the life of the Russians, the joy of the Russians. We can't do without it. And I've made mention of this before, that in Eastern Europe, fundamentally, the conversion to Christianity or Islam ran along the forest step zone, or as I like to sometimes call it, the vodka hashish zone. Uh, if you were a step nomad in a Turkmen of some sort, and your holy men smoked uh, hashish uh, to climb the mystical ladder up to the other world, well, Islam looks pretty good. You could be a hoja in the Islamic tradition. That's not a problem. Uh, on the other hand, if you lived in the forest, zones and you had to get through the uh, bleak Russian winters, there was no way you were going to give up uh, your alcoholic beverages, especially vodka uh, and other types of brews. It's the only thing that gets you through uh, to, to the spring. So the Muslims are rejected. Uh, the Latin uh, missionaries, that is from Western Europe, are rejected. There is supposedly a Jewish mission that also failed. Uh, and the primary reason for that was Vladimir said, well, you people don't have a homeland. You don't have a kingdom, which to him would be very important. You know, if your God is so important, why don't you have a kingdom? Uh, and that captures very much the notion of what most of these northern rulers would see in a religion. Is your God a God of victory? Is he powerful? And he would look at the Jews. It doesn't matter how prosperous these Jewish merchants are. Uh, they don't have a kingdom. He was convinced by the Byzantine missionary, and again, the chronicle is extremely telling. Um, there is a reference to the wonders of heaven, but the real power of this Byzantine missionary, who's unnamed, was the uh, pictures he brought. Apparently, these are either tapestries or icons, and these pictures show the tortures of hell, the punishment of the unfaithful, and Vladimir and his nobles, uh, his Scandinavian nobles, they could really get into the plagues of Egypt to be put upon your opponents. They like very much the righteous kings of Israel, uh, especially Josiah or Hezekiah, 
who cast down idols, uh, the power of the Lord of hosts, the conquest of Canaan. Uh, these are the types of images that were presented, uh, apparently in some sort of visual form. And you have to remember that Orthodox Christianity at this point has one of the most beautiful and articulated services in the uh, whole Christian world with its full icons, with lots of wonderful images. And this is, this is what convinced Vladimir. This is a powerful God. We're going to go with the, uh, with the Orthodox version of the Christian God who in many ways was essentially a, a version of the Old Testament divinity, the Lord of hosts. Well, I think the report bears a lot of truth to this, that Vladimir was inclined to go that direction, and there had been a lot of Christian missionaries in contact. Many Scandinavians in Constantinople had received what is often known as the primo signato, that is the first sign they'd had sort of a provisional baptism. They could at least attend services even though they weren't technically Christians. Well, the political event that pushed Vladimir over is reported largely in the Byzantine sources, and that is in 988-989, the Emperor Basil II faced a very dangerous rebellion in Asia Minor. Uh, Bardas Phokas, the nephew of the previous Emperor Nicephorus Phokas, had raised an enormous force, carried Asia Minor, was threatening to cross over and capture Constantinople. And Basil was desperate for forces. And he, uh, he arranged a treaty with Vladimir in which Vladimir gave him 6,000 Varingians. And these seem to be Scandinavians, not so much Rus living in Kiev, but recent arrivals from Scandinavia who were the um, famed Viking warriors. Uh, Vladimir kept a guard of these guys on hand, that is, recent arrivals from Scandinavia who fought in the classic Viking shield wall, and we're told 6,000 of them arrived in Constantinople, and in April of 989, Basel transported these forces over to Asia Minor and bushwhacked the rebel army at Abydos, scared the hell out of the Anatolian and Armenian levies of Bardas Phokas, and crushed the rebellion. The result was the marriage. The sister of, um, of Basil Anna was married to uh, Vladimir, so an imperial uh, wedding was arranged. Uh, Vladimir promised to convert to Christianity. Uh, he was a little weak on setting aside his concubines. He still had his concubines, and there were certain traditional social behaviors you have to expect, the all-night feasting, the drinking, the toasting. But he was now a Christian ruler. And he and his heirs would become increasingly Christian rulers. Well, the conversion had powerful uh, influence in several directions, for Scandinavia, for what is beginning to become Russia, and for the Byzantine world. So let's look at the impact on all three of those. For the Byzantine Empire, this conversion, in probably in the spring of 989, uh, threw the uh, door open to Byzantine recruiting officers in Scandinavia. Starting in the late 10th century and running up to at least the year 1204, when the Fourth Crusade, or members of the Fourth Crusade, sacked Constantinople, every Byzantine emperor maintained what is very often known as the Viringian Guard. And these were Scandinavians, sometimes later Anglo-Saxons after 1066, who fought in the classic shield wall, who came to be the elite guard of the imperial army. And Basel kept, presumably, 6,000 of these guys on hand. They fought everywhere in the Byzantine Empire, and many important figures in Scandinavian history, including Harald Hattori, the future king of Norway, fought in the Varingian Guard. They fought under some of the veteran officers of Basel II, such as George Maniakis, and, and Harald made his career 
in Byzantine service, learned all sorts of techniques. Uh, the favorite one is what I call his Avery uh, fire bombs. He used to take cities in Sicily by attaching fires and releasing pigeons that would then light up the town in Sicily. And he was very, very good at stealth and craft, which he learned in the Byzantine service. And uh, these Varingians were reputed to be some of the best warriors in the Imperial Army. And their audacity is repeated in many literary sources. Uh, one of the most charming uh, features of it is there's a graffiti on the great lion that stands in front of the arsenal St. Mark in um, Venice today. And actually it's an Athenian monument of the second century AD, but there's a runic inscription on it put in by the Varingian guard. It's too worn to, to read, but it's, it's typical of what these Varingians do. They scratch their names on little places like, you know, Sven was here and we, you know, we clobbered the Greeks really well on this, whatever, whatever it was. So the Byzantines got an enormous advantage out of this relationship, and the Scandinavians did as well. Numerous Scandinavians made their careers in Constantinople. And going to Mikligard, that is the great city, is a feature that runs all through Icelandic uh, sagas. Many Icelanders end up serving in the Varingian Guard or going as merchant princes. Some of them settle in Constantinople. There are reports of that. And so many of the uh, monarchs of uh, Scandinavia of the late 10th and 11th century had that model of Constantinople in mind when they were forging their own kingdoms. Now they went with Western Christianity and there's reasons for that, it's closer in contact, but the model for an effective monarchy was Constantinople and the monarchy that was being set up in Kiev uh, by those Rus princes, that is those Scandinavian princes who are coming to rule over the Slavic populations of the forest zone. The, um, most dramatic impact uh, was not so much on Scandinavia and the, the Byzantine world, but on this emerging Russian state. And I would say that somewhere between 1050 and 1100, a Russian identity emerges. And I use that term generally because today uh, there's at least two, three republics of the former Soviet Union that could claim a descent from this Russian state. These would be the Ukraines, the Belarus, and the Great Russians, which is now the Russian Republic. And they're going to dispute exactly what their relationship is today, but they all culturally go back uh, to the achievements of Vladimir at Kiev and also the emergence of what eventually becomes the Republic of Novgorod in northern Russia. Well, the conversion had some immediate and dramatic um, impact. And the first and foremost was the conversion to Christianity brought not only the institutions of Christianity, but it also brought the Slavic language. And that Slavic language was a literary language created in the ninth century by St. Cyril, or to use more accurately his Greek name, Constantine, the apostle to the Slavs. And so when Vladimir and his nobles converted, they had to use a written language to communicate with the new God. They had to have a way of praying to this God. Norse did not have a written form. It, they had runes. But there was this Slavic language which was used by the Slavic subjects and allies of the Byzantine world, so obviously this is what we use. At this point in 989, many uh, Rus settled in Kiev or Novgorod or the other Russian towns would have known Slavic or their wives would have been Slavic speakers. You would have had a number of bilinguals. And so the transition is pretty easy for these people. Once that decision was taken, that opened up uh, all of these Russian towns to the literary culture of Constantinople, which was Greek 
and Slavic, uh, this literary Slavic language. Well, that is going to result in a very, very important linguistic and cultural change in the identity of these people. And by 1100, that change has been achieved. Yaroslav, who's known very often as Yaroslav the Wise, who ruled from 1019 to 1054, uh, he is um, one of the successors of Vladimir. He issues the first coherent law code in Kiev, and that's done in the Slavic language. And what it is is a Slavic translation of the uh, imperial laws that go all the way back to the age of Justinian. Furthermore, both Yaroslav and his predecessor Vladimir come to sponsor Christian authors, writing translations of uh, biblical stories, uh, saints' lives, uh, the Russian Primary Chronicle, our major source. And they cease to support the scalds who would be reciting the traditional poems in Norse. And so that is an extremely important change that occurs in the 11th century. And the princes in Kiev have a um, sentimental sense of being descended from Vikings. And they long assert that. They're very conscious of that in their marriage connections and in their diplomacy. Uh, Vladimir or Valdemir, his Norse name, is actually picked up as a name uh, by the kings of Denmark because of a marriage connection. He's the great-grandfather of Valdemir uh, I of Denmark. But it's a sentimental tie. It's similar to the Norman memory of, well, yes, we came from Vikings, but we are Christians and we are warriors of Christ and we rule as Christian princes. So it becomes an increasingly uh, sentimental and not really a major feature in defining this new civilization. In Novgorod, uh, it's even more dramatic. By the early 12th century, Novgorod breaks away from Kiev, uh, establishes itself as an independent merchant republic. That is, its prince is elected by a community, uh, essentially a council of merchants. And Novgorod comes to see the Swedes, especially, as rivals for the fur trade. And there is no love lost uh, between the Novgorodites and the Swedes running through the 12th and 13th century, they have become opponents and rivals. And so the irony is those Swedish settlers who had moved in and developed those northern Russian towns as part of their fur trade network, starting in the 8th and then running into the 10th century, evolve into northern Russians, Novgorodites, who see the Swedes as not kinsmen at all, but as rivals, as members of Latin Christianity. Uh, and so the lines become very sharp in northern Russia. There are more important, there are other important changes driving the transformation of the Varangians into Slavic-speaking Orthodox Russians. The simple fact that Vladimir had become an Orthodox prince meant he had to have a capital. He had to have the appropriate buildings. Those are cathedrals and churches. And that meant he could import Byzantine masons to build freestanding masonry architecture. And the first thing you get built in Kiev is a church to Mary Theotokos, Mary the Mother of God. Uh, immediately a church to Hagia Sophia, that is uh, sacred wisdom, is commenced in Novgorod. And in the course of the 11th century, every major town in Russia gets a stone church, a freestanding masonry church uh, as its main cathedral. Uh, there are efforts to build um, uh, palaces and usually city gates, even though the, the fortifications are largely um, wooden and um, uh, earthen fortifications. At least you have city gates, so your towns look like Constantinople when you approach them. And this is an imitation of the great city to the south, and they're able to get access to these Byzantine or Byzantine-trained masons and craftsmen to transform their fortified market towns into what I would call incipient, incipient cities. 
And by the time you reach the year 1200, you have real cities in what is becoming Russia. Novgorod, Kiev, these are cities running between 50 and 80,000 strong. There is nothing like this in Scandinavia, and the majority of the people living in those cities are clearly the Slavic subjects, uh, in some cases they might be Turkmen's or Finns as well, who have been um, attracted into the city uh, to sustain the activities associated with the Christian church, the palace, and the trade that is still going on with Constantinople. This results in two important changes. One is to sustain these cities, Vladimir and his successors turn the Rus from merchant princes raiding Slavic tribes to get slaves to merchant princes who see these Slavic peoples now as their subjects and encourage them to extend the arable. And between 1100 and 1300, the Russian peasants carve out, uh, out of that formidable forest zone, uh, the villages and agricultural basis to support these cities. It is an important and significant transformation. And uh, what is even more impressive is that these Russian peasants do not have the kind of uh, tools that you have in Western Europe. They do not have the three-field system, and many of them are operating in northern climates where you really have to depend on barley and oats and, rather than wheat. But the clearing of the forest and the setting up of villages, the turning of the society uh, into a society of cities based on peasant agriculture is one of the major social and economic changes going on in Russia that turns Varingians into Slavic Russians. And it really is an achievement of those peasants who are forced to pay uh, tribute uh, or taxes in the form of grain and produce. Uh, there is still a lot of fishing, hunting, and stock raising, and the fur trade is still significant. But this is, this is a major change in the life of Russia. That has a corresponding change uh, in that the Slavs are no longer uh, potential victims for the slave trade. They're now Christian subjects. And the Russian princes no longer can sell them to the Turkmen. And there was already a tension between those Turkmen tribes and the Rus. Now with the um, uh, emergence of Christian cities, you do not sell your peasants. You want to keep your peasants as labor, and, and, it, and it's wrong anyway to do so. And the result is the Turkmen tribes start raiding the Russian villages to find slaves. If the, if the Rus aren't going to sell them to us, we're going to go get them ourselves. So the Pechenegs, later the Cumans, the Bulgars, all of these people who had been some type of trading partner when the Rus were still essentially Vikings, uh, now become opponents. And furthermore, many of these Turkmen tribes convert to Islam. So there's now a religious tension. And this, this breaks down along that same line I discussed earlier, the Vodka line versus the Hashish line. It's essentially the forest zone versus the steppes. And so this becomes a major theme in Russian history ever ever after. That is, the Slavic peoples of the forest zone with their cities, with their villages, their uh, agricultural base, trying to bring under control the Turkmen. And if you look at the Turkmen, the steppe peoples, this was a really menacing and threatening uh, development. For the first time in history, the peoples of the forest zone had emerged as a major civilization and power. Complements of the Byzantine institutions and the driving organizational force of these Rus. And that meant to the Turkmen, this civilization was dangerous because eventually it would come to control the steppes. It would turn those steppes into agricultural areas, particularly in the Ukraine, where all of this steppe area would be turned from pasture and range into uh, villages and farming. And this is, again, a major theme that will run through Russian history. 
Finally, the, the, the Russian princes themselves, in combating the Turkmen, uh, transformed themselves ever more into Christian princes. They changed their military system, or let's put it this way, they update it, and they update it with the same savvy pragmatism you saw of the Normans in France. They adopt cavalry, mounted warriors. They maintain retinues, which are now uh, known by the Slavic name uh, Drutsina. Uh, in some ways, they have the same ethos as the Viking warrior companies, but these are now mounted warriors, uh, sporting armor, uh, armed with composite bows, skilled in raiding and stealth. That is, they adopt many of the cavalry tactics of their Turkmen opponents. You have now created a Russian cavalry and uh, a Russian ruling class that has to be supported by those agriculturists in those villages. And by 1100, your military and political institutions are now quite different from what you had uh, back in 1000, or certainly that you had in 950, when you were dealing essentially with a, a Viking culture that had been transported to Eastern Europe. Well, these changes result in the emergence of uh, classic Russian civilization. And as should be evident from this lecture, while the Rus, the Vikings, uh, are important in giving the political impetus, directing the trade and the contact with Constantinople, they are not alone in the creation of this new Russian identity. Byzantine civilization is of foremost importance. And really, Vladimir very, very cleverly did what none of his contemporaries could have done in Ireland, that is the uh, Hiberno-Norse in Ireland. Uh, they didn't have Roman institutions in Russia, but what Vladimir did was second best. He brought it there in the form of conversion to Constantinople and that close political alliance with Constantinople, which brought in the organization, uh, the hierarchy, the institutions, uh, the literate bureaucracy, taxation, uh, that allowed him to organize these Russian states. The majority of the population are Slavic speaking, and by 1100, that is going to be the language of the court, the language of literature, and the shaping identity of this new society, just as the Normans adopted French in Normandy. Finally, they are going to be Orthodox Christians. They are going to align with the Eastern European tradition, and in many ways, the, conversions of Vlad the conversion of Vladimir and the changes that follow uh, creates Eastern Europe as we understand it today. And it doesn't matter that by 1100, Vladimir's uh, successors did not establish a unitary state. Russia was so huge and constantly expanding with the expansion of the arable that the Prince of Kiev often ruled as sort of the leading figure, sort of the chairman of a consortium of, of various Rus princes. But they had built up the institutions for powerful regional states that would eventually lead to the unification of the Russias under Muscovy and the creation of Russia of the European system. Lecture 26, Transformation of Scandinavian Society. In this lecture, I plan to look at the transformation of society in the Scandinavian homeland during the Viking Age. And this lecture will examine uh, four important changes. These will be in economic life, uh, society, uh, and then political and religious institutions. 
uh, because the influx of all of this money, this booty, very often in the form of silver, either in coin or in plate, as well as the profits of the slave trade, clearly changed uh, Scandinavian society on an order that is um, uh, remarkable in comparison to the earlier ages, the age of migrations or uh, the Roman age, that uh, so much wealth poured in to Scandinavia. The obvious question is, well, how did that change life in, in Scandinavia during the Viking Age, especially since we've looked at that issue in the overseas areas. Uh, the other important point is how that change in economic and social patterns in Scandinavia also uh, led to conditions that favored the emergence of Christianity in the territorial kingdoms uh, that become Denmark, Norway, and Sweden by the end of the Viking Age. And so this lecture acts as a very important transition from the uh, first portions of this course to the final set of lectures that are going to concentrate very much on that last question. Uh, religious change and political change in Scandinavia that turned the Scandinavians into Western Europeans. And so it's maybe important to think for a moment where we've been and where we're going to end up in this class. We have stressed in the last 12 or 13 lectures the wide-ranging activities of Scandinavians overseas. Uh, these were uh, cases of conquest and uh, settlement in Western Europe, in the British Isles, the Carolingian Empire, also, the transplanting of a Scandinavian colonial culture or colonial settlement uh, to Iceland, the North Atlantic islands such as the Shetlands, the Faroes, uh, those brief excursions into Vinland and Greenland, uh, as well as the Swedish impact in Russia. And I kept stressing in the course of those lectures that the Scandinavians showed themselves uh, very, very able to adapt to local institutions, they could intermarry with local populations, learn from them, that also in some of these overseas areas, notably in Normandy, uh, but above all in Russia, uh, kingdoms emerged that could be models for organization of kingdoms back in the homeland, that both in uh, Anglo-Saxon England where the Danes settled in forest or in Iceland, uh, legal institutions were developed uh, based on the old traditions of the thing and the jury uh, that again were models of local organization for the um, homeland. So we wish to deal with these themes uh, in this lecture and then with the end of this lecture turn our focus on Scandinavia ever more to see how the Viking Age uh, ended in the creation of these Christian European kingdoms. Well, the first subject of this lecture is, of course, the influx of wealth. Clearly, the most important force transforming Scandinavia in the Viking Age was the vast amount of wealth in the form of silver, uh, bullion, uh, plunder, and slaves. And it's difficult to give any kind of statistical basis for this. We lack the types of records we would have for, say, the ancient world, the Roman Empire, or for later statistics uh, we have for uh, European colonies overseas in the Age of Discovery from the 15th, 16th, 17th century, for instance, the, the great wealth coming in with the Spanish Empire that, that can be actually documented through various types of records. So we're really reduced to what I would call qualitative evidence, that is, uh, as opposed to quantitative evidence, and very often we're dealing with impressions rather than any kind of hard statistics. And this, of course, has led to a really important debate among scholars, and that is how important was the Viking Age on its impact in the homeland, not only overseas, but how much wealth and how many slaves were taken. What did this mean for the people living at home? Well, our information is uh, able to give us some sense 
of the scale of change. And I think the scale of change is geometric compared to the type of trade that went on in the Age of Migrations or in the Roman and Celtic Age. For one, we do have some sense of the amount of silver coin taken in Dangal payments, uh, both from the Carolingian Empire and from England. Uh, in the ninth century, I've alluded to the fact that uh, calculations of those payments recorded in Frankish sources lead us to conclude that somewhere between 40 and 45,000 pounds of silver were paid out. Many scholars would assume that this is only one half to one third of the total specie that was carried off, uh, that you can document the degeneration, the deterioration of Carolingian coinage as a direct result of these payments and losses uh, in plunder to the Scandinavians. The same can be documented in England, especially from the 11th century at the time of Sven Forkbeard and Canute, who are coming up in future lectures, and that is the amount of silver coinage uh, in the form of what is known as a silver penny. And this was a thin hammered coin of 18 to 20 millimeters across and weighing anywhere from 1.4 to 1.6 grams. Uh, these were paid out in Dangal payments. Uh, King Ethelred II uh, paid out uh, perhaps somewhere on the order of 180,000 pounds. Uh, that would be well over 40 million English pennies. Uh, that King Canute, when he took uh, control of England and had to cashier part of his army and pay him off, uh, raised his own dangald, uh, which was just under half of what had been paid off by Ethelred II in the previous uh, 15 years. That is something like uh, 87 or 88,000 pounds of of silver or 20 million silver pennies. This amount of wealth coming into Scandinavia cannot be documented in uh, any kind of statistical records. I mean, there are no royal institutions or taxes that tell us about this. But we can get some sense by the enormous number of coins that have been secreted in hoards. And whenever you're looking at a coin hoard, it's someone's bad luck. He put the money aside for some reason, could have been an emergency, insecurity, wanted to save the money for a future date, and failed to retrieve it. That means he either was killed or enslaved or, or in some cases, forgot where he had buried the money. There's probably a couple of absent-minded uh, individuals who never recovered their coin hoard. We also have rune stones that were erected in central Sweden between uh, 1,000 and 1,100. Uh, that's where most of our rune stones come uh, from that section of Sweden and also the island of Gotland. And it tells us many Swedes were paid money by either Canute or the Jarls, that is the Earls of Sven Forkbeard in the conquest of Denmark. We even have considerable coin hoards coming from overseas that are clearly to be associated with the Vikings. Uh, these include the vast number of finds of Arabic coins in Russia, which are obviously a result of the trade connections, uh, and also a very famous coin hoard found in northern England, that is the Curradale hoard, uh, probably deposited about 905-910, which includes well almost 7,000 coins, large numbers of Anglo-Saxon coins, as well as Carolingian and Viking coins issued in the city of York. And so silver was available in great amounts. And it did change habits in Scandinavia. Increasingly, Scandinavians came to reckon sums of value, uh, transactions, and coined money. And coined money had a number of important advantages over commodities and uh, trade by um, uh, exchange of uh, kind, as you often call it. Uh, or sometimes it's, uh, you use the uh, Naturwissenschaft, or uh, what is it, uh, Naturwirtschaft, a, um, a natural economy is what the German, German scholars would call it. 
And that meant you could make trade, you could exchange and reckon value of different objects, uh, which would be very hard to exchange as um, commodities, you know, goats as opposed to skins. Uh, you could also reckon accounts. Uh, you could, uh, you have your wealth in a portable form uh, that could be reckoned anywhere. Icelandic law is very good at determining the uh, quality of silver in scales and compensations and legal documents. The Gragos, that is the earliest codes in Iceland, report fines. If you kill someone and, uh, and to uh, forestall a blood feud, you pay it off in silver marks. That is a weight uh, that is uh, designated by law that it should be of a certain purity and weight. We know that scales are very common in Scandinavia, especially in Sweden. The coins are being weighed out. And this results in monetized markets, the development of market towns, and changes in both shopping and trading habits uh, throughout Scandinavia. And this is a steady change that occurs in the Viking Age and will extend across Scandinavia well after the Viking Age so that economically, monetarily, Scandinavia becomes incorporated into the wider European economy. The Scandinavians themselves start striking coins, particularly in the towns of Burka and Hedeby. Uh, these are very strange coins known as uh, bracteates. Um, they essentially only have one die, and so the reverse die is actually the mirror image of it. Uh, these seem to be experimental pieces, but they're obviously for reckoning accounts in the slave trade and the trade in other commodities, luxury goods. King Canute. Uh, who will rule from 1014 to 1035, will bring English-style coinage into Scandinavia and really transform the, the Scandinavian monetary and economic patterns uh, ever after. So certainly wealth uh, appears in, in great amounts. It leads to change in markets and habits of reckoning wealth and in conducting transactions. Also, what is uh, another important aspect about all this wealth coming in, and I've mentioned it in an earlier uh, two lectures, and that is a good deal of this species, silver and gold, was put into ornamentation, was put into display. Uh, there's various ways to spend your money. And not until the 11th century, when you have the emergence of those uh, Scandinavian kingdoms, is money put into royal institutions, building of churches, institutional Christianity, that is public activities that will transform the society into a European society. Before that, before 1000, much of the wealth obtained in Viking raids, the plunder, the profits of trade, the profits from the slave trade, were not poured in any kind of public activities or kingship, but in personal adornment and in the material life of Scandinavians in general. And this can be, again, documented in several ways. Uh, the most dramatic is the increase of those spectacular ship burials of which I spoke. Uh, the Osberg ship burial dated to 834. The Gokstok ship burial from around 900 or shortly thereafter. The objects placed in there are really quite opulent and would be, uh, and, well, the kings of, the, of the, uh, the age of migrations, the heroic kings, would just look in envy with the amount of goods that could be given to a noble lady or to a regal figure in the Viking Age as opposed to uh, what could have been done earlier. It sees the proliferation of the various jewelry styles. Uh, there are some really uh, brilliant studies on Scandinavian jewelry styles. These are studied from different angles. One is art historical, that is the developing styles, the outside influence. Uh, another way is to organize them. There are at least six or seven major styles. But what is often missed in all of these studies is the social and economic implications and how they are part of that wider change going on in Scandinavian society. At the start of the Viking Age, the most common styles are often known as the Osberg style or the Bore style. These are named after uh, two important burials, Osberg for the ship 
And uh, this jewelry style, or decorative style, to be more accurate, it's used on rune stones, it's used in wooden carvings, uh, is very similar to the types of styles you would have seen in the Age of Migrations. The figures are rather stocky, they're often done in profile. Uh, those styles uh, become increasingly ostentatious and diverse uh, over the course of the Viking Age. Uh, the next style that is often um, seen as sort of a su successor to that earlier Bore style is the Yelling style, uh, usually dated to the late 9th century and running through most of the 10th century. It gets its name from the site where the great runestone is commissioned uh, by King uh, Gorm the Old and then another one uh, by his son um, uh, Harold Bluetooth. Uh, but the style uh, shows uh, elongated and sinuous figures, all sorts of fantastic animals, outside influences perhaps coming from the Islamic world and Western Europe. And what is important is that from this yelling style, you go to a series of other styles, uh, the Mammon style, which is, uh, brings in floral designs from Carolingian work. The climax is going to be in this earnest style, this uh, very Baroque style that comes at the end of the Viking Age and influences early Christian art. All of these styles are premised on the fact there is an enormous amount of silver and gold available for jewelry work. And the proliferation of styles and substyles, the large numbers of objects placed in graves, uh, the descriptions of spectacular um, ship burials, all of this points to a so society that has the money, the wealth, the op opulence, uh, not only to turn all of this wealth into objects of display, but also to bury part of it as, uh, as also a display for the prominence of the family, the importance and rank of the individual who is now being honored uh, going into the grave. The um, most spectacular description of a, sh of a ship burial is that uh, given by Ibn Fadlan of a, um, a ship burial uh, on the Volga where the uh, deceased uh, Rus merchant prince is not only accompanied by his strangled wife or concubine, uh, but also is stocked up with all sorts of goods uh, for the afterlife. And so Scandinavian society in its material wealth, its material culture, was vastly enriched. Life had changed significantly, particularly for the wealthier classes, but for all classes in Scandinavia. This took the form in the amount of jewelry available, personal ornamentation, weapons. I mentioned in earlier lectures how uh, Frankish weapons now could be acquired in great, great numbers, particularly swords. Uh, it's seen probably in the proliferation of furniture and in the market towns such as Kalpong, Birka, Sigtuna, Hedeby, archaeologists have revealed a vast array of imported goods silver uh, objects coming in as trade goods, not as plunder. This would be tableware. Glassware coming in from the Rhineland. Silks, tapestries and clothing both coming in from either the Islamic world, later from Byzantium. Wine, which can be documented from the residue in um, ceramics that, that the containers actually had wine at one point. All of these items are now common fare in Scandinavia. Furthermore, there is importation of grains and other types of foodstuffs to support uh, the Scandinavian population. And as I've stressed in earlier lectures, agriculture is a difficult task in those northern climates, particularly in Norway and Sweden. So life had changed significantly. And all Scandinavian communities, in one way or the other, had benefited from the economic change in wealth. What is frustrating with this information is we have very little information on the slave trade. Besides the movable wealth, the, the plunder, the booty, the silver, and the objects that could easily be turned into cold cash, the other biggest commodity that is coming into Scandinavia is slaves. 
And here we're really at a loss on what happened to this population, but the best guess is that many of them did not stay in Scandinavia. Uh, again, our information is anecdotal and indirect. Uh, there's been very clever studies on the slave trade into the Islamic world, uh, especially by Professor Michael McCormick and his, his brilliant monumental work on the early on the origins of the European economy that has recently been published and that is prices would just draw many of the slaves into Muslim Spain or the Islamic world but some of those people stayed in Scandinavia they became thralls uh, that is the um, the slaves or in some cases sort of indentured servant uh, to Scandinavian families and we get reports of them in Icelandic saga and our best information is again coming from Iceland where we have the most documentation uh, but there's two types of evidence that indicate to us that the Icelanders, the Norwegians who went over there in the first waves of settlement between say 870 and 930 carried with them a number of slaves or thralls. These were largely people of Celtic origin. Many of them were from Scotland and from Ireland and what is significant about um, this anecdotal material is usually these slaves, if they were, um, and they were farmhands, they were particularly important stock raising, if they were men or if they were women, they are often um, used in weaving, uh, which is the major occupation uh, for most women. What seems to happen with many of them is they eventually get freed, or at least their children do. Uh, in the case of um, several of them, uh, especially those who were thralls from Scotland of this formidable dom known as Un the Deep-Minded, who was a Norwegian noblewoman who left Norway around 915 and settled in Iceland, uh, she had a number of important uh, thralls who did her tasks, and she uh, freed them and endowed them with land, and these people set up their own families and were assimilated into the Icelandic population. Uh, there is instances of men uh, keeping concubines. The most uh, significant one is Hoskold and his son in Lakstala saga, also in Yao saga. Uh, his illegitimate son, Olaf the Peacock, who becomes a major figure in Icelandic law and proceedings. Well, his mother is a concubine of Irish origin. She claims to be an Irish princess, and there's a whole tale about that. So uh, part of that slave population came into Scandinavia and apparently was assimilated. How much of the total volume of slaves, we don't know. My suspicion is you're dealing only with the minority. That they were used in households, they were used for certain occupations, such as stock raising in Iceland, that's why they're prominent. But within two or three generations, most of these people get assimilated into the general Scandinavian population. And probably the number of slaves staying in Scandinavia as population, you know, adding to the population, was more than offset by the number of Scandinavians who were going out uh, overseas in raids and in colonizing activities. And so demographically, uh, this slave population may have added, you know, more of a component into the population. You know, uh, in Iceland, there's been some very clever DNA analysis that points to the fact that Icelanders do have e DNA connections to Ireland, uh, particularly that is a Celtic land. And we've known this from the sagas that, and, and, and it's debated, is it one in seven or one in 15? But there, there is this component in the population and they were just assimilated culturally into the Norse, uh, the Norse culture of Iceland. Uh, but the, um, the overall effect is while there are slaves coming in, they do not take over as a major economic class or force. There's, there's, there's no evidence of a large slave society that has to be liberated when Scandinavia be, uh, go, the Scandinavian kingdoms go Christian. And furthermore, the outgoing population more than offset this influx 
and acted as, uh, so that the Viking Age, in effect, acted as a safety valve uh, for Scandinavia. And my, my guess is that from 800 to close to 1100, the population in Scandinavia was pretty stable, somewhere between 800,000 and a million total. Um, goes up a bit when you add in Iceland, but it, it stayed fairly stable, and that is because of the Viking overseas experience. Another important change is also being traced now, again, by using um, Christian laws, uh, that is, laws issued in early uh, Christian Scandinavia and the Icelandic sagas, and that includes social changes. Uh, among the social changes that are often looked at is the position of women, which is a topic uh, that is of great interest in current scholarship. And there we can only discuss really women of a certain rank, usually the higher ranks of society. And again, most of our information is coming from Icelandic and uh, later Norwegian law. But it seems that the Viking Age did have an influence not only in enriching the communities and the uh, material life of all Scandinavians, but also in some ways uh, elevating the position of women in Iceland uh, and in Norway and probably in all of Scandinavia. I um, uh, gave some anecdotal information on this in the Frontier Society of Iceland, and Iceland, again, is, a, is, is not necessarily all of Scandinavia. Iceland is an unusual society. Even so, the grounds of, uh, by which women can divorce their husbands, not only in Icelandic law and Norwegian law, are really quite um, wide-ranging in comparison to other European law. Furthermore, the so-called concubines or second wives uh, in uh, Norse society, and this, these arrangements persisted long after the conversion of Christianity, were expected to receive property for both themselves and for their descendants, uh, their children, by the free man. Um, and that is a very, very significant point in Scandinavian society. Uh, these people were important, even illegitimate sons are counted and reckoned in sagas and usually interact with legitimate children. Um, very, very well uh, depicted in Njal's saga, where Njal, the hero, has um, uh, three legitimate sons and one illegitimate uh, son, and those, those brothers are as close as brothers can be. Uh, conditions in life in Scandinavia were always difficult so that women were never pushed uh, into a secluded existence. They had to prepare the food, they had to take over the homesteads, uh, and in the Viking Age, the constant movement of men overseas increased those roles that women had to play. Very often, the leading figure in a household had to take over, and that was a female. Un the Deep Mine, it is again another good example in this regard. Uh, this uh, great aristocratic lady who emigrated from Hordaland in Norway to Iceland and set up her own um, hall. Uh, she didn't have the powers of the later Gothi, that is, the, uh, the chieftain, but she came close. Uh, and the description of her, her influence in the community uh, as the matriarch of an extended set of families is very, very well described in the opening of Lakstala Saga, particularly her final festival, her feast, where she knows she's dying. And she summons all of her relatives to probably one of the most important um, celebrations held in any uh, farmstead in Iceland in the early 10th century. And she essentially makes out her will. She designates uh, one of her grandsons as her primary heirs. Uh, she retires early, and they find her the next morning. Uh, she's died in her sleep, uh, seated up, noble as ever. Uh, and then she's given a ship 
burial, and we have every reason to believe that actually took place. You know, they actually gave this Icelandic lady a ship burial, which is very expensive. And her position is not that unusual for many women of rank in Scandinavia, and this is one of the social changes that comes out of uh, the impact of the Viking Age. Uh, there are several other dramatic examples of this. We'll encounter Queen Thierry of Denmark, who um, turns out to be far better known and far better respected in the saga sources um, than either her husband, Gorm the Old, or her son, uh, Harold Bluetooth. And according to one saga, the saga of the Jones Vikings, um, she's credit, credit with the great construction of the Danverka. And I think the uh, Holy Roman Emperor Otto I actually courted her uh, uh, to marry her. It's, you know, it's a fable, but you know, her position in the Danish uh, monarchy is very powerful. That's actually borne out by a runic inscription in which she is hailed as the ornament of Denmark or restorer of Denmark. It's, it's hard to know what the language means. I also think of the example of that uh, Norse queen of Dublin, uh, probably who went by the name of Un or uh, Ota, known as Node uh, in the Arabic accounts, who not only received the embassy from Cordova, uh, but we are told uh, performed the functions as a vulva, uh, acting as the priestess uh, for the Viking uh, kingdom that was set up in Dublin. So there are major social changes that go along with the economic changes. And again, we can only discern these through anecdotal material and archaeology. There is a lot more work that needs to be done and it will require a whole new generation of scholars to bring to bear the kind of statistical studies we're able to do in, say, the ancient world or early modern world as comparative material to start answering some of these questions. Uh, but some very, very good work is on the way, and particularly on the social rank and, and, and changes for women in Viking Age uh, Iceland and Norway. The market towns, of course, increase. These do not turn into cities, and cities are really a benefit of the organization of the kingdoms as uh, Christian kingdoms. But there's two other important changes I want to close with um, that result from the Viking Age, and these are the changes that are going to be the major themes in the last set of lectures, in the last third of this course, and those are uh, politics and religion, uh, two topics that will interest well, almost anyone who has any sort of interest in history, uh, these are usually overriding questions. How did politics and religion change as a result of the Viking Age? Well, in the, in the case of politics, this is going to be very significant. I've alluded to the um, uh, emergence of professional companies of Vikings. These could be the Varingian Guard in Constantinople. Um, they could be the Sea Kings who maintained these contingents of professional warriors who could fight in the Carolingian wor world or England uh, for decades, uh, many of them eventually settling. Uh, there were improvements in shipbuilding. By the late 10th century, the designs of the warships are perfected into the longships, the great uh, ocean-going cargo vessels, the canar. Uh, the introduction of the double-headed axe and the uh, more uh, disciplined infantry formations depicted on the Bayo Tapestry. That is, military technology changed, both in warfare on land and on sea. More and more professional companies of warriors were available, and we'll discuss these in the upcoming lectures. These are the basis of royal armies. The monetization of markets, the increasing importance of long-distance trade, the use of coined money, all of this provides the basis to create the fiscal institutions to pay for those royal armies and to sustain the uh, institutions of a, um, a monarchy that is now territorial in its nature rather than just a sea king looking for a hall. And finally, 
the uh, most important impact on Scandinavia will be the reception of Christianity. And Christianity uh, is one of the most important forces, if not the most important force, in transforming Scandinavia in the Viking Age. And in the next lectures, we'll discuss the way Scandinavians converted to Christianity, what this meant, but the exposure to this uh, Christian faith, both in its Western European version that they would encounter in the Carolingian world in the British Isles and in Byzantium would have profound consequences in the way Scandinavians saw the world and also the, the way they saw the divine and above all in the way they behaved and organized uh, their societies and kingdoms at home. And it will become very, very clear in the succeeding lectures that the emergence of the Scandinavian kingdoms, the exploiting of all of these benefits from the Viking Age, the wealth, um, the advantages uh, in society, uh, the new market towns, all of this is going to be exploited by kings who are Christians. And it will be Christian sea kings who will become the major agents of change in the centuries uh, after the Viking Age and turn the Scandinavians into Christian Europeans. And that is going to be the most important transformation, the most important change coming out of the Viking Age. That is the integration of Scandinavia into a wider Christian Europe. And without the Viking Age, in my opinion, this process would have been far more difficult and taken far longer to do. Lecture 27, St. Anskar and the First Christian Missions. In this lecture, I plan to look at the reception of Christianity in Scandinavia starting in the 9th century, and uh, this is an, a, a very important change in Scandinavian history that is associated uh, with a uh, rather courageous missionary uh, known as St. Anskar, who is the Apostle to the North. And in this lecture, I wish to concentrate on the activities of St. Anskar. We have a, a vita or vita, uh, to use the medieval Latin pronunciation, that is a life that was penned by his uh, successor and disciple, Rimbert, who succeeded St. Anskar as Bishop of uh, Hamburg-Bremen and succeeded to the whole tradition uh, and missionary effort of um, the conversion of Scandinavia. Then I want to look at some of the limitations uh, in that mission where uh, the early Christian missionaries encountered difficulties in reaching uh, the northern peoples and winning them over to the new faith. And then finally we're going to look at uh, why the old gods, the traditional uh, religion of the Scandinavians persisted for so long, what were the strengths of that faith, and how in some ways the Viking Age very much reinforced belief in the old gods and made Christianization, conversion and Christianization all the more difficult. Well, let's first look at St. Anskar and his uh, achievement. He was uh, born in uh, the region today that would be known as Picardy, probably around um, uh, 801, and he died in 865. And his life is very, very much tied up uh, with his missionary efforts and the monastic reforms going on in Western Europe at the time. He was uh, trained at the great monastery of Corby in France. Uh, this was uh, a monastery that had pioneered 
uh, reform within the Carolingian world. It was associated uh, with um, monastic reform going back to the reign of Charlemagne and was especially an important monastery in the time of Louis the Pious. Uh, this is also the outfit, by the way, that's thought to have uh, created that famous doctrine known as the Donation of Constantine, the, um, the document later dredged up by the papacy to support their position as the supreme authority in Western Europe and was later uh, proved to be a forgery by Lorenzo Valla in the Renaissance. So it's a monastery of uh, great activity, intellectual inquiry, and a great deal of writing, and uh, also very much associated with monastic reform. And the rededication of the Benedictine monks of Western Europe to those traditions of St. Benedict of Nursia, which included preaching and missionary work. In the life that comes down to us uh, from uh, Rimbert, the uh, disciple of uh, St. Angskar, the bishop saint is really depicted very much in the tradition of all hagiography, that is of all sacred writing, as an extremely pious and courageous man who was just unrelenting in his efforts to reach the Scandinavians. He's also depicted as a missionary who tries to work much more by persuasion and preaching rather than destroying cult objects, statues, uh, casting down temples, uh, taking the more zealous approach that is often associated with missionaries acting in the Old Testament tradition. In part, this is because St. Oxford had probably learned uh, some lessons from his predecessors, the few earlier efforts to convert the Scandinavians, which were not very successful. In part, it was just the limitations that he faced. That is, you can't walk into Hedeby and start cutting down temples uh, or cult statues uh, when the majority of the population is pagan and will not tolerate it. But also, St. Oxford comes across, at least to me, in the Vita as a, uh, a very, very savvy ecclesiastical politician, a man who understood the importance of royal patronage. That included not only Louis the Pious and later Louis's son, uh, Louis the German, who came to rule the eastern portions of the Frankish Empire, but also the importance of patronage from Scandinavian kings. And he made sure to get that patronage both in Hedeby and in Burka in Sweden in order to build those first churches and make those first efforts um, uh, to potential converts. He also understood institutions and the importance of setting up churches and also the importance of training clergy who could go to the north and begin to preach to the Scandinavians in their own language and come equipped with some of the arguments necessary to bring these northern peoples over to the Christian mission. Um, this is highlighted if you compare uh, some of St. Angster's activities with his predecessor. The, the one man who made really the closest to an effort at converting the Danes is St. Uh, Willibrode, uh, operating at the end of the 7th, the beginning of the 8th century. Uh, he was an English missionary who was commissioned to convert the Frisians. Uh, he eventually became Archbishop of Utrecht, which is today in Holland. And he was successful with, with the Frisians for several reasons. One, he had the protection of the Frankish king. The Frisians were economically tied to the Frankish kingdom. But also, the Anglo-Saxon language was very, very close to Frisians. So he could probably preach in English and be pretty much understood. It would be pretty easy to get translators. He made an excursion into Denmark to attempt to convert the Danes. He encountered a Danish king who's rendered in his vita, which is also written in Latin, as um, uh, Angendus, which may be the Old Norse name Angatir, a very common name, a very common dynastic name in the royal family of Sweden. And, uh, and this particular Danish king may have been associated with the expansion of the Danverka. And St. Willibrod had very little success. 
He attempted to buy slaves, uh, boys, to train as potential clerics. And that little incident rep reported in that vita to me suggests how limited uh, these, these early missionaries were in reaching the Scandinavian population. By this point, the Scandinavian language had evolved into a very, very distinct Germanic language, its own sets of conventions and idioms, its own morphology, and speaking English or Frisian was not going to get you anywhere. No one could understand you. And what happened is this English saint simply bought some slave boys hoping that somehow he could train them, could teach them English or Latin, and they could communicate uh, to the Danes. Well, my suspicion is that the, uh, the Scandinavian king who sold them um, on Gendus was, was simply doing a smart business trade and training a bunch of slave boys who may not have been Danes anyway to act as missionaries was just not going to work. I mean, slaves, uh, converting kings, princes, warriors, uh, these are despised people. There may actually be neighbors who are destined for the slave markets of Western Europe. So uh, it always has to be kept in mind that one of the most difficult features of, of missionary work was first getting people who could speak the native languages and at least get the attention of the pagan populations to hear the message. And St. Onxer is the first uh, to make that effort to uh, go to Scandinavia uh, and uh, begin to disseminate the message. And his predecessors really had absolutely no influence whatsoever, in my opinion. They were just pointing the way. There's Scandinavia. There's some pagans up there. It's a good idea if we can convert them. Well, St. Oxter was commissioned uh, to be the Apostle of the North by Louis the Pious. As I said, this is probably the best idea, maybe the only original idea that Louis ever had. And he did not go to uh, Hedeby, which is the great market town in Denmark, alone. This was not some lone uh, charismatic preacher who's going in to a pagan town and is just going to persuade these people over by the reasonableness of the faith. At the time, in 826, uh, the Danish uh, king or prince who had been exiled in a political war in, in Jutland, his name is Harald Clack, had received a fief in Frisia. He and 400 of his followers had submitted to baptism, had become Christians, and hoped to get uh, military aid to reestablish their position back in Denmark. Uh, Harald Clack provided translators and interpreters, guides. Uh, furthermore, St. Angster was accompanied by other monks. He had a colleague. Oatbert, who acted as his mentor, but it was a whole retinue that arrived. And as I said, St. Oxter was a very, very savvy um, ecclesiastical politician. When he arrived in Hedepi, he also came with the authority of Louis the Pious, that is, the great Carolingian king. And in Hedepi were a number of foreigners, Frisians, Saxons, uh, Franks, English, uh, even Slavs, uh, that is, uh, merchants from all over the northern markets of the medieval world. And so there was also possible hosts, men who were already Christian, at least marginally Christian. And so when he arrived at Hedeby and began his preaching, um, there was uh, a certain amount of support for his activities, uh, which was quite different from uh, earlier efforts and why earlier efforts had failed. And so from 826 to 828, St. Angster made the first efforts at converting Danes in Hedeby. He was allowed to build a church probably a rather modest church with a bell. It may have been nothing more than a private house that was converted to use. And there's no way to document it or to verify it in the excavations we have. He somehow won over the patronage of a king named Horik, uh, which is probably a Frankish rendition of Eric, who was a part-time rival of Harold Clock uh, and actually attended some of the services. 
This, of course, excited a great deal of um, optimism among St. Angster, the fact that the king actually could show up at services, allow them to take place. And here is a common error that's made by many a Christian missionary operating in Scandinavia, and that is the notion that the uh, allowing of a missionary to preach, to give his message, or even to perform a miracle, was mistaken as a conversion. In some instances, it was just good manners. Uh, I've stressed in earlier lectures that the conditions in Scandinavia put a premium on hospitality, uh, that you dare not turn guests away, particularly in wintertime. And anyway, guests could be gods in disguise, or they could be representatives of very, very powerful political figures. In the case of St. Angster, it was Louis the Pious. And the Danish king in Hedeby, in Jutland, usually had a reason to be nice to this missionary because he represented the great power to the south. We think that a number of the people who showed up at this early church in Hedeby were already Christians or inclined to Christianity, and many of them may not have been Scandinavians at all. But nonetheless, there was a church for the first time planted in Denmark. In 829, he returns to the Frankish court, uh, and he gets a summons to go to, uh, out on another mission uh, to Burka in Sweden. Uh, apparently, the activities of uh, St. Angster and Hedeby were carried north by the trade routes uh, to Burka. That's obvious. Merchants always talk. Uh, anyone who's ever dealt with a tourist knows the problem is not getting them to talk, but getting them to shut up. Uh, so undoubtedly, Danish merchants showed up in Burka and said, there's this rather strange guy in, in Hedeby who does all these things with bells, and there's a church. And the King Bjorn, or, or called King Bjorn in the Latin text, so Rex, uh, invite, well, I'd like to find out about this holy man who represents the great Frankish king. And so um, St. Angster was off with another mission uh, on his way to Sweden. They actually get waylaid by some Viking pirates along the way, but they eventually make it there. Again, it is a similar situation that you have in Hedeby. It's all important. Uh, that the missionary has some type of royal support or patronage, or at least the good manners to build a church. And again, it shows how much of this really depended on individual uh, interest and individual patronage. Uh, the king himself, Bjorn, uh, was polite. He was courteous. He really had no interest in embracing this new faith, and we'll get into that later in this lecture. He had a, a subordinate, and his name is um, Herigar in the Latin rendition of his name, and he's described as a praefectus, a prefect, which means he was some kind of market town agent or governor or subordinate to the king. And we think that even this King Bjorn was probably a vassal to the real king, the real Swedish king ruling in Uppsala. So you're pretty far down on the political chain here. You're in a market town with a lot of foreigners. Um, but in any case, um, Herger is uh, quite interested in Christianity for whatever reason, and he allows a church to be set up on his property. That is, his private property. It's probably what we would call a house church. And St. Angster begins to carry out the uh, activities of conversion, and there are some conversions. He eventually departs uh, back to the Carolingian Empire and hands over the running of both of these churches to his successors, to monks who've been selected for the job. He is consecrated Archbishop of Hamburg. And at the time, Hamburg is really a pretty far northern post, outpost, in the Frankish world. Uh, today, it's, of course, one of the great ports of northwestern Germany. But Hamburg was established as a base not only for the power of the Frankish kings, but also as a way of disseminating Christianity, uh, because much of northern Germany at this point is, is very imperfectly uh, converted. 
That appointment proved to be all important because St. Angster, returning from Scandinavia, really made an effort to train native clergy or at least people who would be attuned to getting translators and understanding who these Scandinavian people were. He was not going to send out missionaries who knew nothing about the Scandinavians. Uh, and so there seems to have been an effort to bring in some Scandinavians to either uh, acquire, uh, you know, convince converts, acquire some in the slave trade, and train them to send them back to the homeland so they could preach the message. Um, this appointment is confirmed by a, a papal bull. Uh, the Archbishop of Hamburg is turned into uh, the primate of Scandinavia. That is, the, the, usually he's a German, and the, uh, all of St. Angster's uh, successors were German speakers. Usually the Archbishop of Hamburg is going to claim that I am in charge of all the Scandinavian churches wherever they are um, and whenever they're set up and therefore he is the primate. And this is a position that Hamburg only loses in the 12th century as national churches appear in the Scandinavian kingdoms and the cities of Lund and Nidros and Uppsala eventually take over as the primates for their respective kingdoms. So Angster actually creates an institutional basis in the Frankish world to train clerics to commit the monarchy as well as uh, the Western church to the notion of converting the Scandinavians. And that's probably his most important legacy, um, rather than any numbers he actually converted. The Mishas themselves had a very, very chancy existence, especially after St. Angster left. Uh, he does go back to Burka for a second visit, but so much depended on the individuals. For instance, when your patron in Burka died, um, Hiriga died, and um, the, the church closed down for seven years. Um, when St. Angster returns on his second Swedish mission, he encounters an extremely hostile pagan population. Uh, they don't like the new faith. Uh, they're very skeptical of it. Uh, there are two arguments that are circulated in the town why they shouldn't listen to this Christian holy man. One was that during the years that the Christian church was closed in Burka, Burka did really well in its trade. Well, prosperity, the Vonner. Uh, the ancient gods were very, very pleased with the piety of the traditional pagans. This is an argument that repeatedly appears in all of these conversion stories. Uh, a god is only powerful if he rewards his followers. Uh, the second argument that was circulated in this second mission into Sweden was the fact that uh, one of the pagan leaders uh, claimed to have a vision. He was probably um, um, involved in what is known as the... Um, uh, the Sather, this is a way of summoning up the spirits, and said that he had seen the assembly of gods in Asgard and Valhalla, uh, and it was decided that if anyone should be a, a god, a new god in the city, shouldn't be this foreign Frankish god, wherever he is, this, this Jesus Christ, it should be uh, a previous king, Eric, who was a great warrior and is in Valhalla, he should be giving honors. And this is actually a very traditional way of honoring kings, we think, in Sweden. That is, they are seen as, as um, potential gods or avatars or agents of gods, usually the god Frey, um, that is the fertility god, and we believe that some of these kings were actually worshipped as divinities or minor divinities after their death. So there's a, there, you, you're encountering a very, very ancient culture uh, with very, very clear ideas of what divinity is and uh, the reception of new gods as opposed to the worship of old gods, uh, and this is an, a difficult barrier to overcome. Uh, it also didn't help St. Angster that in 845, a huge Danish fleet showed up and torched Hamburg. Hamburg was burnt to the ground, and the city had to, uh, to be rebuilt later. 
uh, and the, the initial foundations are essentially gone. And eventually what happened is, and you, you, this, this involves St. Angster in something that I think was, was far more daunting than, than trying to convince hostile pagan audiences that they should embrace Christianity and abandon the ancestral gods. Uh, this was dealing with um, lawyers because he got, him, he got himself into an enormous uh, litigation. Uh, when uh, Louis the German, who was ruling in, in the Eastern Frankish Kingdom, said, okay, you've lost Hamburg, but we're going to give you Bremen, and we're going to unite uh, Bremen and Hamburg into a combined archbishopric, which violated all you know, canon law, and uh, then um, ignited a whole series of legal disputes that kept St. Angster busy for over a decade uh, dealing with litigation. As I said, I think any, any sound missionary would much prefer uh, to face uh, potential death at the hands of the pagans than to go into a law court uh, over um, uh, property and the rights of a particular archbishopric. Uh, in the end, he triumphed, and the combination was approved, um, there's a papal bull to that effect. It was an exceptional situation. And so he could continue his work until his death in 865 of essentially preparing for the conversion of, of Scandinavia, not actually converting Scandinavia. And there were two important lessons that his successors drew from his activities. First was the absolute importance of some kind of royal support, um, both uh, in the Carolingian world and in Scandinavia. And as those Scandinavian kingdoms begin to develop, it becomes increasingly important to have the native king on your side. The second important point was having clergy who could reach these Scandinavian peoples who had the, who had the skills of convincing them in the native language or having the interpreters or having the, the sense of miracles and arguments to make the case to go over to the new faith. And this was extremely important. Um, those bishops who ended up going to Scandinavia in the 10th century and 11th century, they come mostly from Germany, some come from England, and I always like to think of them as bishops without portfolio, that is, they don't have any particular diocese. They attach themselves to a king, they act as an advisor to the king, and they ha are drawing on a very long experience of how to argue and negotiate um, uh, the acceptance of the new faith and to take the long view that these conversions are going to take time, that you're dealing with a very, very ancient culture. And that, too, can be attributed um, uh, to the foresight of St. Angster and the organization of those schools to train future missionaries. Well, that gets us to the third part of our uh, discussion here in the uh, initial conversions of Scandinavia, and that is the barriers that were faced. Now, I mentioned uh, several of the most practical ones. One, the first one was language. Um, and by the time of the ninth century, there are very, very few people in Western Europe who can speak Norse. There are probably more Norse who can speak at least a pidgin Western European language because they're engaged in trade. But finding adequate translators to, to bring a message across to the Scandinavians, that, that, that was going to be difficult. And it was only towards the beginning of the 10th century that you probably had people who could begin to do a certain amount of limited preaching. Of course, you can impress crowds without necessarily uh, them understanding your words. You, you, can, you can demonstrate great miracles. You could, uh, by your presence, uh, um, by your retinue, by, by all sorts of other objects. The service, for instance. If you could set up a church with a really impressive service, we're told this, um, this happens in Iceland uh, in 997-1000 when the, um, the German bishop sent there by Olaf Tryggvason. His name is um, Thrangbrand, and he travels around and holds 
holds these masses, that will attract people. You'll attract a crowd, they'll be interested in the service, the dignity of the service. However, that just gets attention. That might convince Scandinavians that, well, this is interesting to follow, this might be a worthy divinity or not, now we want proof. And that proof would have to come in real and hard practical terms. And so a missionary uh, who's acting in the, in, in, in the style of St. Angster might get attention, might get some actual conversions, uh, uh, a few baptisms, but that's not going to convert into any mass conversions, and many of those conversions are going to be very tentative. I mentioned earlier two incidents, one from Ireland and one from the Eastern Baltic, where in both instances, uh, Swedes in the Eastern Baltic and the Danes in Ireland at the, um, at the Battle of Carlington Lau in, um, in 851, they um, converted, quote unquote, that is they embraced the power of St. Patrick or the power of Christ uh, because of victory in battle. Um, and after that, um, didn't necessarily mean they became Christians in any serious way. So preaching, the difficulty of reaching them through um, any sort of uh, you know, argument, that inhibited uh, conversion into the 10th century. Furthermore, it should be considered, and this is a point that's often neglected, that in the 9th and 10th century, it was a bold missionary indeed who thought he could go up to Scandinavia, even if he had the interpreters and the means to impress these people, to convince them to give up their ancestral worship. The simple fact is that most of the Scandinavians would have looked at this missionary, they would have been courteous, they would have been respectful to him because he represented usually an agent of a great king or, 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 or a power to the south, but why should they give this up? Um, denying the worship of their ancestors, denying the gods that had assured prosperity, and flying in the face of all the evidence that, that they had before them that Scandinavians could raid and trade and settle at will. Uh, for the first 250 years, I think it is extremely difficult for any missionary to make an argument that Christ was a successful god when it was obvious that the ancient uh, Scandinavian gods were succeeding um, um, by giving them uh, prosperity and trade and by giving them victory in battle. Uh, there is a very powerful argument made, especially on the development of the cult of Odin, that Odin was originally a god not very important in the Germanic pantheon. And that can be borne out by his rather subordinate role uh, in both uh, Anglo-Saxon England and in Germany, with little information we have. And Odin would be known as Woden in Anglo-Saxon England or Wotan in Germany. And Odin is actually, that's one of those syncopated forms that emerges in the 8th century. Odin acquires his importance probably late in the Roman age um, as more and more of these warrior castes emerge. And it's really the Scandinavians who make Odin their primary war god. Before Odin it was Tyr, or, or, he's, or he's sometimes known as uh, Tuias or Tu, uh, from which we get the name Tuesday in, in English, uh, honoring that particular god. This is a god who puts his hand in the, um, uh, the mouth of the wolf uh, Fenner in order to bind him and loses his right hand. Uh, Odin is a god of the Viking Age in many ways. Not only does he represent the Viking Age, but he's, he is venerated uh, and gains importance in the Viking Age. And that is because of all the success in battle, uh, the dedications to him, probably the construction of more elaborate temples, um, and, his, and the celebration in Odin in all of the verse. 
And so a missionary was, 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 had a very, very tough job in the 9th and 10th century convincing these people that the ancestral gods were demons and they should be cast down and that the new power of the Christian God is what should be accepted. And that meant you had to have powerful arguments, miracles, to convince these Scandinavians to renounce their ancient gods. And these came in different forms. Uh, one of the most famous ones is reported um, around 960-965 when King Harold uh, Bluetooth of Denmark, who's already inclining to Christianity, gives the final seal of approval. And that is a German missionary known as St. Papo, who has been attempting to preach in Denmark, hoping to go to Sweden and, re and um, repeat the exploits of, of um, St. Angster, undergoes what is known as the ordeal of fire. That is, he carries this uh, heated iron and then uh, he's given a certain amount of time to see if the wounds will heal, heal clear, and sure enough, they do. And that type of miracle, that'll convince a king. And so uh, King uh, Harold Bluetooth uh, embraces Christ as his God, makes him the God of the Danish monarchy, and begins to set up churches and promote the new faith. That is the type of attention that is necessary, and the key ingredient is this, in this equation is you win over a powerful king a great king who is now devoted to this Christian God as his personal God, the Lord of hosts, a powerful God who can deliver victory, who can protect his followers, who can perform miracles. There's other such stories about this. Um, the conversion of St. Olaf Tryggvason, who becomes the first really serious Christian king in Norway uh, from 995 to 1000. That occurs in England, and that is a, that is a miracle um, that's told about the conversion, which associates the conversion with um, a, a case of wisdom. Uh, there's a hermit in England. This is actually a, a tale that goes back to the 6th century AD, and this is the Norse update of it. We don't know if it's true or not. It, my attitude is it ought to be. But in any case, Olaf Tryggvason is curious about the Christian God, sends one of his retainers to, uh, dressed up as the, as the sea king, as Olaf, to test to see how true this hermit is, this Christian hermit. And he, he sees the servant. He says, you're not the king. I'm not going to talk to you. And eventually Olaf appears uh, after he tries to dupe uh, the hermit in making a false prophecy or prediction. And as soon as the hermit sees the king, he says, yes, you are the king. And I predict that uh, should you follow the right path, you will uh, win great victories. Uh, well, Olaf is impressed. Uh, he embraces Christ, whatever that means, probably means his personal God. And somewhere um, in the late you know, early 990s, he converts to Christianity. When he gets back to Norway, he's convinced that this prophecy is true. And with each victory he wins that gives him the throne of Norway, he's more and more convinced. Now, kings who are won over to the new faith in this fashion, they will take the stern measures necessary to break the power of the pagan cults. In the case of St. Olaf, he spared no zeal or expense in doing that. He is the first Norwegian king we really know uh, went after cult statues, that he cast down the statues as idols. Uh, he got angry at a whole bunch of sorcerers and bounded them up and drowned them um, at high tide on Western Norway, on the shores of Western Norway. Actually, he had a reason for doing that. He, he claimed that they were conjuring up the sea storms that were giving him so much trouble in defeating his pagan foes. So he's essentially stripping his opponents of their supernatural gods before he... Um, went in and, and did in the pagan uh, uh, mortal foes. And there are a number of reports of these types of actions taken out, conducted 
uh, by kings such as Harald Bluetooth, Sven Fjorkbeard in Denmark, uh, Olaf Tryggvason, and later St. Olaf in Norway. And it is only when you win these kings over to the message and you have these bishops who are capable of uh, explaining to these kings the message, are you going to get real conversion? That is, people are going to look at a powerful king, uh, a king such as Olaf Tryggvason, a king of St. Olaf, um, especially the great naval victory of St. Olaf, the Battle of Nays, uh, Yar, uh, that is proof of the power of the Christian God. But this only comes at the very beginning of the 11th century and is closely tied with that other important development in the Viking Age, and that is the emergence of the great sea kings and professional armies that can lead to the creation of territorial kingdoms. Lecture 28, Formation of the Kingdom of Denmark. In this lecture, I plan to deal with the formation of the Kingdom of, kingdom of Denmark, that is the first of the three Scandinavian kingdoms that come out of the Viking Age. And it's a bit arbitrary in selecting Denmark over Norway. Norway actually was unified earlier by King Harald Feinherr, operating at the end of the ninth century. Denmark is about a half a generation later, and that's due to the activities, activities of Gorm the Old, who in part was following Harald Feinherr. Uh, nonetheless, the reason why I select Denmark first is that Denmark, uh, being the most populous of the Scandinavian kingdoms, uh, the area with the, the greatest arable uh, and the area that is in closest contact with Germany and England, uh, gives us the best documentation. We're not depending just on Scandinavian sources. We have West European sources. We have later chronicles from Denmark. Uh, and also, uh, Denmark shows some important features that the other Scandinavian kingdoms do not, uh, especially the interplay with the Holy Roman Empire. And Denmark becomes the basis for a Scandinavian conquest of England and a unification of Scandinavia briefly in the reign of King Canute, his great so-called North Sea Empire. So while not the first, it in some ways is the most impressive of the kingdoms to emerge. And as we shall see in this lecture, the history of Denmark is closely intertwined with that of Norway. And so when we finish with Denmark in the next several lectures, we will shift to Norway and then look at Sweden last. The situation in Sweden is different and distinct in certain ways. So first, let's look at what were the unusual pressures working on Denmark and what do we know about this, the sources. Then I want to uh, examine the actual emergence of the Danish kingdom which in some ways was a surprise based on previous Danish history as far as we can tell from archaeology and legend uh, where uh, the royal dynasty came from, that is Denmark would be unified uh, from kings operating in the peninsula of Jutland, not from the island of Zeeland, not from the uh, traditional uh, area where the great legendary heroes were associated. And finally, I need to stress the uh, importance of the activities of three kings, uh, Gorm the Old, uh, his son, Harold Bluetooth, and uh, the grandson of uh, Gorm, uh, Sven Fjorkbeard, Forkbeard, 
All three of these kings were essentially Viking sea kings. Each of them made significant contributions to the emergence of the Danish kingdom. And the Danish kingdom evolves uh, far more directly and successfully uh, than its counterpart in Norway, where the uh, move from independent communities, jarls, and petty dynasts to a kingdom is much more uh, erratic and, uh, and, and far less um, uh, clear in its development. So let's start first with the uh, situation in Denmark. What, what were the forces leading to the formation of this kingdom, first in Jutland and then to the entire Danish kingdom? And I stress, this is Denmark in its medieval expression. That is, it includes those sections of southern Sweden and of the entire Jutland Peninsula. Well, first, of course, there were sea kings, there were professional Vikings, the importance of Hedeby and the finances are all there. But the Danish kings, especially in the 10th century, were under a pressure that the other Scandinavian kings did not face, or would-be Scandinavian kings. And that was the threat from Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, the eastern half of the Frankish kingdom, which in the early 10th century was constituted uh, as the successor of the empire of Charlemagne. Uh, and that started with a change of dynasty. The election of the Duke of Saxony, uh, Henry the Fowler, who established a new line of kings in Germany who also were usually elected as Holy Roman Emperor, that is, successor uh, to the position that Charlemagne had created. Those, um, they're very often known as Saxon or Ottonian kings. The most important in this lecture will be King Otto I, or the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. Uh, and their successors, the Salian kings, which is a related dynasty, they saw themselves as the heir to the Carolingian tradition of expanding the Christian world, that is, conquest and conversion. Now, they directed many of their efforts in Eastern Europe against Bohemia, against the Slavs uh, in areas like Poland, but Denmark was also on the menu. And uh, Denmark could have ended up being conquered and incorporated into the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire the way Bohemia was and the way Hungary almost was. Uh, second, the German kings were also the patrons to the archbishops of uh, Hamburg-Bremen, that is the Episcopal institutions, that whole tradition of missionary work that had been set up uh, by St. Angster, and they very much saw themselves as Christian kings, so it wasn't just a matter of political control of the northern and eastern areas or, or the frontier zones of their core Christian kingdom, it was also a matter of promoting the faith. And that pressure forced the Danes to organize in a way that the Norwegian and Swedish kings did not have to do. And that is, that is a point that um, uh, is a very, very significant difference and probably accounts for the rapidity in which the Danish kings not only adopted Christianity but developed Episcopal institutions. They had to forge an effective monarchy uh, earlier uh, than their counterparts in Norway and Sweden because there was a matter of independence at stake. We do have excellent sources on the Danes compared to uh, the other two kingdoms. Our information on Sweden is by far the least informative. Uh, and Norway, we have pretty good information, particularly depending on the works of Snorre Sturluson. But we have a number of Latin chronicles, especially the account of Saxo Grammaticus, who talks about this period. Uh, the marvelous saga of the Yom's Vikings. And the Yom's Vikings are a professional group of warriors. Vikings operating in the Baltic Sea, legendary figures associated with Harold Bluetooth and Sven Fjorkbeard, and this is a saga written in Iceland in the 13th century, and we believe that Jomsborg, that is the fortified Viking camp or base, 
would have resembled very much those military camps I discussed earlier, such as Trelleborg, and is probably to be found near the city of Wolin, that is that site excavated at the mouth of the Oder, um, which would have been the homeland of the Wends, the Slavic people living on the southern shore of the Baltic. And these were professional Vikings who were loosely in alliance with the Danish kings and represented the type of companies that could be hired or you could persuade by alliance and the promise of uh, plunder uh, to serve the interests of the monarchy. And while the saga itself is very, very romantic, and, and really the uh, King Sven Forkbeard comes off as an all-time jerk in the, uh, <laughs> in the saga and really owes his throne to various heroes of the Yom's uh, Vikings, uh, nonetheless, uh, these companies did exist, and even if the saga is largely legendary, it gives us sense, some sense of the type of military companies that were raised um, to impose royal authority in Denmark. There is also a very peculiar saga on King Canute, which is uh, a late work and actually is more than King Canute, and then we have German accounts, that is, accounts from the Holy Roman Empire. So we're in a particularly good position in Denmark. We have Norwegian, we have Danish. Uh, Danish Christian accounts, of course, uh, but we also have German accounts. They're very curious about the, uh, uh, the Danes, and these are chronicles written by uh, Christian monks in Germany, in Latin. Well, at the onset of the Viking Age, I mentioned that there were many kings in Denmark, but no king of Denmark. If we go back and recollect uh, the earlier lecture discussing the legendary uh, kingdoms of Scandinavia in the Age of Migrations, and I made the point that maybe in embryo you saw the future kingdoms of Sweden, Denmark, and Norway in these poems. If you took those legends and you took the archaeological evidence of the 5th and 6th and 7th centuries, you would assume that some kind of political power would emerge on the island of Zeeland, or Zeeland as we say in English. That is the belts and southern Sweden, Skane, traditionally part of the Danish kingdom. This is where the action was through most of Danish history. This is where the great Hall of Lydar was located, the legendary King Rolf Kraki, who uh, lived sometime in the later 6th century. We have archaeological evidence pointing to clearly royal centers and great sanctuaries. Furthermore, this is where most of the arable land was. And uh, traditionally, the heart of the Danish kingdom is on Zeeland and up until 1658 also on those Swedish provinces. Jutland, on the other hand, was very loosely attached. It was divided into many competing kings. At the opening of the Viking Age, we hear of a number of kings. It's very difficult to assign any realm to any particular king. And the Franks don't help the matter because they're usually very vague about who's ruling Denmark or, or Normania or Northland. They're very, very vague on their geography. Well, it seems there were two important changes that resulted in the unexpected emergence of the Danish monarchy on Jutland rather than in the islands. One is that the legends preserve the great battle, the final battle, at the Hall of Ladar, uh, that is the Harawat in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, where King Rolf Kraki, deserted by Odin and his champions, were overcome by a rival king. This is a cousin um, usually associated with the island of Olan, the Swedish island. His name is uh, Jovard, and his, his wife is Skuld. She's named after one of the norms. She's one of these uh, witch queens, and they uh, conjure up all sorts of beasts and demons and, and anti-heroes. And Rolf Kraki and his heroes go down in a great battle. Uh, they're all destined to reach Valhalla. Uh, that great epic battle was remembered in a poem known as the Bjarkamal, and that poem was recited uh, actually by St. Olaf's soldiers 
uh, his uh, St. Olaf, the Christian king of Norway, going into his final battle at Stickelstad on July 29th, uh, uh, 1030. I mean, he's, he's psyching up his, mostly his Swedish warriors, many of them, I suspect, pagans, by reciting this ancient poem of Rolf Kraki. Um, there is very little information in memory about any kind of continuous kings after the death of Rolf Kraki. That Skjöldungar uh, dynasty, the Skjöldung dynasty, apparently dies out. Uh, and in the Viking Age, the development of the market town at Hedeby and the trade routes with the Carolingian Empire shifts the axis of wealth and population over to Jutland from the islands. And that occurred in the 9th and 10th century, and that is why we begin to hear of the sea kings, is how I would prefer to call them, uh, kings without portfolio in a sense. They were not without territory. They had the power to build a hall. And in the 9th and early 10th century, there were a series of competing kings in Jutland, and the reason they were there is because the trade went through there and because many of the Viking uh, companies were being recruited and were raiding into England and the Carolingian Empire. And so Jutland probably profited um, the most in what is to become the Danish kingdom uh, during the early Viking Age. And that seems to be borne out by the archaeology as well as by the Frankish sources. We have the construction of the Danverker, that defensive system to cut Jutland off, clearly conducted by a king ruling in Hedeby who wanted to protect his southern frontier against the Carolingian kings. And the later kings who come to rule all of Denmark, the so-called Yelling dynasty, after their first capital at Yelling in Jutland, and that would be Gorm the Old and Harold uh, Bluetooth, extend those fortifications in a major building program, probably dating from the 950s and 960s. So Jutland becomes the center of the political power in Denmark. That political power coalesces into a kingdom in the early 10th century uh, for two reasons. First, King Harold Finehair was pulling off the first unification of Norway through sea power, and that was an example and something that must be kept in mind throughout the 10th and 11th century. The Danish kings always seemed to have this jealousy of their Norwegian counterparts and always had a sense that at least the southern sections of Norway should be part of that kingdom of Denmark. And so the success of Harald Fine here spurred on Danish sea kings to recreate in Denmark what Harald was doing in Norway. The second was that outside pressure I mentioned earlier. The Holy Roman Emperor at the time was Henry, uh, Henry I, Henry the Fowler, and in 934, I believe, he invades Denmark, he breaches the Danverka, marches into Denmark, and receives submissions from different kings, particularly a king named Gnupa in Hedeby, and attempts to impose Christianity and to impose German authority in the peninsula. And the ultimate idea is to convert this area and somehow attach it to the Holy Roman Empire. Well, that invasion in tandem with the example of Harold Fine here, galvanizes a very uh, successful sea king known as Gorm the Old, son of Hardicanute, or Harthacanute as we usually anglicize it, who's essentially the first Canute in the dynastic charts, although he really wasn't a king. Uh, Gorm the Old to uh, uh, move into Jutland and eliminate the German influence, and that includes deposing Gnupa, taking over uh, Hedeby, and opposing his authority throughout Jutland and ruling as king. He was ardently pagan. He makes an effort to root out any sort of German missionary influence uh, going on in the kingdom, which had followed with that invasion by Henry I. He probably starts the fortification of the Danverker and furthermore starts raiding along the frontiers. It is he who establishes a royal capital at Yelling, which is on the in eastern central Jutland today, and creates the first 
effective kingdom in Denmark. He is remembered in legend uh, quite favorably, particularly in the Yom's Viking saga, unlike his son and grandson, who are not very favorably remembered. And it was this move to create a kingdom uh, with the um, Idar River as its southern border that prompted later German emperors to keep coming into Denmark, such as uh, Henry the Fowler returned in a brief expedition, his son Otto I, and his grandson Otto II. Gorm the Old ruled uh, Jutland, but he looked to the legendary kings of Zeeland as his model, and he would like to think of himself as the successor of the Skjöldingar. And that becomes an important point in the Danish political mythology, and that eventually culminates in the Latin mythical history, in effect, the Gesta Donorum of Saxo Grammaticus, where the yelling kings try to align themselves with all those legends and traditions going back to the 6th century and say, you know, we really are somehow descended from Rolf Kroki. Who really knows? I mean, you, know, you can invent any kind of genealogy back there if you wish. Now, um, Gorm's son, Harold Bluetooth, the second of uh, the Yelling dynasty, he makes uh, several important decisions. And this really secures the future of the Danish kingdom. I mentioned in a previous lecture that he was convinced to convert to Christianity by a miracle, by Saint Papa, or Papa as he's sometimes known uh, in the Latin Chronicles, that the saint had carried this uh, you know, heated iron and had uh, passed the ordeal of fire. And I don't ha have any doubt that that miracle had been carried out uh, sometime in the early 960s, and that was the final act of, of um, converting Harold Bluetooth. But Harold uh, Bluetooth, um, just as, say, Rolf, the uh, Count of Normandy, or Vladimir, the Prince of Kiev, Harold Bluetooth was a savvy ruler and understood the power of institutional Christianity. There were missionaries that kept coming into Denmark, uh, being sent in by the bishops of Hamburg-Bremen, and he saw two possible advantages to converting to Christianity. First, it would give him the kind of staff necessary to build monarchical institutions. That is, you could start collecting taxes, they have this writing, all of those advantages. The second point, by converting to Christianity and becoming a legitimate Christian king, that meant hands off for the German emperor. That is, the German emperor in the south would have to attack Denmark with a really good cause. It was just not a matter of going to war with the heathen and carrying out the kind of conquest that Charlemagne did of the Saxons. And I think both of those motives, were, as, as well as his conviction that the Christian God was powerful, were behind that conversion and transformation of Jutland from a regional kingdom into a kingdom of Denmark. Because shortly after his conversion, uh, Harold Bluetooth goes on to impose his authority in the Danish islands and in southern Sweden. That is, he collects the various lands that become uh, medieval Denmark, the Kingdom of Denmark. And by the time he, well, he's actually driven out of his kingdom in 986 by his son Sven Forkbeard. But by the time he is, um, and he dies in exile in 987, by the time of his death, there is a Kingdom of Denmark. There is a more or less territorial notion of what Denmark should be. Now, Harold made several important uh, decisions in doing this. He um, uh, inherited the ancestral capital at Yelling, where his father was buried, and his father had raised a great rune stone. Uh, and that rune stone reports King Gorm uh, set up this memorial to his wife, 
Thierry, and Thierry is the queen um, remembered in legend. This is uh, She may have actually been a Wendish, that is a Slavic princess for all we know. Uh, there's several accounts on this lady's origin. And the runestone's difficult to tr uh, translate. Uh, sometimes the phrase um, is taken as restore of Denmark with Gorm. Sometimes it means ornament of Denmark. It could be with the queen. I think probably the second translation is closer to it. Uh, and Yelling had these two great tumuli, mounds, one for the king, one for the queen, with the rune stones, and what it was was a reproduction of the great sanctuaries and royal centers of Lydar described in the sagas. That is, Yelling was going to be the successor to Lydar of Rolf Kraki. Well, Harold Bluetooth, who is now a Christian king, quite concerned about uh, his, um, his predecessors, actually builds a church, which is still there, between the two royal mounds, and erects his own rune stone. And in this rune stone, Harold notes that Harold, King Harold ordered this monument to be made in memory of his father, Gorm, and his mother, Thire, uh, the Harold who won all of Denmark and Norway for himself and made the Danes Christians. A very, very great boast indeed, but it's actually borne out in the literature and the archaeology quite well. Yelling is turned into a Christian center. Uh, the rune stone of King Harold Bluetooth shows a scene of crucifixion and actually is taken as uh, the epitome of a certain type of ornamental style that begins to become popular in Scandinavia. He also builds a new capital at Roskilde on the island of Zeeland. That is, he transfers his power to the Danish island, and that has significance in two ways. One, that's where most of your arable is, uh, the important sea lanes going through the Sund, that is the channel between Zeeland and southern Sweden, but also he is staking out a claim to that legacy going back to Rolf Kraki. Roskilde is the Christian version of the ancient legendary hall of Lydor or Herod. He also is the man responsible for uh, the fortifications of the Danvrika and building those great camps that we have at Trelleborg, um, uh, Fierkot, Augersburg, and, and Nonabakken, uh, which are four excavated camps, uh, two in Jutland, uh, one on the island of Finn or Funen, and the other on the island of Zeeland. These are professional camps, very similar to the uh, society described in the Saga of the Yom's Vikings, and this, um, these camps together may have housed as many as 12,000 warriors. Certainly the camps can accommodate two to 3,000 warriors, and they were built uh, as part of his effort to put Denmark under his control. He uh, was accepted by the Dean, at least the Danes of Jutland. Uh, his kingship was ratified at the Thing in Viborg, which is in northern Jutland, which was probably an early center. He won over the Jarls and sub-kings of Denmark by proving that he was a charismatic sea king, and it's under Harold's direction that probably a number of Viking companies operate as Vikings overseas and share the spoils with the king. He also saw the Norwegian kings as, as threats, particularly the second son of Harold Finehair, that is King Hakon, uh, known as King Hakon the Good, who ruled approximately from 936 to 960 or 961. And Hakon was personally a Christian, but, you know, he, he was accepted by Odin in Valhalla. And there's actually a poem written that, you know, he had been reared in England and had kind of converted to Christianity, but he always, he always paid homage to the old gods and, and a warrior that great. There's always a place, always a seat in Valhalla for a good warrior. And, and the later story was, as well, Hakon in the end actually joined Odin. But Hakon had been a very successful king in Norway, and that had uh, aroused the envy 
of King Harold Bluetooth and then uh, Harold's uh, sister and her name was uh, Gunhild and she had been married to Hacken's brother Eric the Bloodaxe, the short-lived King of York who was one of the nastiest of the sons of Harold Finehair and had been run out by his subjects. And Eric Bloodaxe had a number of sons uh, by this Danish wife, Gunhild. And Gunhild uh, and her sons um, went to the Danish court and were doing everything in their power to undermine Hacken and his descendants. Uh, and so um, eventually this climaxed in a, Vic uh, a Danish attack on Norway uh, in 960. The battle actually went against the Danes. It's a great naval battle that's celebrated in, 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 in verse. Uh, but Hacken was mortally wounded. And so um, that meant uh, either in 960 or 961 that a new king was imposed in, in Norway. And that was a man named Harold Greycloak. And Harold Greycloak was the oldest son of, of Eric Bloodaxe and therefore related to the Danish family. And so what happened is uh, the new Danish king at this point um, uh, was able to rule uh, southern Norway through this sort of client arrangement with the Norwegian king. And this is a very common policy. Uh, Harold Bluetooth and his son Sven Forkbeard both tried to make an arrangement in Norway where the Norwegians somehow would rule as their subjects. Harold Greycloak uh, did not take well to being a client king and eventually he was overthrown in 970 uh, by a combination of Norwegian exiles and a Danish fleet and the arrangement made uh, from 970 on was that southern Norway the areas around Vestfold and the Oslo Ford, Fjord were actually incorporated into the Danish kingdom, whereas the northern and western districts were ruled by a great family, um, uh, uh, Hacken, uh, the family of uh, Jarl Hacken, that is Earl Hacken, who ruled in Trondheim as a vassal to Harold Bluetooth. Uh, and and that, that is reported in the Great Runestone. And so at um, the time of his death, or actually his deposition in 986, uh, Harold Bluetooth had created a kingdom that encompassed not only Denmark, but the southern areas of Norway, those two crucial zones, um, the area of the Viken plus uh, probably the Uplands, which are now the Danish kingdom. And then the rest of Norway was ruled by a very ardent pagan Jarl by the name of Hakon, who was independent in many ways, but owed his, uh, his authority to the Danish king. And this kingdom could have potentially evolved into the Danish kingdom. For as I said, those southern areas of Norway were long tied by blood and kinship and trade with Denmark. Well, Harold Bluetooth uh, had no sons except for one surviving son uh, by a serving girl. His name was uh, Sven Forkbeard. And Harold had more or less ignored his son. And we have accounts that uh, Harold um, finally recognized Sven when Sven grew of age, uh, appeared at the court and demanded some sort of royal heritage. He was technically illegitimate. It was uh, not even a marriage, even by um, the, um, the pagan legal uh, traditions uh, in the 10th century. And there's this marvelous exchange where uh, King, King Harold looks at Sven, who's at this point around 15 or 16, maybe 18 years old, and says, yeah, you've got to be my son because I recognize your mother in you, which means uh, you're either a fool or a simpleton. And, uh, and Sven responds, 
Well, I guess you, uh, you do recognize my mother in me, and I would that you had given me a nobler mother, but since you gave me the mother you did, uh, she was more than sufficient, and by the way, give me some ships or I'm going to harry your kingdom out of existence. And this is not ideal father-son relations. Uh, Harold uh, faced not only his son Sven, but also Sven was apparently backed by the Oms Vikings and various sea kings. And in a very brief civil war in 986-987, uh, Harold Bluetooth was driven from his throne. He took refuge among the, the Wends, that is the Slavic peoples of... Um, what is now uh, the, sh the Baltic shores of uh, Germany and, and Poland, and died in exile, and Sven uh, stayed on his throne. Sven Forkbeard is a colorful figure. Uh, the traditions are rather hostile to him, uh, not only the Scandinavian traditions, but as we shall see, also the English traditions. He came to the throne at a very critical point. Uh, as much as Gorm the Old and um, Harold Bluetooth had laid the foundations of a Danish kingdom, it still depended very much on the personality of the king. And here Sven was not nearly the warrior of either his dad or his granddad. He is the king, and I, I mentioned this in connection with an, uh, an earlier lecture, that convinced the Oms Vikings in his great uh, toast at uh, Roskilde uh, to combine their fleets with the Danish fleets to attack Norway. Uh, at his accession, Sven Forkbeard discovered that Jarl Hakon was not particularly impressed uh, by the Danish king and ceased to pay any attention to Danish directors. And sometime shortly after his accession, probably around 988, um, a Danish Jomes Vikings uh, fleet uh, attacked Norway and uh, it really blundered into an enormous Norwegian fleet in the great um, battle of uh, Jorungavag or Jorunga Bay uh, in western Norway and it's again uh, as all Norwegians uh, seek not only did uh, Hacken have the, be the better ships and the better archers he also had the better poets uh, he had all sorts of Icelanders and so the victory was hailed as a great victory and a real humiliation for Sven and that defeat early in his reign really put Sven behind the political eight ball uh, for the next 15 years. Uh, he had to battle uh, the, kings, the then uh, king of Sweden, a fellow by the name of Eric the Victorious, the uh, pagan king of, of, of Uppsala and Sigtuna, who had the favor of Odin, by the way. And there's some great stories about how Eric could invoke, uh, invoke Odin on the battlefield and massacre his enemies. Uh, he also faced, um, eventually, the first really effective Christian king in Norway, that's Olaf Tryggvason, who comes to the throne in 995 and rules to 1000. And really up to the year 1000, Sven's position and the whole position of the Kingdom of Denmark was in jeopardy. We know, for instance, that those fortresses built by his father were abandoned, just given up. Probably Sven didn't have the money uh, uh, to support them. Uh, second, there's reports that Sven had to go overseas and act as a Viking in England for several years. Uh, that is a point that is still disputed. But in 1000, with the death of Olaf um, Tryggvason in Norway, uh, Sven is able to return to Denmark and begin to consolidate his position in the kingdom. And then a wonderful opportunity opens up for him. In England, where there had been renewed Viking raids starting in the late 10th century, probably starting in the 970s and 980s. Uh, and these were largely Danish Vikings and some uh, Norwegians from southwestern Norway. The Vikings who had been raiding England since at least the nine, 90s and had been exacting enormous number of Dangeld payments finally annoyed the then ruling king of England. His name was Ethelred II or is often known as Ethelred the Unready. That means he could not hold his council. He was a minor when he came to the throne. 
um, on St. Bryce's Day in the year 1002, uh, and that would be the equivalent of November 13, 1002, Ethelred II had had it with the Danes and their raids. And he ordered the arrest and execution of all Danes in England, and these would be the recent Vikings, including, it happened, a, a sister of King Sven Forkbeard. Well, that action resulted in Sven declaring war on the English king, mobilizing the Viking fleets, and this, this act of you know, avenging this honor couldn't have been at a more ideal point. Sven had just consolidated his control in Denmark. His leading rivals in Norway and Sweden had been knocked out of the running, and he had Viking longships and warriors to spare. And in 1003, Sven and his son and future successor, Canute, uh, carry out raids in England, and these raids will result not only in the conquest of England, all of England, uh, by the Danes, but also give Canute, the son and successor of Sven, the institutions and money to turn Denmark into a Christian kingdom. Lecture 29, Canute the Great. In this lecture, I plan to look at the career and the impact of the Danish king, Canute the Great. Uh, he actually was also king of uh, England and for a short time king of Norway and exercised a hegemony over Sweden. Uh, Canute, uh, sometimes known as Canute the Old in the um, Norse tradition, uh, is uh, a king of European importance. And in some ways, he marks a new point in the Viking Age. He forges, essentially, the territorial kingdom of Denmark, at least in its institutions. And in part, he's able to do this because he was also king of England. He could draw upon the resources, that is, financial as well as the personnel, uh, the talent, uh, to create a kingdom of Denmark. He was less successful in Norway, and actually his policies in Norway, in many ways, uh, contributed to the demise of his, uh, his kingdom. So by the time of his death in 1035, Canute ruled a North Sea Empire, as it's sometimes called, uh, that uh, included England, Norway, Denmark, and a, a, a hegemony or some kind of uh, personal domination over the kings of Sweden. It was an impressive looking state. In some ways it looked like the realization of uh, political uh, developments uh, since the 10th century, that is the Scandinavian homeland coming together in a, a Christian kingdom under a great European style uh, king, a king who in many ways saw himself as the heir of Charlemagne or the Charlemagne of the North. And yet, uh, shortly after his death, uh, the kingdom was already falling apart. In the case of Norway, uh, Canute lost control over Norway in the very final months of his life. Well, the career of King Canute excites a lot of imagination, a lot of study. Uh, much of it is concentrated on his career in England. And what I plan to do in this lecture is to first look at uh, Canute's uh, early career, his conquest of England. Uh, he accompanied his father, Sven Forkbeard, uh, in the effort to, to take over England. And that was the conquest initiated back in 1002 uh, when King Ethelred II of England had carried out this massacre of uh, Danes who were in England, and that prompted Sven Forkbeard to declare war on the English king. Uh, 
then I want to examine Canute and his career as a king, not just of England, as very often he's treated, but as a king of this sort of North Sea empire. And the argument that we're going to make in this lecture, that for all of the importance of the English kingdom in this North Sea empire, or North Sea super kingdom, if you will, uh, Canute was very traditional and very, very Scandinavian in his approach to government. And in many ways, he drew upon the policies of his dad, that is Sven Forkbeard, as well as Harold Bluetooth, uh, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, Gorm the Old. And so Canute is better understood as a Scandinavian king uh, ruling this wide-flung empire uh, who had aspirations to become a European-style figure like Charlemagne, rather than looking at him as an English king, or as... Um, Many a textbook might state, uh, at least in England, that Canute was uh, born a Viking, sea king, and died an English monarch. And, and there's, there's a reason to test this theory, this image that is very often used to understand him. And finally, I want to conclude this lecture with some thoughts about why this empire didn't stay together. It is easy to dismiss it as a, um, uh, an ambitious state that really had no foundations other than the charismatic King Canute and his veteran warriors and fleet. Uh, and furthermore, that the arrangements for the succession uh, were really flawed. As I noted, in the case of Norway, uh, Canute had lost control of Norway in the final months of his year, his, uh, of his life. That is in the year 1035. Uh, nonetheless, uh, for contemporaries, uh, people living in the first half of the 11th century, there was some reason to believe that this unification of Scandinavia with England uh, had a certain amount of logic to it, that there were some institutional uh, bases for this, uh, as well as trade connections uh, and, uh, and economic ties, that uh, there's, there's no reason to simply assume that this kingdom was doomed from its start. And as we shall see in the uh, upcoming lecture, uh, the sequel to this lecture, uh, there was a very long war of succession over who should have the right to rule this kingdom, this, this empire of Canute. Uh, and that is not decided until the battles of 1066, when it's clear that partition is going to be the result, not a unitary state or some, side, some sort of uh, related set of kingdoms ruled by a single family. That is, it's a dynastic union of England and the Scandinavian kingdoms. So it was by no means foreordained that Canute's empire was, was going to break up. Well, let's look at the first part of this lecture, and that is the career of King Canute and who this remarkable ruler was. Uh, Canute, uh, in some ways, can simply be seen as the most successful of sea kings that we've ever uh, seen in the Viking Age. A man who ended up uh, ruling three kingdoms and in many ways um, being treated as a great Christian monarch who twice visited Rome, who was accepted as the equal of the Holy Roman Emperor, that is the emperor ruling in Germany, who also had the crown of Holy Roman Emperor going back to Charlemagne, uh, who as a European-wide figure uh, 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 really cast in the shadow many of his contemporaries. Um, yet it has to be kept in mind that he remained first and foremost a Scandinavian, uh, a speaker of uh, the Danish tongue, and above all, he gained a great deal from his father, Sven Forkbeard. And it's important to stress that in contrast to Sven's relationship to his father, Harold Bluetooth, uh, Sven Forkbeard never had a doubt that Canute was going to be his heir. 
Uh, Knut was the son of a dy uh, dynastic marriage with a Polish princess, and it was part of a long-term Danish policy to secure alliances with the Slavic peoples, the Wends, the people uh, dwelling on the um, southern shore of the Baltic, that would today be the shores of uh, Germany and Poland, uh, at the mouth of the Oder River, also with the princes of Poland, because these Slavic rulers were often seen as potential allies against the common enemy, uh, the, the German king, the Holy Roman Emperor. In addition, uh, Knut uh, was taken on campaign and, uh, and, and fought uh, in England uh, with his father, and there was no doubt when his father suddenly died early in 1014, and Knut was actually in Scandinavia raising fresh forces, uh, the Danish army immediately acclaimed Knut king. Uh, there was no doubt that he was the next in line. And so from the start, uh, Knut, uh, probably from the age of 15 on, and we're not quite sure when he was born, sometime in the mid to late 990s, uh, was reared as the, as the royal successor um, uh, to his father. Now, Stien, in 1003, uh, embarked with a great fleet uh, to begin the conquest of England. And that expedition is still debated whether Sven intended to simply uh, exact vengeance for the massacre on St. Bryce's Day, or he had in the back of his mind a real conquest. At the very least, in my opinion, Sven saw the uh, campaigns in England as a way to gain revenues and booty to support the types of royal fleets and warriors necessary to assert his authority in Scandinavia. And as I mentioned, uh, from the uh, beginning of his reign with that defeat, that early naval defeat at Jorungavag uh, back around 987-988, uh, Sven had been behind the political eight ball. He sent his great Jarls uh, to command the armies uh, in later expeditions. These were um, earls uh, in, in the English tradition. They included a man named Torre, or Tostig, as he was called in Old English, and above all, Thorkel the Tall, who was a famous commander associated with the Jones Vikings, the Jones Vikings, uh, that professional company uh, living at the mouth of the Oder in their fortified camp and celebrated in Saga. And um, they made a fair amount of headway in England, exacting great payments of Dangald and winning over uh, the former Danlaw areas, particularly the regions around York and the five boroughs. And so uh, by uh, 1013, when Canute uh, followed his father Sven on the final campaign to England, there had already been made uh, considerable progress in the conquest of England. Most of the former Danlaw areas had gone over to uh, the Danes, were cooperating, and there were already signs that um, uh, great English earls, uh, that is, uh, regional figures appointed by uh, the West Kings, uh, the West Saxon Kings, were beginning to open negotiations with the potential Danish conqueror. In 1013, Sven's army immediately scored some important successes, but I, as I noted, early in the year he dies suddenly. Uh, in the next year, in 1014. In February 1014, Sven dies. Uh, Canute at that point had gone back to uh, Scandinavia. He was raising forces. He's acclaimed king. He, he makes an arrangement with his younger half-brother, Harold, who rules in Denmark while Canute goes back to take charge of the army. When Canute arrives in England, he finds a changed situation. The very feckless king, Ethelred the Unready, the Unready, as he's often uh, called, which means he couldn't hold his council. Uh, Ethelred II had come to the throne back in 978. 
uh, had been guided by ministers through much of his early reign and really asserted himself in 1002 by ordering the massacre. Uh, his name, Ethelred, or Ethelred in Anglo-Saxon means noble counsel, noble advice, and Unred meaning no counsel, uh, was a title given to him which was mocking his uh, vacillating nature, that is, noble counsel of no counsel, king is what we have. And he was unpopular for a number of reasons. He was associated with the murder that was ordered on his predecessor, his half-brother Edward the Martyr. Uh, he was unpopular in certain church circles. And as I noted in an earlier lecture, um, Ethelred lost the cooperation of the landed classes in northern England, the Anglo-Danish Norman classes, who went over to Sven and then went over to Canute. And he turns out to be perhaps the most unsuccessful uh, descendant of the House of Alfred the Great. And he had taken refuge in Normandy with his brother-in-law, uh, Duke Richard II. Ethel was married to Emma, the sister of Duke Richard II. And the Norman court at Rouen became the um, court where all the English exiles and political outs uh, trekked uh, as Sven and Canute swept England. Well, when Canute came back from Denmark uh, to take charge of his army after the death of his father, uh, he found that the oldest son of, um, of Ethelred, his name is Edmund Ironside, had returned from Normandy with forces and had rallied the English. Now, most of these English who rallied to Edmund Ironside were in the old kingdom of Wessex and the city of London which had prospered under the West Saxon kings, whereas elsewhere in the country his support was pretty weak. There's a war of maneuver, and finally in 1016, Canute and Edmund come to an agreement, and they essentially agree to partition the Kingdom of England more or less along the lines that Alfred had uh, petitioned the kingdom with that old great Danish army in the 9th century. And England, in effect, would have been ruled as a divided state, with Canute ruling in the, the Danish, the Danlaw areas, when in November 1016, suddenly this energetic Anglo-Saxon prince died. Ethelred II was in, is in exile back in Normandy, and finally the English nobility think it, it's just not worth bringing back Ethelred and his discredited court, and they go over to Canute. And Canute is received as king of all England. Well, that turn of events was the um, unexpected triumph uh, for the Danes who had been attacking England since, you know, the end of the, uh, of the uh, 8th century. Uh, since the 790s. This was a complete conquest of the kingdom, and furthermore, Canute took over an extremely well-run state, the state that had been forged by Alfred and his son and grandson in response to the Danish raids. And uh, this gets us to the, uh, the usual image of Canute, is that once Canute became king of England, uh, in, of all England in 1016, not just the Danlaw regions, he essentially settled into a position and ruled as an English king. Well, there's a certain amount of truth to that. For one, Canute spent a great deal of his reign in England, and he didn't visit Scandinavia that frequently. Uh, in fact, Scandinavia was ruled uh, uh, through uh, deputies. Uh, his half-brother ruled as king of Denmark until late in 1018 when he died, and then Canute went back to Denmark and was immediately voted king of the Danes at the thing of Viborg uh, in 1019. And so henceforth, he's king, uncontested king of both England and Denmark. He used jarls, great earls, uh, to run Denmark. Uh, the first of, uh, first of them was a man named Ulf, uh, who was married to Canute's half-sister. Her name is Estrith, uh, or Astrid, as we'd say in English. 
uh, their son, Ulf, and Estrith's son would be um, Sven uh, Estrithson, uh, the nephew of Knut, who would eventually end up being, in many ways, the successor to Knut in Denmark later on. Uh, Ulf actually ran afoul of his brother-in-law and was deprived of power, uh, and in the later years, uh, Thorkel the Tall ruled in England as Jarl, uh, in Denmark as Jarl, while Knut stayed in England, uh, and then in his final years, uh, one of Knut's sons was designated to run uh, Denmark while Knut was in England. So throughout Knut's reign, uh, there's this notion that, well, Scandinavia was run by proxies. It couldn't have been that important. It also is nice for the English to assuage their sense of national image uh, to claim that, well, Canute may have been a Danish king, uh, but he ended up dying as really an English monarch, uh, because it's a little embarrassing for the English to admit uh, that a half-Danish, half-Polish king with a fleet came and conquered England. There are a number of problems for the English in recognizing this. Canute, uh, however, could really far more be looked at as a Scandinavian conqueror who stayed in England because he had to. And to put it rather bluntly, uh, Canute was able to run Denmark and eventually Norway and essentially Sweden indirectly because he had the revenues in England to hire that professional Viking fleet, that royal fleet, and the warriors to maintain control. Uh, Canute uh, demobilized part of his forces in 1016 after the conquest of England. He couldn't keep all of his men on retainer. Uh, no one has that kind of resources. And there's vast payments and discharges of Scandinavians. Uh, we have uh, memorial runestones in Sweden attesting to the fact that they had been paid off by Canute and went back to their homeland, somewhere around Uppsala, Lake Malaren. Nonetheless, he retained a royal army of 2,000 well-trained uh, uh, warriors, housecarls as they're often called in the English tradition, who continued under the later English king, uh, Edward the Confessor, as the royal army. A large fleet was maintained. Part of it was raised by what is known as the Ledig, L-E-D-I-G, the Ledig in Danish, which is the ship levy that is all able-bodied men in Denmark, it was later extended to Norway as well, had to provide so many ships on royal call. Uh, there was also some sort of arrangement in England uh, associated with the FERD, that is the national service in which ships could be called up uh, from the coastal counties or shires. Um, but there was a royal fleet of dragon ships and long ships on immediate call, at least 60 of them, uh, plus very good information on when those ship levies could be summoned. Canute had naval power, and he never forgot the importance of naval power in running this far-flung empire, and that meant he had to collect money to maintain it. And so he ruled England with a hard hand. There are several features of his reign in England that uh, indicate that you're dealing with the conqueror ruling over a very well-run uh, medieval state, especially by the standards of this, period, this time in the Middle Ages. For one, he patronized the English church. He, he endowed a number of monasteries. He's, he's remembered as a friend of the English church, but that never inspired a royal biographer, that is a churchman, to write anything like Osler's biography of Alfred, and it never really inspired much interest in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. These are the chronicles written about the achievements of the kings of England. Uh, and Canute's reign is remarkably, these chroniclers are remarkably silent about the king's achievements. Uh, instead, they concentrate on the great English figures, uh, particularly a fellow named uh, Earl Godwin, who had five uh, sons, one of them the future King Harold II, which was an English family that early uh, on came over to the Danish side and played ball with uh, Canute and uh, Sven Forkbeard and was uh, rewarded with very, very important lands and became the leading political family in England. In fact, 
Godwin and his family were essentially the, the national political elite upon whom Danish rule rested in England. They were so important. And that, that alone is an indication that there is a lack of interest uh, in, in the accounts that uh, Canute, as much as he tried to rule as a Christian monarch and look like the new Charlemagne, never really got particularly good PR in the English tradition. In fact, today, if uh, one questions uh, uh, anyone in Great Britain about what do you know of King Canute, uh, it's not that he ruled this great North Sea Empire, but a story that becomes common in the 12th century, that, that story actually emphasis, emphasizes the foolishness and arrogance of the king. Uh, it starts with, I believe, Henry of Huntington is the first one to report it, that uh, King Canute was convinced by his advisors that because he had such a great naval empire, he could command the waves to halt. And so he goes down to the beaches and he's seated there and the waves are coming in at high tide and he's yelling to them in Danish and Old English and Latin, whatever languages, stop, stop. And the waves keep coming. And of course, you know, several, you know, ministers lose their heads and their lands and the king is very angry. And what the story underscores is that Canute is not like King Alfred. I mean, think about it. You know, you just can't envision Canute. Uh, taking a dressing down from some peasant lady uh, that uh, he had fallen asleep and the cakes had burned. Yeah, Canute would just wouldn't do that. Uh, that peasant lady would be paying the dangal in order to maintain the warriors. Uh, so Canute never gained any kind of major reputation in the English tradition. He really a little difficult to deal with in the national history of England. Another important point about Canute and why in many ways he was a Scandinavian conqueror while he used those local institutions in England that were evolved by Alfred's successors, he also uh, created what I like to call a, um, a charmed club of jarls. Uh, the English word is earl, which were very, very powerful regional men. Uh, these were men endowed with large areas such as Mercia, Northumbria. In some ways, their powers approximated the regional kings in Anglo-Saxon England before Alfred the Great. And this is a common arrangement. This is an arrangement we'd seen earlier, uh, especially with his uh, father and his grandfather. Most of Norway was ruled at, for a long time by Jarl Hakon. That's how Canute ruled much of Norway um, up until 1015 when St. Olaf showed up. Uh, he used loyal uh, Jarls who ruled uh, Trondelag, the whole northern section. Uh, so he, he depended on running Denmark through a great Jarl. And so the notion of an English earl who is a very, very high member of the aristocracy uh, in the peerage today in England, that, that position of the earl was essentially created by Canute. Because before that, earls, or to be more accurate, earldom men, older men, were much more minor officials subject to the will of the king. Canute could only rule England by um, bringing in very, very loyal Danish families or Norwegian families who were given these large districts or co-opting a family such as Godwin a family of Godwin, uh, who married a, uh, a Danish lady. He actually married the sister of Ulf, the uh, brother-in-law of Canute, uh, so that that, Anglo, that, that that was really an Anglo-Danish family. Harold II, uh, the last Anglo-Saxon king of England, was, was, was actually half Danish and the first cousin of, of Sven Estrison, the king of Denmark. Um, finally, you can also see in the succession arrangements uh, in England and, uh, and, and Canute's dynastic ad, uh, plans that he was, again, very much a Scandinavian king. He had two wives, uh, and the sources are a bit confused about this because the first wife is usually treated as a mistress in the modern scholarship, uh, but the medieval sources had no problem in seeing Canute having two wives. 
Uh, the first one was an English lady by the name of um, Alf Jaivu, uh, Alf Jaivu of Northampton, who was the daughter of a leading magnate in Mercia in the Midlands. And that marriage had occurred very early in the conquest to win over important support. And by her, he had uh, his two oldest sons. Uh, the eldest of them was Sven, uh, named after the father. And the other one was Harold, named after the grandfather, uh, very often known as Harold Harefoot. That means he was really a fast runner. He was fast as a hare. Uh, and uh, they were the sons by this first marriage, who's often called a concubine or mistress, uh, which is inaccurate. And then um, Canute came upon the uh, brilliant idea of marrying the widow of his rival, Ethelred II, who had just died in Normandy in exile, and that was Queen Emma. Uh, Emma was the uh, sister of Richard II of Normandy. As I mentioned, Richard's court uh, was where all the English exiles had gone in order to mount uh, an offensive against the Danes who were in England. And by marrying Emma, uh, Canute secured an understanding with his new brother-in-law that the Norman Duke would not support English rebels and dissidents uh, in Normandy, particularly Emma's son, Canute's now stepson, of uh, the future King of England, Edward the Confessor. Uh, who was uh, kept conveniently in Normandy and raised as virtually a Norman um, prince who probably would have been happier in a monastery than running England. That political marriage with Emma was extremely important. Uh, there was a third son in the marriage. Uh, he was given the name Hartha Canute or Canute. He's known in the sources as Canute III. Uh, and just to clarify a potential uh, confusion, uh, King Canute, the, Canute the Great, Canute the Old, is usually designated Canute II. Uh, because his great-great-grandfather, that is the father of Gorm the Old, was also Canute, and he's designated Canute number one, even though he was never really a king of Denmark, he was just a sea king. In any case, uh, with three sons, two queens, Canute uh, faced the usual problem that any Germanic ruler faced, including Charlemagne and particularly Louis the Pious, and that is providing realms for each of his sons. And this was just expected in the Germanic tradition. Uh, there was not the sense that there was a crown or a single monarchy. And so one of the ways of running this far-flung empire was to create um, a set of associated kingdoms ruled by the sons of Canute, who would then acknowledge one of their number as the overall um, chairman of the board, as you will, of this royal consortium. And in this regard, Canute really blundered very badly. Uh, he handed over Norway. Uh, uh, in 1030 uh, to his uh, uh, oldest son, uh, Sven, who was probably considered the head of this family that was to um, uh, rule in Scandinavian England. And Sven came to Norway with his mother, his very, very English mother, Elfjaivu, and they, and they blew it. In 1028, uh, Canute had successfully been elected king of, of Norway by the Thing in, uh, in Trondlag, uh, that his long-term rival, uh, Olaf the Stout, the king of Norway, who had been ruling in Norway since 1015, had been run out. And within 18 months of securing the throne for himself, uh, Canute handed it over to his oldest son. And Sven and his mom did just about everything to offend the, um, the Jarls and the Lendermen, the leading property men in Norway. And by uh, early 1035, uh, the Norwegians had kicked Sven out of Norway and invited the son of uh, St. Olaf, Magnus the Good, coming up in a future lecture, to come back and rule over them. And so the, uh, the position in Norway essentially collapsed. Sven died at the court of his brother in, in Denmark. That would have been um, Hartha Canute, and um, Alf Jaivu was actually in Denmark when Canute died. 
Uh, Harold uh, Harefoot was in England, and the other half-brother, Canute, was in Denmark uh, when um, Canute died uh, late in 1035. And there would immediately be a succession problem. There would be a, a, essentially a civil war between the two half-brothers who should rule Denmark and England together, and then whoever took the prize would then have the right to take out Magnus and bring Norway back under control. And so in his arrangements, his dynastic arrangements, Canute was very much the Germanic ruler. And he followed the principle of, of providing separate realms for each of his sons, which is very, very different from the principle that evolved in England uh, with Alfred the Great. Uh, that is, there was a royal family, and brothers might succeed brother, but there was only one king, and there was only one realm, and the monarchy was not to be divided. Uh, and in that sense, Canute really is quite different from an English king. I also mentioned that he had European-wide pretensions, and this is an important point to stress. And it also accounts a bit for the memory of Canute in the later historical tradition, not only in England, but also in Scandinavia. For as we shall see, not only did Canute not get a great reputation in England, he really wasn't remembered that fondly in Scandinavia either. Part of the problem is the best Icelandic po poets were hired by his rival, uh, Olaf the Stout, the future Saint Olaf. And uh, as I mentioned in an earlier lecture, not only is it important to have uh, the best veteran warriors and fleets on hand, it's also to have the best poets. Because in Scandinavian society, he who has the most Icelandic poets wins in the PR world, uh, in the PR world. And St. Olaf was accompanied by some of the greatest poets of Iceland who sang his praises, and Canute did not have them. And in part, Canute was uh, striving, in my opinion, to act somewhat like the Charlemagne of the North. That is, he was not associated necessarily with the Scandinavian kingdoms or with England. Uh, he saw himself as a figure uh, on par with Charlemagne. And this is indicated by some of his diplomatic arrangements. Two important papal visits, including one where he attended the coronation of the Holy Roman Emperor. Perhaps the most important diplomatic event that occurs in Western Europe at this time, that is, who is going to be crowned by the Pope, Holy Roman Emperor. Furthermore, he arranged a marriage of one of his daughters to the future Holy Roman Emperor, and that, that marked Denmark as a kingdom that had come of age. Here is a case where uh, the, the Empress of the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, the future Empress, uh, her name is Gunhild, um, is uh, to rule the, the great uh, Christian imperial state when just two generations ago, Denmark was subject to attack by the Holy Roman Emperors who are coming in and forcing these Danish kings to be baptized. Look like Denmark would fall under control. And here, Canute is able to act as an equal uh, with the greatest monarch in the Christian world. And that image of Canute, that diplomatic uh, effort by Can Canute to act as that great Christian king is one of the reasons why Canute uh, is not remembered in the same way as St. Olaf and later Scandinavian kings are. And um, he comes across as a rather uh, distant figure in the literature. Even so, politically and in his lifetime, he was immensely successful. He had harnessed the energies of the Viking Age to carry out the conquest of England. He had built uh, an empire embracing the three most important kingdoms in the North Sea, he also exercised an authority over Sweden. Any professional warrior in the Northlands was in his employ or potential employ. He took the church institutions, the royal fiscal institutions of England, applied them to Denmark, and turned Denmark into a well-run, efficient Christian kingdom by his death, which his sons and eventually his nephew were able to turn into a territorial kingdom.
And finally, in many ways, he provoked the emergence of a new Norwegian family, that is the family of St. Olaf, which would come to unify Norway and turn Norway into one of the most successful Christian kingdoms of the 13th century. And so, in terms of his political legacy, the kings who follow Canute, even though his empire uh, was partitioned, all owe their careers and their institutions to this man. And yet, strangely, he is not well known in not only the historical tradition, but also in the great poetic and saga traditions. And uh, foremost, he handed to his successors a very, very difficult political legacy of holding this empire together, and we shall see why they failed to do so. Chapter 30, Collapse of Canute's Empire. In this lecture, I plan to look at the uh, fragmenting of Canute's great North Sea Empire and the emergence of uh, more compact kingdoms in the form of England, Denmark, and Norway. Uh, and this uh, next period of maybe 30 years after the death of Canute saw two major issues at stake. First, down to 1042, the question was, would one of the surviving sons of Canute manage to gain control of the thrones of England and Denmark and reassert authority in Norway, and so reconstitute the kingdom of Canute under that royal yelling family? And that question ultimately would be answered no. Then from 1042 down to 1066, there's an extremely complicated political struggle played out at the courts of Rouen in Normandy, uh, uh, Winchester in England, and the courts of Denmark and Norway as to exactly who would succeed to the legacy of Canute and exactly what portions of the legacy of Canute uh, would constitute kingdoms. And the result of this uh, very complicated political history is three major battles uh, in 1066 that essentially settled the issue. And what we will do in the second part of the lecture is look at that complicated struggle that climaxed in the final Battle of Hastings on October 14, 1066, which essentially determined the destinies of Scandinavian England uh, for the rest of the Middle Ages. Well, first, let's look at the, uh, the initial succession crisis following the death of Canute. Canute died in England, not unexpectedly, that's where he spent most of his reign, on November 12, 1035, several months after his oldest son, Sven, uh, died in exile in the uh, Danish court at uh, Roskilde. Um, this is Sven, the older son who had previously been king of Norway and had been expelled by his subjects. Canute was given a, uh, a burial at Winchester. He was received with all the honors of a West Saxon king. And from the start, uh, there was a succession uh, crisis as well as uh, the question of what's going to happen to the realm. Uh, in 1035, probably by midsummer of 1035, the Norwegian Jarls and Lendermen, that is the local rulers as well as the men of landed property, especially in Trondheim or Trondelag, uh, in the northern sections of the country had expelled Danish rule and had invited to rule over them Magnus the Good. He was the son of St. Olaf, Olaf the Stout, who had uh, seized Norway back in 1015 and had been Canute's great rival throughout most of Canute's reign. 
Uh, and then St. Olaf had made a desperate bid in 1030 to retake his throne and had been defeated and slain at the Battle of Stiklestad by his own subjects in northern Norway on uh, July 29, 1030. And it was that battle that ensured uh, Knut's position in Norway. Unfortunately, Knut soon afterwards gave Norway over to his son, who immediately alienated the Norwegians. And so Magnus the Good had been called back in. He was about seven years old at the time. He had been re reared at the court of uh, Kiev, that is Yaroslav, the uh, Varingian Rus prince of, of the East. So that um, most of the affairs are being directed by the great Jarls of Trondelag who are fighting in the name of King Magnus. Although Magnus matured very quickly by age 14 or 15, uh, he was already in, uh, had the capacity to lead men in battle and would turn out to be a very, very energetic uh, and dynamic prince. So Norway was now independent from Denmark, and you have to recall that Canute, as well as his, as his sons, carried that ancient tradition, that ancient Danish tradition, that any powerful Norwegian sea king was by definition a rival, and that southern Norway was really part of Denmark, and northern Norway, by the way, should be ruled by Jarls, properly subservient uh, to the Danish crown. Uh, also in 1035, there were two brothers, half-brothers, each of whom had a claim uh, to the throne. And it was a rather complicated and, and, and bizarre situation. Uh, the uh, brother Harold Harefoot, who was uh, the younger uh, son of Alf Jaivu, that is, the first wife, the English wife of Canute, uh, he was in England at the time when his father died. He was at Winchester, so he, in effect, controlled the instruments of government in England, or could. Unfortunately, his mom, Alf Jaivu, was in Denmark. And in Denmark was uh, Harold Harefoot's half-brother and rival, Hartha Canute, or Canute III, as he's often called. And he, he was the son of Queen Emma, the Norman lady, the Norman princess, who some saw as the more senior and important wife. She, after all, had been married to Ethelred II. Her brother was Richard, Duke of Normandy. She clearly had a great deal more status uh, than uh, Alf Jaivu, who was just an English noble lady. And Queen Emma at the time, ironically, was in England. So each mom uh, had the privilege of, uh, of, of being in the kingdom of their stepson. Emma, however, was the more adroit diplomat. She had on her side from the start Earl Godwin. Uh, and Earl Godwin uh, was an old-time supporter of Canute, a very powerful English family. He had five mature sons, all of whom ended up becoming earls in their own right. And one of them, Harold II, has the honor of being the last Anglo-Saxon king of England. And Harold, uh, I mean, Godwin also had lots of connections uh, in the Anglo-Danish elite. His, his family was popular in the Midlands and Wessex, and he backed Emma. Uh, and Emma and Godwin together were able to arrange a deal whereby Emma's son, Hartha Canute, then in Denmark, was acclaimed king of Denmark and England together. Harold Harefoot was compensated with the understanding that he would rule England in the interest of his brother. We're not sure exactly what sort of title Harold held, whether it was king. Uh, probably it was a royal title, and he was not just a jarl. But it was clear that Emma and, Har and Godwin were going to call the shots. Well, this was not very satisfying to Harold Harefoot, and fortunately for Harold, he was able to um, vitiate this agreement in 1037 and seize the crown of England for himself. 
And this was simply because dear brother or dear half-brother back in Denmark, Hertha Knut, was too busy fighting the Norwegian fleet. The Norwegians were attacking Denmark. Uh, Magnus, or, or Magnus's supporters to be more accurate, uh, intended to put Magnus on the throne of Denmark, and then probably the Norwegians would happily sail over to England and take, and, and take England as well. Um, that enabled Harold to secure the throne in England. Uh, he did this by winning over those earls who were uh, opposed to Godwin and Emma, including um, the, the great Earl of uh, Mercia, Leofric, uh, only known through in popular literature as being the husband of the future Lady Godiva, but that's another story in a legend. Uh, in any case, uh, Harold was now uh, a sole king in England. Well, Hertha Canute could not let this stand, and he came to an unusual agreement with his opponent in Scandinavia, Magnus the Good, in 1038. They agreed to an armistice and a treaty, and this treaty was to have wide-ranging consequences. At the time, both of these, uh, Arthur Canute is a young man, uh, Magnus is somewhere around 10 years of age, uh, both of them expected to have long reigns and lots of children. But they came to an agreement that should either Magnus or um, Hertha Canute die without issue, that is, without legitimate children to claim the throne, that the family of the other would inherit. So in the, in the event that Magnus died without any issue, Norway would go back to Hertha Canute, the kings of Denmark, and vice versa. Should Hertha Canute die, then Norway uh, could have the claim uh, to the Danish kingdom and also the kingdom of England. Well, this gave advantages to both sides. Magnus's supporters consolidated control over Norway uh, in the coming years so that Magnus was uncontested as king of Norway and Hertha Canute immediately ready to fleet to invade England. And before he invaded England, he did what all good uh, kings do. He consults with mom. Queen Emma had been kicked out of England. She was at the court of Flanders as an exile. Uh, Hertha Canute sailed there to consult with mom on important issues, uh, especially winning over supporters like uh, Earl Godwin. And he was um, uh, geared up and ready to invade England uh, in early 1040 when uh, unexpectedly Harold Harefoot died apparently of illness at Winchester. Well, Hartha Canute arrived with the fleet, the party's on, I mean, we're going to sail. He's received in England immediately, there's no civil war, and Hartha Canute is now uh, declared king of England. He has England, he has Denmark, and you know what's next on the, in the game plan. He's going to raise all that money in England, sail back to Denmark, and take out Norway. And so Hartha Canute happily rules as king of England, and unfortunately overindulged himself. Well, the first the first act as king, of, uh, as king of England was to dig up the body of his brother, uh, Harold Harefoot, uh, and, and scatter the bones, uh, and then um, uh, proceeded to make his own appointments. And um, uh, Hertha Canute, unfortunately, uh, in June of 1042, overindulges himself at one of these um, great uh, drinking hall parties. He's really very excited. He just raised something like, I don't know, 30,000 pounds of Dangal and was ready to go, and uh, promptly went into convulsions and died the next morning. So contrary to everyone's expectation, none of Canute's sons ever reached the age of 25. None of them had children. The direct line of Canute was now defunct. Well, now the treaty kicks in from uh, back in 1038. Magnus, the son of St. Olaf, the king of Norway, the ex-king of Norway, now a saint, uh, he has the right to claim both Denmark and England under the arrangements of that treaty made back in 1038. Well, he's not in much of a position to take on England, but he's certainly in a position to assert his rights in Denmark, and that's what they do immediately. 
In the spring of 1043, a huge Norwegian fleet shows up, and immediately the Danes at Viborg in northern Jutland, uh, which is regarded as the most important thing in the entire country, agree to accept King Magnus of Norway as their king. This is the first time that a Norwegian sea king, any kind of Norwegian royal figure, was accepted as king by any group of the Danes. It marks a great triumph. Um, Magnus, in many ways, uh, proved a far more adroit and able king than his father, St. Olaf, did. And we'll discuss St. Olaf and his various mistakes in an upcoming lecture. Uh, but at this point, St. Olaf is, is now a canonized royal saint. And, uh, and by the way, St. Olaf was always more dangerous as a saint than he was ever as alive to Canute and Canute's family. So Magnus looks like he's, in, he's ironically going to end up being the successor of King Canute, that he's going to go on to take Denmark and England. Now, the English nobility, uh, really Godwin, um, moved quickly on the matter. They decided that they didn't want a Norwegian king and immediately came up with the brilliant idea of inviting back to England Edward, known as Edward the Confessor, the son of Queen Emma that is the stepson of Canute, who had been in exile at Rouen and for all intents and purposes was a Norman. In fact, Edward the Confessor would have preferred to have been a monk and writing nice manuscripts. He spoke Norman French, probably couldn't even speak English, uh, really was very reluctant to assume uh, the throne of England. He was trotted in by Godwin and the leading families in England uh, for that very purpose. They hoped to rule England as great regional lords uh, through this week uh, essentially Norman-trained king. And the history in England from 1042 to 1066, when Edward the Confessor dies, is really a power struggle among, among the great families of earls, these Anglo-English uh, families created by Canute as to who can control the, the throne. And if this situation had continued, if there had been no Battle of Hastings or Norman conquest, England could very easily have broken up into those regional kingdoms that you would have seen before the reign of Alfred the Great. Uh, with Godwin's family getting the, the, the greatest prize, which would have been Wessex and Mercia. Uh, Godwin marries Edward uh, to one of his daughters, and throughout the reign, uh, there's a series of um, power struggles, even a brief civil war, where Godwin, sh for a short time, is out of favor. And it's clear, by certainly by 1062, not certainly by then, that Edward is failing, he's going to have no children, and there's already a maneuver going, among, uh, going on among the English aristocracy of who gets the royal prize. And Harold II, the oldest surviving son of Godwin, um, his, his older brother Sven had died, uh, or had predeceased him, eventually ends up getting acclaimed king in early 1066. Well, as that is being played out in England, what is happening on, uh, in Scandinavia? Well, it looked like everything was perfect for Magnus, that he had Denmark uh, uh, in 1043, he was elected by the, uh, the thing in Viborg, England was next on the menu, uh, he did take time to impress upon his Danish subjects uh, his ability, for instance, he defeats the Wends, that is the Slavs on the southern shore of the Baltic, uh, he's probably responsible for torching uh, Jomsborg, the base of the Joms Viking, and bringing that professional company of Vikings to an end because they're closely associated with the Danish monarchy. What Magnus didn't count on was not only the machinations of Godwin in England to put this bizarre uh, Norman-trained king on the throne of England, but also on a man by the name of Sven Estrison. I affectionately call him the rubber man of the 11th century because he always managed to bounce back no matter how bad the defeat. And Sven Estrison was the nephew of Canute. 
In fact, no one really paid much attention to him through most of his reign. Uh, most of Canute's reign. Sven was uh, known by his mother's uh, patronymic, Estrison, son of Estris, who was the half-sister of Canute. His father was Ulf, uh, the Jarl who had ruled in Denmark and who had been disgraced for treason by Canute. Uh, Sven had been essentially a hostage at the court of Canute and then Canute's sons and escaped and made his way to Sweden, uh, that is to the um, court at Sigtuna, where he was given support by the then reigning Swedish king to make a comeback, a political comeback in, in Denmark, and that's what he did. A year after Magnus had been proclaimed king of Denmark and went back to Norway to, um, to arrange affairs in his kingdom and to prepare for an English invasion, Sven came out of nowhere, got elected by the Viborg thing as king of the Danes, and immediately a war was on. And from that point on, down to 1066, for almost 22 years, Sven Estrison fought usually a losing battle against his Norwegian contender. Sometimes it was Magnus the Good, and then the other candidate who came in to complicate it in 1045-1046 was the half-brother of St. Olaf, that is Harald Hodgery, uh, Harold the Ruthless, Harold Hard as Nails, as sometimes his name is, is translated, and he was, um, uh, as I said, he, he, he was a Christian Viking in every, in every sense, and probably had more in common with Odin than he ever did with Christ. Harold Hoddery, who had also been at the fateful Battle of Stickelstad in 1030 when King Olaf went down and soon to become Saint Olaf, had fled east, first to Kiev, had made his way to Constantinople, and had served in the Varangian Guard. And he is perhaps the greatest example of the types of fortunes that could be made uh, by uh, serving in the East in Byzantium and learning uh, the techniques of government, acquiring uh, powerful warriors, and just like his half-brother, St. Olaf, making sure to have lots of good Icelanders around who can tell you to tell everyone uh, about your great deeds and poetry. And um, he's an absolutely colorful figure. The Byzantines are impressed by him. He impressed the then reigning en uh, Empress Zoe, uh, my favorite uh, Byzantine Empress, that silly niece of Emperor Basil II, who is the all-time high maintenance of the 11th century. And there's stories that uh, she, she was ready to marry this great uh, Norwegian king. And considering some of the <laughs> Some of the escapades of Zoe, I, I believe it. Uh, in any event, uh, Harold, Harold had better things in mind than worrying about this, you know, 50-year-old empress and spoiled brat of niece of Basel II, uh, when he had made his career uh, in Constantinople and got word of the complicated situation in Scandinavia, he decided to return to Scandinavia, and he had a legitimate claim to being king of Norway as the half-brother of St. Olaf. On the way, he married Elizabeth, that is the daughter of uh, Yaroslav, the prince of Kiev, made an important alliance. He showed up at the court of Sweden, immediately got in contact with Sven Estrison, and the two of them teamed up to take out Magnus. Um, Harold wasn't particularly impressed by Sven. In fact, most people were impressed by Sven. He walked with the limp. He was not a charismatic warrior. In fact, he was repeated. He never won a significant victory in his entire career. Uh, he's very good at rallying men. Um, he was, however, a consummate diplomat, and one point different from all the other contenders, he knew that what he wanted was Denmark. He was not interested in taking on the entire inheritance of Canute, that the territorial kingdom of Denmark was sufficient, and he very much thought him, of himself as a Danish nobleman and king. Denmark was what he wanted, Denmark was what he wanted to consolidate, and he never lost control, he never lost sight of that objective. And so, 
Harold decided, uh, with all the wealth of Constantinople and his veteran warriors, that he could probably do better if he teamed up with his nephew Magnus and took out Sven. And so what happened in 1046 was a very, very strange alliance uh, between nephew and uncle. Magnus and Harold agreed to share the kingship of Norway. This was not a territorial partition, and again, it's an old Teutonic custom to provide realms for everyone. Um, under the deal, Magnus would have his own court and move around Norway. Harold would have his court. If the two kings presided together, Magnus would have precedence over Harold. Well, I think in the long run this wasn't going to work. Everyone knew that Harold, who was considerably older than his nephew, he was about 13, 14 years older, was the greater warrior, had the greater, uh, uh, had the greater amounts of money that he'd won in Constantinople, uh, made the intelligent move of marrying his second wife, Thora, uh, the daughter of uh, Jarl Thurberg, who controlled the uplands, and Harold made sure to have guest ties, friendships, fostering marriage alliances with all the key nobility uh, around the Oslo area and the uplands, that is the heart of the kingdom, and it was likely that nephew and uncle might have gone to war with each other, and happily for King Harold, Magnus too died unexpectedly of an illness uh, in 1047. And one wonders, uh, with all these young kings dying of illness, you know, is there some mad poisoner out there, if you're into conspiratorial uh, uh, versions of history? But you have to understand, given the conditions and diet of the Middle Ages, it's very common for people to uh, contract illnesses and die. Uh, and uh, this, this, this just happens frequently, and that's, that's part of the attrition of, uh, of uh, ancient and medieval populations. So in 1047, Harald Hardery is now the sole king in Norway, facing Sven Estrasen, and he had two important claims. First, he could claim that Danish kingdom. Second, he could also claim the kingdom of England, because he was the surviving relative of Magnus, and under that old treaty in 1038, uh, which Arthur Canute had made with, with Magnus, um, whichever one has heirs, inherits the realm of, of, of the other. And so uh, Harold Hoddery always thought in terms of, well, I get Denmark, I get England, and this is a restless, brilliant sea king who had the best warriors in the Northland, and he intended to recreate the exploits of Sven Forkbeard and Canute in England. What he didn't bank on was this rather unimpressive opponent in Denmark, Sven Estrasen, who checked um, uh, the efforts of Harold uh, to conquer Denmark, and so thwarted the plans to invade England. And this is despite the fact that's, that Harold could invade Denmark repeatedly each year, sweep the Danes off the sea, ravage the Danish islands. In 1049, Hedeby is sacked. Um, there is a major battle at the Nisa River in 1062 where, where Sven Estrasen has to jump ship in order to escape capture. It's, it's probably the most humiliating naval battle suffered by any king in the Northlands, and yet Sven is able to make a comeback. In part, Harold became increasingly ruthless, hard as nails, as his name uh, gives you, his nickname, short of funds and lost popularity uh, with the Danes by ravaging Denmark in order to pay his Norwegian supporters. Well, in 1064, uh, Harold and Sven call a timeout, just as we had back in 1038. And what caused that, again, was developments in England. By 1064, the conditions were such that everyone knew Edward the Confessor didn't have long to go. 
Uh, that was known in England. That information is immediately transmitted to Scandinavia because of the close contacts uh, uh, among the kingdoms. And the question is, well, what happens next? Harold came to the conclusion that Denmark is too tough, an opportunity is developing in England, maybe we should shift to England, conquer England, and then with the resources of England, come back and take out Denmark. That's probably what he has in mind. And he's encouraged in this regard uh, by several other important de developments. One is Harold's brother, uh, Tossic, who had been Earl of Northumbria, that is the northern regions of England, the old core of the Danlaw, had been exiled. He'd been run out of England because he had been extremely unpopular. His earldom was given over uh, to a guy named uh, Morker, who was the brother of Edmund of uh, uh, the Earl of Mercia. And Tossic was really mad, wanted to make a comeback, blamed his brother for not supporting him, although Tossic had done everything in his power to alienate the Anglo-Danish uh, classes. And he was willing uh, to re uh, uh, raise rebellions in northern England and welcome Harold uh, into England. And that was one of, the, one of the important reasons why Harold decided to switch his interest to England. Uh, furthermore, uh, the only other possible candidates for the English throne had pretty weak claims in th themselves. And they were two other men. One of them was Harold II who was in effect the brother-in-law of Edward the Confessor, the leading earl in England, but he had no royal blood. He claimed when Edward died early in January 1066, and Edward had a very, very long illness. Uh, he was, you know, he was suffering a fever. He was tuned out half the time. Some people speculate most of the time he thought he was heaven rather than earth. And Harold II claimed that on his dead deathbed, uh, Edward the Confessor had had a vision and made him Harold uh, heir to the English throne. And of course, there was no one to verify it except Harold, but you know, that was a problem in and of itself. Certainly he had the supporters, the power and the reputation to become King of England. Um, he'd beaten up the Welsh in some campaigns or earlier. That's always good for English reputation. Uh, and uh, above all, he could command the loyalty of the Anglo-Danish uh, ruling classes in England, uh, as well as the House Carls, that professional army of 2,000 Scandinavian warriors. The third candidate was Duke William of, of Normandy. William the Bastard, as he was known, uh, the illegitimate son of Richard II, sorry, Robert I of Normandy, and William the Conqueror, as he's known in later English accounts, he too had a pretty weak claim to the throne. Uh, in fact, his only claim to the throne really was uh, that Harold had gotten shipwrecked in Normandy sometime back in 1064, and they had palled around together and beaten up the Britons, uh, that is the Celtic peoples of Brittany. Harold was really good on that, you know, take out the Welsh and English, now we can beat up the Celts of the continent. Uh, and as a result of staying with King William, uh, King William induced Harold to swear an oath on bones that he would support William's claim to the throne. Uh, one wonders what that claim was really based on. There really wasn't any basis. But when Harold took the throne early in 1066, William immediately challenged it and said, no, I'm king of England. Uh, and um, uh, Harold knew that he would have to fight for the throne. And King Harold Hoddery of Norway had a claim. So you had three kings, a choice of three kings in January of 1066. And really all of them, in some ways, the best claim was actually Harold Hoddery of Norway, if you're looking at legal claim. But the claim was going to be enforced on the battlefield. Well, this comes down to the climax of what happens to the kingdom, the empire of Canute. Harold II, uh, to his credit, uh, had to face uh, two potential invasions, one from the north. And you have to remember, in the English mind, the Norwegian threat was probably the greater. And there was good reason uh, because of previous invasions by Viking armies. Most of the spring and summer passed uneventfully. No, none of the fleets set sail. 
But in the early autumn of 1066, Harold had a real problem. Most of his militia forces, the third, their services expired, they went home. All Harold had was his royal forces. He was guarding southern England uh, against the threat of a Norman invasion, and he really wondered whether the Normans could pull it off and put all those heavy, you know, uh, those heavy chargers, those horses on ships, and get those damn animals over to England uh, and mount the Norman cavalry and win a battle. And then news came that a Norwegian fleet had sailed. The winds had been adverse all summer and had prevented the Nor Norman ships from sailing from the French ports. But those so same winds that held up William the Conqueror's army allowed Harald Hottery to set sail uh, in, under ideal conditions with a fleet of 200 ships. He joined up with Tossick, uh, the exiled brother of Harold. He also made an excursion over to the Orkney Islands and picked up a lot of great Scandinavian warriors from the Orkneys in Scotland. And uh, this huge fleet sailed along the shores of northern England, at that point over 300 longships, perhaps 10,000 warriors, and landed south of York and advanced on the city of York. On September 20th, 1066, Harold and his allies smashed the northern English army at the Battle of Fulford. Uh, it was a resounding victory. The two earls, Edward and Morcar, escaped. Uh, news flew south to Harold, who at this point uh, only had his royal army. Harold immediately advanced north. And within five days of the first battle, Harold's army arrives from the south, covering 180 miles. These are men mounted on essentially souped-up Shetland ponies across the Roman roads. Uh, the English army actually goes through York and attacks Harold's army, which is which didn't even know the English were there. They, uh, they were uh, scattered, many of them without arms, and the result is a major battle along this little river known as the Battle of Stanford Bridge in which Harald Hottery in the Norwegian army is annihilated in one of the great battles of the Northlands. Now, if, if everything had stopped at that point, Harold II would be remembered as the greatest English king on record uh, because he had won the greatest victory that any English king had ever won over any Viking army. Uh, we are told that less than 25 ships were necessary to take the survivors back to Norway. It was a colossal defeat. And yet, uh, uh, King Harold II of Harold Godwinson of England wasn't going to be so lucky because on September 28th, Three days later, William's army landed in England, 6,000 strong, including 2,000 cavalry, and immediately Harold was on the road south to London and then immediately headed south uh, to confront William at Hastings on October 14, 1066. The great decisive battle of English history was fought, which pitted essentially a Viking shield wall. That is the Anglo-Danish housecarls, 2,000 strong with axes, supported by the English militia forces against uh, the Norman cavalry. And it was an all-day affair. The English almost won the battle. The Normans never forgot how difficult an opponent they were. Uh, and as a result, Harold went down. He was killed late in the day. William won the battle and went on to take the Kingdom of England and established the Norman dynasty of England, which would henceforth transform England into a Carolingian-style feudal state. It also marked the end of any effort by Scandinavian kings to rule in England. But above all, it determined that Sven Estrasen would rule in Denmark, and that the family of Harald Hottery would rule in Norway, and that three kingdoms, not one kingdom, would follow Canute the Great.
Lecture 31, Jarls and Sea Kings of Norway. In this lecture, I plan to deal with the second Scandinavian kingdom, Norway, and it's arguable that I should start with Norway and then move to Denmark, because in the previous three lectures, it's clear that the political destinies of Norway and Denmark are intertwined. So what I plan to do in this lecture is to follow that thread of Norwegian history, uh, starting uh, with uh, the early Viking Age and ending with the death of St. Olaf uh, and his canonization um, in 1030. Uh, actually, St. Olaf was canonized just about 18 months after his death. Uh, Norway uh, turns out to be a remarkable achievement in the Viking Age. The development of a kingship in Norway was actually a precocious act, and in some ways the Danish kings never quite got over the fact that King Harald Finehair had imposed his authority over Norway close to a generation earlier uh, than uh, Gorm, Gorm the Old did in Denmark. And throughout the 10th and 11th centuries, it's clear that the Danish kings saw that they had a legitimate claim to at least two of those sections of Norway, that is the area of Vestfold, the Oslo Fjord, uh, the southern coastal areas of the Viken, as well as the hinterland, the uplands. These regions were seen as potentially integral to the Danish kingdom, and they felt they should have some kind of authority over the rest of Norway, including the southwestern districts, the homes to the various Viking uh, sea kings and the, and the vast nor northern zones uh, centered on Trondelag and the regions stretching up to the Arctic Circle and beyond. Uh, nonetheless, it's the Norwegians who first uh, create uh, the beginning of what looks like a Scandinavian territorial kingdom. And there's some remarkable reasons for this, uh, the, not the least of which is that Norway perhaps was in the forefront in the Viking expeditions overseas in the 9th and 10th century, and that Viking background was all important in transforming the isolated Norwegian communities uh, in the fjords, uh, in the almost alpine valleys of, of central Norway, into the types of communities that could support first jarls, that is uh, local rulers, um, ruling with the consent of the rest of the landed classes, the lendermen in things, assemblies, and they in turn could become the basis for regional kings, and from those regional kings you get great Viking sea kings, and ultimately one of those Viking sea kings manages to uh, take over the whole area as king of Norway by uh, marshalling these fleets and creating a, a royal political power. And it fell to King Harold Finehair to achieve this. And Harold Finehair, in some ways, was a rather logical choice, and in other ways, uh, something of a surprise. As I noted, Norway uh, really has to be conceived of as four great regions with many sub-regions. Uh, that is the core of the kingdom around the Viken, where any royal authority would have to make his capital. These would include the important merchant towns, uh, or market towns to be more accurate, Kaupang. Uh, this is where the great ship burials have been found, uh, notably the ship burials at Osberg and Gokstad. And I mentioned that the Osberg find, uh, dated to about 834, might be the tomb of um, uh, Harold's uh, grandma, his, his paternal grandma, Queen Asa. Uh, in addition, there were the western districts, which very often get called the uh, Vestlandet. Uh, that's a term 
that deals with all the southwestern fjord regions from Agder up to Songye Fjord. Uh, these were homes to the various uh, Viking raiders of the 9th and 10th century. And then finally that northern zone of Trondelag. All of these areas were comparatively late in their settlement uh, in the, um, by Germanic-speaking peoples. Uh, they do not figure in the great legendary traditions of the heroic age, that is the age of migrations. Um, Archaeology reveals that emigration and settlement had come from two directions. Part of it had been from central Sweden, and King Harald Feinherr and his family claim to be descended from the Yinglingar, that is the Swedish royal family ruling at Uppsala back in that mythical age of the 5th and 6th centuries AD. And it, it may, the tradition may not be accurate, but the tradition does reflect the fact that people of, of Swedish ancestry had moved into sections of Norway, particularly the upland regions, and from there overland to Trondelag. There were others who also claimed descent from the various Danish kings, particularly Rolf Kraki and other legendary figures, and that too reflects the fact that Danes continually crossed the Skagerrak and settled in southwestern Norway in the Viken areas. So Norway, in a way, was essentially a uh, marcher zone, as you'd call it in the Middle Ages, that it was an, an outlying district. Well, the Viking Age put Norway in many ways in the forefront of Scandinavia. The Norwegians excelled as shipbuilders. They also have reputations of being superb sailors and warriors. Uh, I've reported in the sagas, and this is not just uh, the fact that Snorri Sturluson and the Icelanders like to praise the Norwegians over the Danes and Swedes. There's very, very good evidence that the Norwegians were absolutely superb warriors. They're credited with catching javelins and throwing them back at their foes. They are superb bowmen. The excellence in athletics, the excellence in hunting was stressed in Norway, and above all, the Norwegians really took to raiding as Vikings. The archaeology bears this out. Numerous uh, graves appear in the 9th and 10th century, and they are filled with English and Irish objects. Uh, this is jewelry, crosses, liturgical objects, items that n would not have arrived in Norway by trade, but came in as plunder. Furthermore, we know from the Irish and English accounts both that the Norwegians were Danish opponents. The Irish refer to great fleets arriving from Norway. The first one is Thurgeis, who arrived somewhere around 838. He comes from Vestlandet. He's from one of the western fjords. He's called a king by the Irish. Olaf, who arrives again with another great fleet shortly after the mid-9th century to defeat the Danes in Ireland, he too is called a King of Lachlan, which is the Irish name for Norway. He's probably from West, Westlandet. The Viking Age transformed many of these petty rulers, dynasts, and jarls into great sea kings. With the wealth and the warriors and the ships to impose their authority over regions. And that was an important building block in the creation of the eventual Norwegian kingdom. That is, by the mid-9th century, those isolated communities, as a result of the Viking Age, had evolved into polities that had enough wealth, enough skilled people, warriors, ships, that they could act as the units of a wider Norwegian kingdom. And it would take someone to put them all together. And that turned out to be Harald Feinherr who himself is very, very much a Viking king. Now, Harold Feinherr has excited the imagination of all Scandinavians. Uh, the only other medieval Nor Norwegian king uh, who's more famous than Harold Feinherr is St. Olaf, who will be the subject of the next lecture. And Harold Feinherr, in some ways, really inspired um, 
two different traditions, almost, almost antithetical traditions about him. And it's first important to get some of this out of the way because our sources reflect these two traditions. One is a tradition found in uh, Snorri Sturluson's uh, Heimskringlinga saga and repeated in the various poetry and uh, uh, quoted in later sagas, that Harald Finehair was a brilliant sea king a man who had a personality that inspired loyalty and lots of neat stories about him. Um, he was impulsive, uh, he could be moved to um, actions of great heroism, and at the same time was known for his quips and would not brook any kind of dissidence at all. In fact, the story that comes down to us from Snorri is the reason he ended up conquering Norway is that he had been taunted by one of his uh, many wives, actually would-be wives, who jilted him. And this was a young lady named Gaida, who was the daughter of King Eric of uh, Hordalan, one of the uh, fjords in Vestlandet. And early in Harald's fine here's career, he had approached her and offered her, as any Norwegian king would, that uh, would you like to become one of my many wives or concubines? And her response is, and I always tell this, the, the ladies in my classes to to follow her, her advice was, no deal. If you want me, you've got to marry me. And by the way, before you marry me, you better make something of yourself. You should be king of Norway. And Harald Finehair, in return, swore an oath. I will come back and marry you when I am king of Norway, and I shall not cut my hair until I achieve this great action. And he had this apparently beautiful, fine golden hair, which according to Snorri, eventually was on the floor by the time he got Norway all together, but it was eventually cut, and she did eventually marry Harald Finehair, and she did eventually rule as queen, uh, and she was number one. And, you know, Harald had a lot of other wives, and uh, that's the way you cement political relations in, in Norway. That's the way you win over these different jarls and petty dynasts. And Harald pioneers the cardinal principle of Norwegian politics that lasts down, well, even beyond the Christian age, uh, that if you can't beat them, marry them. So that's just standard policy for any aspiring Norwegian king. Um, Harald is also credited with advancing many of the same institutions that we know date to later periods in Norwegian history, that is from the 11th, 12th, or 13th century. We believe this is a case of creative anachronism, that is later Norwegian writers thought Harald Finehair is our first great king, he must have ruled in Norway very much like Norway of our own time, uh, particularly the time of King Hakon IV, uh, the great 13th century king, he ruled from 1217 down to uh, 1263, and therefore a lot of institutions such as the creation of sheriffs, royal justices, all of this is attributed to Harold Finehair, and that's, that's probably not right. He ruled far more traditionally through marriage alliance, uh, through kinship, the fostering of children, that is taking into his household and rearing, rearing the sons of noblemen, uh, the use of his servants and even of his slaves to carry out his will. Above all, he had to rule by a, some kind of consent. He had to rule by customary law, ratified in the various things, and especially in the northern half of Norway, he depended upon the great Jarls of Trondelag, especially the families that controlled the great pagan sanctuary at Lade, uh, which was a sanctuary to Thor, with two other rather minor goddesses, Thorgerda and Erpta, her sister. And it's a great cult center comparable to Uppsala uh, in Sweden. So that Harald did not create anything resembling a centralized kingdom. In some ways, he was the chairman of the board of a whole bunch of Viking sea kings, and under Harald Finehair, Viking raids actually continued uh, and the king would get his cut.
Nonetheless, this tradition of Harold Feinherr is very favorable. It's one that is promoted by Norwegian authors, particularly ecclesiastical authors. And many a Norwegian writer of the 13th century would like to think Harold was a Christian. There's no evidence he was. There is, however, a second tradition. And it's very, very powerful in the literature. And this is the tradition circulated among the Icelanders, or a number of the Icelanders. It goes back to Ari the Learned, who is the great Icelandic scholar uh, from 1067 to 1148, who wrote those important books, the Book of Icelanders and the Book of Settlements. And Ari the Learned uh, was convinced, as many of his, uh, his fellow countrymen, that Harald Feinherr was a tyrannical king, that he had driven many Norwegians overseas uh, to Iceland, and Iceland was essentially founded as a refuge from royal tyranny. Now, this tells us a great deal about Icelandic perceptions of the Norwegian crown. It also explains a great deal of how, in the 13th century, uh, the kings of Norway, Norway went out of their way both King Hakon IV and his son Magnus, to conciliate the Icelanders when Iceland came under their control because there is this very, very powerful image, political conceit, that we are rugged, independent Icelanders because we escaped this, this first tyrannical king in, in Scandinavian history. And they had some, there's probably some truth behind this. It can't be completely discounted, as some scholars would say. We are a little vague on the dates of King Harald Feinherr. The best guess is somewhere by 8, 880, he had established his authority. He probably retired from the throne close to around 930 AD and died several years later. And according to Snorri, he died at the age of 80. And one account says he had a thousand wives and concubines. And this, of course, means anyone aspiring to be king of Norway could plausibly claim to be a descendant from Harald Feinherr. I mean, who could disprove it, given Harald's uh, prodigious activities? Um, he is remembered as winning a major naval battle at Hofsfjord in western Norway, where he crushed many of those sea kings and imposed his authority. Uh, that battle was celebrated in Icelandic poetry. Um, it's, the, it's the poem of Harald. Uh, it goes under um, uh, several different names, but Hrafsmal is the most common designation of that poem. And it, it's quoted extensively in later sagas, and it is cast as a speech between a raven and a Valkari. A raven is one of the birds of Odin. Odin has two ravens on his shoulders, uh, they fly out each day to bring back news of the world. Uh, and so the raven is always associated with, with Oven, Odin, always associated. Um, it's a carrion bird that shows up in obvious association. And the Valkyrie is, of course, one of the princess warriors of Odin. And they cast this battle as a great heroic um, event. It's a speech, an exchange between the two of them. Very, very common theme uh, in uh, Norse poetry. And Harold obviously was destined for Valhalla. The fact that he could achieve this unification at the end of the 9th century and the beginning of the 10th century is really a testimony to the development of Norwegian uh, institutions in the early Viking Age. Harold, however, as all Scandinavian and Germanic kings, had a number of offspring, all those sons expected to have kingdoms. And we really don't know what Harold's plans were. He, he died of old age, and if, you know, we don't know if he was 80 or not. He looked 80 anyway when he died. Um, no one knows when these people were born. There's no official reckoning. Nonetheless, he had bowed out from ruling and had turned over power to one of his older sons, uh, favorite sons, a fellow named Eric the Bloodaxe. Uh, appropriately named because he pursued vendettas uh, very, very ruthlessly. And he was known to be a restless Viking by temperament. Um, 
He ends up marrying Gunhild, who is either probably a daughter of Gorm the Old, uh, the king of Denmark. We know she's a Danish princess. She, she's either the sister or half-sister of, of uh, Harold Wartooth. Um, well, anyway, that, that, that's our best guess on her. But in any event, um, Eric Bloodaxe uh, proved to be too tyrannical a king, made great demands, apparently for ship service, and he was eventually driven out of Norway by the Jarls and Lendermen, that is, uh, the regional rulers, the landed classes, who called in another son, a much younger son of Harold Finehair, who's remembered in the tradition as Hacken the Good. And those events, even though they're highly colored and legendary, and much of it is told to us in Saga by Snorri, are very telling about the nature of this Norwegian monarchy. It really did rest on a consent. That's true of all Scandinavian kingdoms. And one of the efforts of uh, Scandinavian kings, when they become Christian kings, is to make their monarchy hereditary within their family and to make sure succession ultimately goes to one man so as not to have these, you know, dynastic problems. This, this is still far in the future. Hakon um, was a Christian. He had apparently been sent to King Athelstane of England, where he was reared as a foster son. And Athelstane, uh, the grandson of Alfred the Great, had supervised the baptism, was actually the godfather of Hakon. And when Hakon showed up in Norway, he carried along with him an English priest. Uh, he celebrated Mass. He couldn't really convert his subjects. And one wonders exactly how strong was Hacken's Christianity. We're told in a number of instances, particularly when he was up in Trondelag, uh, reluctantly, but nonetheless, quite openly, he participated in the sacrifices to Thor, uh, to Odin. Sometimes he would make crosses when he was taking one of the drinking horns, and the pagans wondered what he was doing, and they were assured, well, He's making the sign of the hammer of Thor. And actually, there's a lot of little miniature hammers of Thor that are used as religious symbols. And it could look like a hammer of Thor. And, and maybe Hakon himself thought, you know, Christ is sort of like Thor. It's okay. And um, when Hakon actually died, uh, somewhere around 960, 961, of mortal wounds sustained in a native, naval battle, uh, he was actually accorded a ship burial. And the later Norwegians, especially the pagans, are convinced that so noble and great a king had to have been accepted by Odin and Valhalla, uh, that Hakon was at least half pagan, more than half pagan. And again, Hakon was an astute man, unlike his half-brother Eric, who ended up short, you know, for a short time being king of York, managed to antagonize all the Danes of the Danlaw before they ran him out and he died overseas as an exciting Viking figure. Uh, Hakon knew to rule with the consent of the various landed classes, the Jarls, and to respect local custom. And local custom in Norway was closely linked to the worship of the ancient gods. The opening of anything, we know this from Icelandic cases, especially with the Althing, was always accompanied with prayers to the gods. The Gothi, or the Godar, is to use the plural, the Gothar, the, the, uh, the chieftains who ruled in Icelandic society and exercised authority uh, one of their tasks before 1000, before the conversion of Christianity, was always to recite the proper prayers. We assume the same was true in all the things of Scandinavia, particularly in Norway, in Trondelag. The ancient gods had to be invoked. The things were usually held at great sanctuaries, such as at Lada, where there's the sanctuary to Thor. And so Hakon very astutely realized the only way you're going to rule is to co-op and win over the cooperation of these people. You cannot impose Christianity. And even if you can launch the largest fleet and you're a great warrior, that is not enough uh, for exercising royal authority. 
Hacken, however, faced a, a great deal of resentment by the sons of his half-brother, Eric the Bloodaxe, and they and mom, uh, Gunhild, uh, made a beeline to the Danish court and had no difficulty in persuading the Danish court that Hacken was a threat. He was a threat simply because he was a popular sea king in Norway, and as I mentioned uh, at the start of this lecture, that the Danish kings always saw southern Norway as part of their realm. And so Hacken faced three different attempts by the sons of, of Eric the Bloodaxe, that is the Eriksons, his nephews, who tried to overthrow him and take the Norwegian throne. Uh, the last one climaxed in a, uh, a naval battle, the battle at uh, Storth, in which uh, Hacken himself was wounded, even though he won the battle, died more, uh, of his mortal wounds, and, and at his death bequeathed the kingdom to his nephews, probably in a hope that it would prevent further fighting. And in that sense, that probably also ensured Hacken's uh, good memory because Norwegians uh, in later generations remembered that this was not a king who promoted strife for his personal ambitions. Well, the Eriksons came into Norway, compliments of the Danish crown, and they had been long resident in England and Denmark. Uh, they were Christians, at least uh, some type of Christians, and they began to impose Christianity. They were also perceived as foreigners, and it wasn't just the case of attacking pagan cults, it was also a case of violating customary law. The brothers agreed uh, to essentially, uh, they essentially divided up uh, Norway, but the eldest of them, a man named Harold, Harold the Grey Cloak, after his favorite attire, was named as King of Norway. But he really shared royal power with his various brothers, and they were seen as a really unseemly lot, violating oaths, even more violent than their father, Eric the Bloodaxe. Uh, their mom, uh, Queen Gunhild, gained a reputation of being one of the most, well, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a nymphomaniac queen who wanted to, su to seduce every Icelander who ever visited the court. And there's stories about here just cluttered through the sagas. Uh, it was not a popular family. And there was you know, very little doubt that uh, they became too dangerous even from the viewpoint of the Danish king and eventually they were doomed to be overthrown. Ironically, uh, the overthrow of uh, Harold Greycloak and his brothers uh, was masterminded at the court of uh, the Danish king. Uh, this, at the time, this king would have been uh, Harold Bluetooth and there is another irony in this because um, the Eriksons were, were regarded in the tradition as violators of oaths and hospitality. One of the uh, critical social institutions of all of Scandinavian society, and, and that is uh, when you take uh, oaths and you bring in guests, you're supposed to honor those oaths and protect them. And repeatedly the Ericssons had violated these oaths to assert their authority throughout Norway. Uh, the leading Jarl, Earl, of northern Norway was a man named Hakon, Hakon uh, Sigurdsson, and he ruled over Trondelag. He was the um, uh, he administered the great cult sanctuary to Thor at Lada, and he had gone into exile in protest to Greycloak and his brothers, and was at the court of Harold Bluetooth reporting what was going on. Harold didn't need much persuasion of the potential danger of an effective Norwegian uh, monarchy, and he knew the Ericssons very well from their long years at exile. They lured Harold Greycloak to a great 
a celebration at the Danish court of Roskilde, and Harold was treacherously slain. And in many ways, this is seen as an action that was really fitting for the way the Eriksons had been running Norway. Several of the brothers had already been killed or overthrown. One, uh, one of them by an irate husband, just can go into the rather lurid details by reading Snorri. Uh, Hakon, supplied with the Danish fleet, uh, returned to Norway and ruled uh, thereafter essentially in splendid isolation, as some would like to call it. Uh, he was technically the, uh, the vassal of the Danish king, and yet he ruled the northern reaches of Norway as an independent ruler. And he remained to the end of his days a devoted to the ancient gods, an ardent pagan, as were all of his sons and even his grandsons. Uh, meanwhile, the Danish king, uh, Harald Bluetooth, and then after him his son Sven Forkbeard, could impose some kind of authority over southern Norway. Uh, unfortunately, from the Danish viewpoint, Hakon, Jarl Hakon, Hakon the Great, uh, proved to be too great. Uh, he um, began to ignore directives from the Danish king, particularly in a war against the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Otto I, and Sven Forkbeard attempted to overthrow Hakon by using the uh, fleet of the Jomes uh, Vikings in that great battle that ended, uh, that great battle known as Hjörungavag, uh, somewhere around uh, 988, where the Danes and Jomes Vikings were just absolutely defeated by Hakon, who went on to getting some very nice poems composed for him by various Icelandic poets. Hakon is depicted in his later years as aging into a tyrannical pagan monarch, uh, eventually overthrown by his subjects and dying ignominiously in a pigsty. And the Norwegians had grown tired of Hakon uh, because of his arbitrary rule and had turned to another man uh, to rule over them as king. And this is a figure by the name of Olaf Tryggvason, who was a successful Viking sea king who had fought in England. Uh, and I had mentioned earlier his conversion to Christianity uh, sometime in the early 990s, uh, associated with his testing of an English hermit to see if the, the hermit was really wise. And Olaf Tryggvason uh, pulled off what Harold Finehair did, but rather than recruiting the navies in Norway proper, Olaf had made his career overseas. He had put together a great uh, veteran fleet uh, of warriors uh, by fighting in England, and in 995, realizing the unpopularity of Hakon, as well as the unpopularity of Danish rule in southern Norway, he audaciously sailed across the sea, landed in Trondelag, celebrated mass as a Christian, and re was received as king, was received as king at the thing in Trondelag. Initially, the Norwegians saw Olaf as a descendant of Harald Finehair. We don't know if that's true or not, but there's really no one around to dispute it. Uh, he came with well-equipped warriors, with lots of gold and silver, and he promised to rule according to the laws and customs of Norway. And that would satisfy most of the Jarls and Lendermen. Within no time, Olaf was received as king. Well, Olaf, unlike previous kings, made a concerted you know, Hacken the Good and the Ericsons, made a concerted effort to convert Norway. He began the attacks on cult statues, that is, destroying cult statues as idols in the Old Testament tradition. He's reputed to have arrested and cast into the sea various sorcerers who were, you know, bringing 
up uh, uh, inclement weather that would damage his fleets. Uh, and he is the first king in Norway we know who pushed very hard Christianity. And this is a Christianity he had learned in England, where he had seen the potential institutions and power of a king who ruled over a great Christian church. Uh, Olaf, by his success in advancing Christianity in Norway, um, really in inevitably made two sets of enemies. One were the numerous Jarls and Lendermen. The sons of Hakon the Great, uh, their names were Sven and Eric, fled to the Danish court. And the other, of course, was the Danish king, at that time Sven Forkbeard, and even uh, the, the Swedes, uh, who were ruling in Sigtuna, the, the Swedish court, saw Olaf as too powerful. The Swedes, the Norwegian exiles, the Danish king, arranged to bushwhack Olaf's fleet when he was on an expedition in the Baltic at uh, a small island called Skold. We're not sure where it is. It's, it's probably near Zeeland uh, or off the Swedish uh, southern shore. And in the battle, Olaf was just overwhelmed by superior numbers. He jumped ship uh, and disappeared, presumably drowned. Uh, they captured his great uh, flagship, the Long Serpent, and he lived on in legend. Oh, he survived. He made his way to Poland. He died as a monk or a hermit. Well, Olaf's reputation, uh, he's, he's remembered as an important Christian king. Olaf's reputation really depends on the achievements of his namesake and successor, uh, Saint Olaf, Olaf the Stout. And Olaf Tryggvason uh, could not really make his, his kingship stick because he didn't have the institutions, the money, and the power to make institutional Christianity the basis of his monarchy. But he did take the first important step in that direction. He was seen as the predecessor of St. Olaf, and he was remembered in the tradition as a great sea king and warrior. And above all, he transmitted that important lesson to his namesake that it is going to be a veteran fleet and warriors and lots of money obtained in overseas campaigns that would make the Norwegian monarchy. Lecture 32 St. Olaf of Norway. In this lecture, I plan to complete the creation of the Norwegian kingdom in the uh, late Viking Age, and that success is intimately tied to the career of Olaf the Stout, who was uh, canonized shortly after his death as St. Olaf, uh, often known as the Perpetual King of Norway. And St. Olaf's career is really a turning point in Norwegian history. In fact, one could argue for all of Viking history. As a royal saint, and uh, the first royal saint in Scandinavia, Olaf has a historical importance far greater than any action he ever took in his lifetime. And while the other royal families, that is the Danish royal family and the Swedish royal family, each received their uh, royal saints, uh, those two saints never matched up at all to the reputation of St. Olaf. In Denmark, uh, there, eventually there is a St. Canute, Canute IV, uh, one of the sons of uh, Sven Estrithson, therefore the great-nephew of the great Canute, 
Uh, he was canonized, uh, well, around 1102, 1103, and his claim to fame is that he had been mur murdered by the mutinous crews who had refused to invade England uh, back in 1086, and, and the king had sought refuge in the church, and he had been impiously slain, and uh, his, his half-brothers, you know, had every reason to elevate their brother into sainthood. Uh, he remained essentially a rather localized Danish saint. Uh, the same is true for the Swedish king, uh, Eric IX, who was murdered in 1160 in a really one of the typical sordid battles that went on in the Swedish royal family in the 11th and 12th centuries. Olaf was hailed not only in Icelandic saga, skaldic poetry, uh, as a great Viking warrior, but in time as a great royal saint, and a royal saint who came to have a European-wide importance. Uh, that can easily be shown by the fact that in the early medieval age in Scandinavia, not only in Norway, but in all of Scandinavia, by far, Saint Olaf is the most popular saint to whom churches are dedicated. Well, that historical legacy of Saint Olaf uh, has to be placed against the historical record of who he is. And what I plan to do in this lecture is to look at that historical record. Who was Olaf the Stout, uh, who claimed also to be a king descended from Harold Finehair, who liked to make the connection because of the association of names uh, to that earlier Christian king, Olaf Tryggvason, who, uh, who disappeared mysteriously in 1000, who was the historical figure, Olaf the Stout, how did he end up fighting this uh, remarkable battle on July 29th, 1030, the Battle of Stickelstad, in which he was defeated by his own subjects? It was Norwegians who cut him down in the battle. And Olaf's forces were overwhelmingly Swedes, and embarrassingly enough, uh, many of them were actually pagans, we suspect. And yet that battle came to repre uh, represent the national struggle of Norway, came to represent the fall of a great king dying for Norway, and even Norway's sins. And the Norwegians who won the victory over their former king came to repent their actions, came to embrace Olaf as their saint, to summon Olaf's son Magnus back from exile, and to see that battle as the first step in overthrowing the hated Danish tyranny, that is the rule of King Canute, even though King Canute was no where to be seen in this battle. Well, it's a remarkable transformation, and as often happens in the case of history, uh, very often the legend and the later perceptions are more important than the historical facts, and this is very, very well true in the case of St. Olaf. Well, Olaf, as I uh, stated in an earlier lecture, took the precaution that all Norwegian kings did, and that is they always made sure to be accompanied by expert Icelandic poets. That is, men trained in the skaldic poetry with all the elaborate kennings and the very technical verse who could celebrate the deeds on the spot, usually casting the, f the first efforts at a poem uh, as the battle's in progress. Uh, Svigtar was one of them. He uh, accompanied uh, St. Olaf in his early career in England and arrived with Olaf in Norway in 1015 when Olaf made his bid for the Norwegian throne. Ater the Black, uh, a very well-known poet who briefly was at the court of King Canute, also teamed up uh, with Olaf uh, early in his years as king, and a number of poems, or at least verses of what we think are poems by these poets, are quoted by Snorri Struelsen and other authors who based their reports on Olaf from these contemporary poems, which were celebrating the, the battles, uh, the temper of the king, the early life of the king. Olaf from the start was always linked with the great heroes of the past, uh, Christian as well as pagan. Well, 
Ecclesiastical authors, too, uh, contributed to this image of St. Olaf. They um, uh, saw him in the 13th century, particularly, uh, as the model Christian king and the just king, the Rex Eustis, uh, who would, uh, you can find it in the writings of St. Augustine, and becomes one of the keystones of uh, uh, Western European uh, intellectual thought in the High Middle Ages. That is the just Christian king who epitomized not only the secular authority, but also the spiritual authority of God. And in the 13th century, uh, Olaf was hailed in ecclesiastical writings, which were usually in Latin, as the Rex Perpetuus Norwegii, that is the perpetual king of Norway. He was also seen in many ways as the model king described in this curious work to us, but a very common work in the Middle Ages, known as the King's Mirror. Uh, written somewhere around 1220-1225 in the reign of Hacken IV, again an ecclesiastical or, uh, work in Latin, and typical of Western European monarchies, that is, the king's mirror was supposed to be a, uh, a work of self-reflection in which the king uh, comes to ponder on what are his responsibilities, hence he's looking into the mirror, the king's mirror. And St. Olaf, in many ways, is the model king in this work, in which he follows the dictates of St. Augustine's just king. These images were very, very powerful, both the Christian image, um, as epitomized in the 13th century works, and the images of the poems. The best source we have on St. Olaf is Snorri Strulson. And Snorri is the heir of far more the skaldic poetry and the saga tradition than he is of the ecclesiastical, and he is our continuous narrative on the reign of St. Olaf. Furthermore, Snorri ensured that St. Olaf's reputation would be remembered uh, by all subsequent historians. Uh, Snorri is without a doubt a brilliant and witty author. Uh, he ensured that the Norse gods would live on as the gods of a really delightful mythology. He also ensured the rep reputation of St. Olaf. In his Himskrilinga saga, which is the history of the kings of Norway, going back to a legendary past and ending sometime in the 11th, late 1170s, uh, which tells uh, the biographies of all these Norwegian kings, in that great work, just over a third of it is devoted to St. Olaf alone. In fact, the first third and the last third are nothing more than the preface and the conclusion of St. Olaf's career. And Snorri used the best of saga uh, techniques to tell us about St. Olaf. The saga is essentially uh, divided into four parts, uh, dealing initially with the early career of St. Olaf, then on his bid to the throne, uh, the taking of the throne, his, his, his reign as king and the deterioration of the regime, and finally his exile and return and heroic death at the Battle of Stickelstad. And each of these four parts, uh, Snorri uses this change of scene very often to study changes in character or aspects about St. Olaf that had not yet been revealed in the work. It's a masterpiece of saga storytelling. And Snorri is really at his best in telling stories of uh, Olaf's childhood, uh, in which Olaf is already seemed to be destined for great royal events. Uh, it also highlights the personal qualities of St. Olaf. And here Snorri had to juggle with the traditional a little. Uh, Olaf was not 
the physical ideal. He was, he was known by his contemporaries as Olaf the Stout. And what is always very refreshing about um, medieval writers and medieval people in general, is, in general is they name people as they saw them, whereas moderns are too polite to say that Olaf the Stout, uh, Snorri went to say, well, Stout meaning he's broad-shouldered, barrel-chested, really strong, not quite tall enough and slender enough to meet the heroic ideal. Uh, but Snorri stresses his piercing blue eyes, um, his commanding voice. And it's clear from some of the conversations that come through in the saga that uh, you're around St. Olaf, you'd pay attention to him. I mean, he, his, his voice is not only booming, uh, but commanding. And, uh, and many a Norwegian uh, snapped to attention just by hearing St. Olaf uh, and probably also, as a result, embrace Christianity. I mean, you wouldn't dare around this man uh, not obey what he said. And so the picture that comes through from, Snor from Snorri's account is a very rich one and, and a plausible one. Whether it's 100% accurate or not, uh, we, we have no way of judging. But it is certainly a, a plausible image of a great Viking sea king. Um, furthermore, Snorri and the Norwegian authors in particular go through great lengths to disassociate any connection of St. Olaf with the Danes, notably Sven Forkbeard and Canute. Uh, as far as we can tell, Snorri's account, especially uh, where he quotes these early poems, um, uh, Skaldic poems, uh, St. Olaf's career started off, he started off as a Viking in the Baltic, raiding. Uh, may have been associated with the Jomsburg Vikings or the Joms Vikings in the Baltic, that professional military group or some group like that, and eventually transferred his activities to England. And the best guess is, uh, starting with uh, Sven Forkbeard's war with King Ethelred II, Olaf, like many Scandinavian sea kings and Vikings, took service uh, with the Danish king because the pickings were good in England. We believe that Olaf uh, accompanied Thorkel the Tall, uh, one of the Jarls of Sven Forkbeard, in an invasion of England. Uh, there are certain battles associated with Olaf in England, including a battle that's still disputed whether it actually took place or not on London Bridge. In any case, Olaf was in England winning fame and fortune, uh, fighting first in the ranks of the Danish king, a point that later authors really didn't like to stress, no, later Norwegian and Icelandic authors, but quickly went over to the other side. Sometime around 1011-1012, Ethelred II bought the services of Thorkel the Tall, and we think that included Olaf. Olaf was one of the um, subordinate uh, commanders in Thorkel's army, and uh, as I always mentioned, the best forces in the Anglo-Saxon army were the Scandinavians who had been purchased uh, to fight for them. And Olaf, uh, as a result, ended up in Normandy at the court of the exiled English king Ethelred II, and there he apparently converted to Christianity. At a fairly young age, uh, may have been 15 or 16 years of age, uh, if we believe he was born in 995, could have been older. Uh, it's, it, it's, we're really not quite sure when Olaf was born. He's roughly a contemporary of Canute. In any case, that conversion to Christianity was later presented as occurring in the Cathedral of Rouen with Duke uh, Richard II acting as his um, godfather. And it was a very, very powerful event. And it was probably the culmination of a, of a long realization by Olaf of the power of the Christian God, the power of the monarchy, climaxing in this great ceremony, and Olaf became a convinced Christian king. He saw Christ as his personal protector, and he had no doubt of the rectitude of uh, his faith and the fact that the old gods were not just old gods that had passed away, but they were demons. And in this regard, he shared a belief that's, that's common with a lot of uh, kings who converted to Christianity, that not only were the old gods 
not to be worshipped, that they were, they were in the army of Satan. And this, this is a quality that comes, becomes clear, an outlook, a policy, uh, uh, throughout Olaf's reign as king of Norway. Well, Olaf brilliantly exploited the uh, strategic situation at this point by sailing to Norway in 1015 with his veteran, uh, veterans from England, uh, arriving in Trondelag and promptly being hailed king, celebrating mass as a Christian king, and he started winning over Jarls and Lendermen. Now, his timing was impeccable, and in some ways, the, um, the dash to take Norway is sort of a rerun of how Olaf Tryggvason did it back in 995, yet there were certain improvements here. At the time, the Danish king, which is Canute, who'd just taken over the throne, he returned to England, uh, was busy trying to bring England under control. It was anyone's guess how long that would take. It took Canute far longer than he realized. Uh, furthermore, Olaf knew that many of the Norwegian Jarls and many of the Norwegian Vikings were fighting in England in Canute's service. So the opposition was fairly minimal in Norway uh, when uh, St. Olaf arrived. His timing was extremely good. The um, two sons of Jarl Hakon, that is the uh, pagan Jarl who had ruled Norway as a, a Danish vassal in the late 10th century, uh, their names are, are Eric and Sven, they actually had been ruling Norway largely as allies and vassals of the Danish crown. One of them was actually fighting in Denmark with large forces from Trondheim uh, or Trondelag, that is the northern districts. And so when Olaf was received in Norway, he had not only minimal opposition, but also a general feeling among uh, the Jarls and Lendermen, that is the landed classes, the squires is a good translation for him in Norway, um, that this king promised a native king that, uh, that would respect traditions, respect laws, uh, it would end this Danish overlordship. And so there was popularity for him at the start, even though many of the Norwegians were still pagans. Olaf was also very skilled, um, just like Harold Finehair, in cementing relationships uh, with the various Jarls and dynasts in Norway. He particularly went over and uh, met his um, a stepfather, his name is uh, uh, Sigurd the Sow, Sigurd uh, Seer, who won over all of the uh, uh, regions of the Viken and the Uplands. Uh, he presented them to the various things so that Olaf was elected uh, as king in the winter of 10. Uh, 15, 10, 16, and Olaf did very, very carefully uh, not only associate himself uh, with dynastic connections, that is, Harold Finehair, Olaf Tryggvason, but also made very, very sure that he was properly elected in all the different things and was attempting to win over the various landed classes and rule, rule by traditional law, by some form of consent, which was the game plan laid down, you know, much earlier by Harold Finehair. However, his opponents did organize. Uh, there was strong pagan resistance because from the start, Olaf gave every indication he intended to rule as a Christian king. He established at uh, Trondelag a church at Nidaros, uh, uh, Nidaros, which is in northern Norway, destined to be elevated to the archbishopric of Norway either in 1153 or 1154. And that uh, church, the Church of St. Clement, uh, where Olaf eventually came to, uh, to rest, is still seen as, as one of the great sacred spots in Norway today. And so the establishment of the church, the arrival with bishops, the celebrating of mass, Olaf, in comparison to previous kings, really had a good understanding of what institutional Christianity was like, and he was going to bring it in. Uh, he was going to start attempting, at least, to organize something that resembled a Christian church.
the pagans rallied under um, uh, the Jarl Sven, that is one of the sons of Hakon the Great, uh, and they were resoundingly beat it, beaten in a naval battle at, at Nasjar early in 1016, reputedly on Palm Sunday. And the, uh, the, the result was uh, resistance collapsed very quickly. And from 1016 on, uh, St. Olaf was essentially securing Norway rather than conquering Norway. I mean, it, it, it turned from a conquest into a royal progress very, very quickly. The result is that Olaf found himself controlling this vast realm of Norway, which was a daunting task under the best of circumstances. One has to imagine how a Norwegian king had to spend much of his time traveling, usually by sea, going to the various fjords and isolated communities, convincing these proud Jarls and Lendermen, many of whom had military experience, and in 1016-1017, many of whom had relatives serving with King Canute in England, that they should pay attention to Olaf, that they should contribute to supporting this monarchy, and that came in various forms. Uh, the so-called, uh, well, it's called ledig in Danish, or ledding uh, in Norwegian Norse. Uh, that is the ship levy, the willingness to uh, appear for military service in the fleets should the king desire it. Uh, the hospitality expected of um, entertaining Olaf in the court when, they when Olaf showed up there. All Norwegian kings, most medieval kings, but particularly Norwegian kings, uh, sustained their courts by moving around and making themselves guests of those people who could afford it. And that was expected to, uh, uh, of jarls and great men to entertain the royal court when they were in town. You know, paid for the food, the maintenance, gave gifts, held ceremonies, all of that. that. That's part of your obligation to the king. And it could become very onerous and in some cases ruinous rather quickly. So Olaf made sure that he was a constant presence in Norway. He must have, he must have seen ubiquitous to most of his opponents. He also was very shrewd and knew that Canute was not going to allow Olaf to rule in Norway uncontested. And this goes back to the early um, tensions between the two um, emerging kingdoms. Uh, that is, Canute saw Norway as part of his legacy. Uh, he had had a vague overlordship back in 1015 before Olaf had shown up. Uh, Olaf had expelled uh, the various Jarls uh, loyal to Canute. Actually, a number of them went to Denmark and eventually received estates either in England or Denmark. They never got back to Norway. Uh, Canute, in 1019, was back in Denmark to take the Danish throne when his half-brother died, uh, but really could do very little uh, to push his claims over Norway. He, uh, he took an extended trip down to Rome uh, to visit the papacy. Uh, he settled with the German emperor, but, but Norway was too distant, and uh, he had too many other pressing matters, including keeping a hold over England and all of its rich resources. That meant that Olaf could find allies to check the Danish power in Scandinavia, and he found a very willing ally in the kings of Sweden. Uh, who will be discussed in an upcoming lecture, and it becomes evident that in some ways uh, the Swedish kings were clearly well behind both their Danish and uh, Norwegian uh, uh, contemporaries. They're always brought in as the ally of either the Danish or Norwegian king who's t attempting to knock down um, the opposing rival. And in this case, the king Anud Jakob, who came to the throne in 1022 and is the second Christian king of Sweden, uh, really ruled very uneasily over a largely pagan population in Sweden. Uh, his father, Olaf uh, Scott Koenig, and that nickname means essentially um, rent-paying king, 
meaning he probably paid tribute to King Canute. And we suspect the first Swedish coins were actually struck to pay uh, a, a tribute to King Canute. Um, so Anand Jakob really saw Canute as a possible threat. Canute had aspirations to rule in Sweden. Uh, they teamed up and began raiding the Danish Isles. Uh, this eventually provoked a response from Canute, and the result was a great naval battle, the so-called Battle of the Holy River, probably be, to be dated to 1026. And again, not very well represented in the tradition. It's, it's not celebrated nearly as the battles of Olaf or, or other leading figures. And in that battle, it was a stalemate. Both sides backed off, but Olaf had to retreat. And he returned to Norway and abandoned many of his ships uh, in the process. That is, he went overland. Well, the battle proved the turning point for Olaf. He had been increasingly seen as uh, inimical to local institutions, as arrogant, as high-handed by his pagan subjects, as he had knocked down cult statues, had imposed Christianity, forced baptism. His demands for ship service um, were not taken well by many of the lendermen and jarls, and quickly Olaf's position in Norway deteriorated between 1026 and 1028, and effectively the population just refused to cooperate. And no matter how many veterans Olaf had, he couldn't rule Norway without the cooperation of those Jarls and Lendermen, without the association with the Jarls and customary law, and essentially Olaf was forced to flee. The Norwegians summoned in Canute, uh, fresh from a second visit to Rome, elected him king of Norway in 1028, and then Canute gave the Norwegians his son, his oldest son, Svjen, as their king, uh, with that high-strung English mother, Alf Jaivu of Northampton, uh, and that turned out to be a disaster because uh, son and mother very, very quickly alienated uh, the Norwegians, and uh, that would assist in creating that great legend of Olaf. Well, Olaf, as an exile in 1028, made his way to the court of Kiev, uh, to Yaroslav of Kiev, as most political outs do. He raised forces uh, from the Kiev prince. He returned to Sweden to his old ally, Anab Jakob, and in the winter of 1029-1030, he began to assemble an army. He undertook what must be described as one of the most desperate efforts to take Norway, uh, and it violated all the military and political principles of the last 125 years. He maybe had as many, maybe 2,000 warriors, 3,000 warriors, recruited largely among Swedes from the upland area. Many of them, we suspect, were pagans. And as soon as he could, in the probably in May or June of 1030, he made a desperate march across the Kiel Mountains into you know, aiming for Trondelag, uh, coming through a major pass at um, uh, Stickelstadt uh, in an effort to return to Trondheim to get ratified as king again to restore himself uh, to the throne of Norway. Well, in the summer of 1030, most of the Norwegian subjects who, uh, most of the Norwegian farmers and lendermen who had just elected Canute king really had no desire to take Olaf back. Olaf was also invading an area uh, notoriously pagan and very, very hostile to the Christian traditions that, uh, the Christian institutions that Olaf had been imposing, and so they rallied to oppose him. The size of the Norwegians' uh, army, the farmers and the lendermen, is difficult to reckon. The battle that was fought may only have involved at most 5,000 men. There was a 1.5 uh, or 2 to 1 superiority of the Norwegians over Olaf and his Swedish allies. 
And the result was a major land battle, the only significant land battle in all of Viking history fought in Scandinavia, in which Olaf and his men went down fighting. Um, the battle is associated with an eclipse. It's traditionally dated to July 29th, uh, 1030. There's a debate whether the date is correct or not. We are told that Olaf's warriors went into battle chanting the Bjarkamal. That is the great poem celebrating uh, the destruction of Rolf Kraki and his heroes, that legendary Danish king, probably well known to many of the Swedish warriors in his ranks, but also an indication of how Olaf, while a Christian king, was also associated with all the great traditions of the past. With the death of Olaf, uh, and his body was, uh, actually he was beheaded, the head was, uh, was just you know, sent around to show that they had won, it looked like Canute had secured Norway. And the mistake Canute made was sending that son, Svian, in soon afterwards. Well, as I said, within a year, many of the Norwegians came to repent the fact that they had opposed this king, Olaf the Stout. Um, the body was conveyed uh, uh, to Nidaros and, and was, it was buried in the church and immediately miracles are reported, uh, healing miracles. Uh, the body is exhumed, uh, the bishop sees it, the, the flesh has not uh, been corrupted. On the spot he's declared a saint. And in death, Saint Olaf turned out to be a far more dangerous opponent to Canute than he ever was in his lifetime. And the result is that the Norwegians came to invoke St. Olaf as the king who died for their sins, the king who died for their independence and traditions. And there's an irony in all this because Olaf in many ways was a rather oppressive and tyrannical king. And I think Harold Finehair would have envied St. Olaf and what Olaf could pull off. Nonetheless, the legend was more important. Uh, and in that legend, uh, the Norwegians found strength to invite the son, the young son of uh, uh, St. Olaf, back from exile. Uh, his name is Magnus, uh, which comes from the Latin word, the great, and it's actually Olaf's effort to name his son after Charlemagne. It's, Magnus becomes a very common name in Scandinavia. It's really, it's really their rendition of Charlemagne, Charles the Great. Uh, and Magnus comes back as a boy, uh, and he himself clearly is not coordinating the initial wars against the Danes. It's his supporters, but his supporters hold strongly to this image of St. Olaf as the just king, the king who fought for us, the king who went down fighting. And that victory at Stickelstad turns out to be a Pyrrhic victory for Canute. The Danish overlordship is, uh, is, is ended. But above all, it gives a legitimacy to the family of St. Olaf. It gives that monarchy a royal saint and a start uh, so that henceforth the family of St. Olaf will be the uncontested rulers of Norway and is a very important first step in creating a hereditary Christian kingship. Furthermore, it vastly promotes the cause of Christianity. Olaf is associated with the early victories in winning the throne, but far more important was his defeat at Stickelstad, which is seen as a great Christian martyrdom. And from that point on, there is no way Norway is ever going to go back to the pagan cults and traditions. To be sure, many Norwegians continue to worship the old gods, but henceforth, Christianity is the religion of the court. They have their own royal saint. It is the legitimate, the only legitimate religion in Norway and associated with this only legitimate family. A great achievement indeed by Olaf the Stout. And it could be seen in later traditions of Norwegian history where Olaf is constantly invoked as a political figure. And that is a whole story in itself. But you could just close with the fact that 
In the 12th century, starting in the 1130s and 1140s, Norway was rocked with civil wars for nearly two generations. And eventually two factions emerged, the so-called Birchlegs and the, and the Kreuzers, and they both had different banners. Yet both sides invoked St. Olaf as their patron saint. And that invocation of St. Olaf and that, that notion that he was the just king and that both sides, while bitter rivals agreed, they had a certain conception of what a true Christian king should be, allowed those sides to come together and to work out a compromise, and that would be King Hakon IV in 1217. And Hakon could invoke that image of St. Olaf uh, to create in Norway in the 13th century one of the great kingdoms of medieval Europe. Chapter 33, Kings of the Swedes and Goths. In this lecture, I plan to look at the emergence of the Kingdom of Sweden, or to be more uh, accurate, the realm of the Swedes and the Goths, because Sweden is, is really a composite of these two major people in, in central Sweden today. And the reason we essentially devote only one lecture to Sweden is not because of the lack of importance of Sweden, but really the lack of evidence. Uh, Sweden did not produce the same type of documentation as did Norway and Denmark. And that does restrict our knowledge about developments, political developments, especially in Sweden during the Viking Age. It also uh, is a factor, uh, another factor accounting for this is the unusual geographic and and economic circumstances in Sweden, which inhibited the emergence of a effective territorial monarchy. And that's uh, a major issue we're going to look at in this lecture. So I think that we really have three uh, uh, topics before us. One is to look at the types of conditions in Sweden during the Viking Age, which prevented the emergence of, of an uh, effective territorial monarchy in either the 10th or 11th centuries, quite in contrast to Norway and Denmark. And then to account for this and see where Swedish political uh, genius, as it will, uh, if you wish to call it that, was expressed really more in Russia and in the eastern colonies rather than in the homeland. And then finally to look at what type of monarchy did begin to emerge in the 11th century when the first Christian kings of Sweden begin to organize a realm and start a process that that really is not completed until pretty late in the 13th century. And in many ways, we shall see that the Swedish kings of the 11th and 12th centuries are almost in the position of someone like Hakon the Good was in Norway in the 10th century. And that will underscore a great deal uh, the differences between Sweden and Norway and Denmark. They, Sweden had a very different experience in the Viking Age, and consequently, a very different type of kingdom and society emerged. Well, what are some of the factors that were preventing the emergence of the type of monarchy that we saw in Denmark and Norway? Uh, you would think that, uh, in some way, Sweden would be an ideal candidate for the emergence of effect an effective monarchy. Certainly in resources and population, in the long run, when Sweden was finally organized, especially in the 16th century under the Vasa kings, Sweden emerged as the unquestioned power in Scandinavia. Uh, but that was a destiny reserved for Sweden in, a, in, in the future. That was not a possible in the Viking Age for several reasons. 
One was the land was broken up by the forests. And it is uh, important to stress that those forests were a barrier far more than the sea. And so the areas around like Lake Maleron, that is Svealand, Sweden, the heartland of the Swedes, the Svea, that area was well linked by the communication of the lakes and its tributaries. So that Uppsala, uh, the great sanctuary to the gods, uh, a very early royal center, was in close contact with the market towns such as Burka or Helgo, and later, uh, starting in the late 10th century, with Sigtuna. But that region was broken off from the other areas of modern Sweden. Uh, to the north stretched uh, dense forest lands that ran into the Kiel mountain range, which cut Sweden off from Norway. And those distant uh, Arctic areas were still homes to the Laps. Uh, Swedes ventured up there as fur trappers and as merchants who, who um, swapped goods with the Laps, particularly iron and ceramic goods, uh, and came back with the furs that could then be exported to um, uh, European markets. Uh, but it was very thinly settled. There was no way of imposing any control over this area. To the south of the heartland of the Swedes lay the lands of two different group, uh, groups of people, the West Gautor and the East Gautor. The East Gautor are East Goths, and to this day the King of Sweden calls himself the King of the Swedes and the Goths. That's what his official title is. Um, and that would today be the region of Östergötland, and that's the region from Lake Vatterin to the Baltic Sea, which is uh, south-central Sweden today, uh, along the eastern Baltic shore of Sweden. That area was an independent region. Uh, the uh, Götter there very seldom acknowledged the king in Uppsala, or later Sigtuna. And when the uh, kingdom is finally united, the Goths, or the Gautar, to use their Scandinavian name, always retained the right to ratify uh, the election of a Swedish king. And in several instances, we believe, in the 12th century, uh, attempted to have elected uh, a member of their own people as king of that joint kingdom. So from the start, you had these two leading people who are going to come together and form the kingdom of Sweden. The rest of Sweden was divided up into numerous farmsteads, jarldoms, and independent communities separated by the forests. In wintertime, the lakes would freeze over and the lakes and rivers could actually be a means of communication uh, if you had the proper sleighs and skis. But it wasn't until the 15th and 16th century when the forests were cleared, they were chopped down, when roads were put through, that Sweden really began to be united. And so that required the development of internal travel, inland travel, uh, that did not come in the Viking Age. And so Sweden is very much a divided land. It is also important to recall that what is today the west shore, shore of Sweden, West Gauterland or, or uh, Vastergauterland as it's called today, uh, Jamnat land to the north, that certain western uh, districts of Sweden were really part of the Kingdom of Norway, and that the far south, the, the important arable areas, um, um, uh, Blekinge, uh, Halland, and Skane, uh, were cut off by forests and part of the traditional Kingdom of Denmark so that geographically Sweden was a much smaller entity in the Viking Age than it is today. Second, besides this divided landscape, um, ironically the Viking Age uh, contributed a great deal to pro of prosperity to the Swedes and the Goths, but it didn't result, uh, the prosperity did not become a means whereby kings could turn that to their fiscal advantage and build the kind of royal institutions you see in Denmark and later in Norway. And there's some important reasons for that. First, we have very little reports about any kind of king functioning in Sweden 
uh, between the time of um, Adels, the legendary opponent of Rolf Kroki in the 6th century AD, and the first king we have any real information on from the Viking Age, Eric the Victorious, who may have ruled somewhere around 980 to 995. That is, he's essentially a contemporary of Sven Forkbeard. Instead, most of our information comes from those Swedes, those Rus, who trekked east and operated in Russia. And I think an argument can be made that there were so many opportunities in exploiting and developing the eastern lands, um, the regions that came to become Russia, that the political genius and the organizational genius of the Swedes was applied overseas rather than in the homeland. We do not have the same kinds of reports, and again, this could be simply a function of the fact that we don't have the kinds of literary sources we have in Denmark and Norway, but the overall impression is that those who went out a Viking, that is, those who went overseas, who took the road to Byzantium, who went to Kiev and Novgorod, that not many of them returned as great sea kings with the military power, the money, the expertise to establish an effective monarchy back in the homeland. Instead, many of them preferred to stay overseas and settle as merchant princes, ruling over a fortified guard or stockade town, market town in Russia, or taking service in the Varangian Guard, or in some instances signing up with King Canute or Sven Forkbeard to serve in Denmark. And this is borne out also by uh, the memorial stones in Sweden, another, another feature of the Viking Age, and that is why a lot of prosperity was made, that prosperity perhaps was more evenly distributed among the Vikings who went overseas and came home and didn't result in the concentration of economic and political power that you saw in Denmark and Norway. Most of our runic stones, rune stones, memorial uh, grave markers, come from central Sweden. And many of them come from the later Viking Age, somewhere from about, you know, the late 10th century into the mid to late 11th century. They're individual gravestones. Some of them are markers that indicate property boundaries. They're set up by members of the family. There's been a great um, a deal of study of the social implications of what these stones represent. Many of them are actually Christian in sentiment, some of them are pagans. But the, the important fact that comes through when one reads these stones and starts analyzing them statistically, and it's one of the few bodies of evidence we can look at statistically, an important fact jumps out at you. We do not have great royal inscriptions the way we have in Denmark. There are no great royal uh, stones like Yelling, where the kings of Sweden are boasting of their accomplishments. Instead, we have the memorial stones of individuals that could be characterized as merchant princes and warriors. And what seems to have happened in the Viking Age is that the prophets resulted in the emergence of a very substantial landed class and a very large merchant class and a society that had a lot, of, uh, a lot more people with property who, as far as we can tell in the 12th and 13th centuries, had some sort of loyalty eventually to the concept of Sweden, but was a population that was not about to hand over power to a king and they were going to keep restrictions on the king. And this is what comes through, this is what we know is the case of Sweden in the 14th century. That is, the society that, become, that is revealed to us once we have the documentation goes back into the late Viking Age. Sweden turned out to be a land of a lot of independent farmers, uh, substantial landowners, many merchants engaged in the overseas shipping, and people who are proud of their independence and would hold their kings to account far more than in Norway and Denmark. And I think that's a fair assumption to make, which meant that if one was to be a king in Sweden, 
he had a far more daunting task in front of him than he did in Denmark and Norway. And this, if this is true, if this surmise is true based on the evidence we have, it does explain the paucity of sources on the Swedish monarchy. For one, Swedish kings just didn't have the money and means to maintain the kind of courts which would attract Icelandic poets who would celebrate the deeds of great kings. This only begins to occur in the late 10th century where Eric the Victorious is remembered, but as we'll see in a moment, he really is a subordinate figure in comparison to his Danish and Norwegian contemporaries. Um, it, it's not that the Swedish kings were necessarily not as brave as the Norwegians and Danes, it was just they weren't in the limelight. You also get the impression from Icelandic sagas and Danish Latin accounts from the 12th uh, and 13th centuries that the whole region of the Baltic was sort of a common ground where any Scandinavian could go and raid. And the southern shores of the Baltic were inhabited by either Slavic or Baltic peoples. The eastern uh, shores were uh, uh, occupied by other Balts and Finno-Ugurian peoples, the ancestors of the modern Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians. These areas posed no political threat to Sweden. There was no incentive to organize an effective monarchy to counter a, um, a foreign threat, as you had in Denmark, where there was the Holy Roman Emperor, the Carolingian emperors, were putting pressure on Denmark to develop. The Swedes were also conveniently cut off from the Danes and Norwegians. So the Swedes were never really in the competition uh, that you had between Denmark and Norway. The Danish kings always resentful of the fact that the, the Norwegians had organized earlier, that southern Norway is really part of their area, and so you have this long history of battles, uh, which only ends when Sven Estrithsen simply says, forget it, I'm the king of Denmark and I'm not going to worry about Norway anymore. So there wasn't the same pressure on the Swedish kings to develop. So when we do begin to get information on the Swedish kings, uh, starting in the late 10th century, uh, these kings rule far more provisionally. They uh, have to adhere to a large number of traditions. They must be uh, accepted by the local things. And furthermore, if Norwegian kings found themselves uh, circumscribed in their actions by the magnates and the jarls of their homeland, my suspicion is the Swedish kings were far more circums uh, circumscribed in their actions by their subjects. As I said, there were two principal people who could be the people to furnish uh, uh, someone for royal election, the Goths and the Swedes. Uh, there were a number of families uh, among both peoples who could present a, a plausible royal candidate, and the monarchy in Sweden always remained elective. Um, when one looks at later Swedish history, what becomes the royal council, which is essentially a consortium of the noble families, uh, they control the election of the Swedish crown, and they will actually transfer the Swedish crown from family to family, and we'll get into that into a later lecture. Well, as I mentioned, our earliest king that we have any information on is Eric the Victorious, a very colorful figure, who is remembered largely as a um, contemporary opponent to Sven Forkbeard, the king of Denmark. And he ruled from the city of Sigtuna, uh, which is the planned settlement market town that was established sometime around 975-980 on a northern estuary of Lake Malloran uh, when Burka had silted up. And so we believe that he had some sort of control over the finances and the tolls of that area that there were a certain amount of revenues. He also must have ruled as, as king in Uppsala. And Uppsala remained the great pagan sanctuary and uh, the traditional capital of Sweden. In 1164, it'll be turned into the archbishopric and the primate of Sweden. 
And to this day, in many ways, uh, Uppsala is still regarded as a sentimental cultural capital of Sweden, even though political power in the mid-13th century had passed to Stockholm. Uh, we're told that uh, Eric the Victorious um, battled Sven Forkbeard once Sven was compromised. Uh, but above all, he's, Eric is really remembered as one of the favorite of Odin. And the stories associated with Eric come right out of legend. I mean, some of the accounts about Eric's exploits, which are uh, recorded in this very, very strange manuscript from Iceland called the, the Flati Jarbuk, which is the, the chronicle, the Jarbuk, that is the yearbook of the monastery of Flati uh, in Iceland, uh, records that he had the favor of Odin, he could invoke Odin on the battlefield, and what we have is a lot of good, heady, legendary stuff out of the 6th century and very little hard information or, or any kind of indication that Eric was establishing the type of monarchy that we see emerging in Denmark and in Norway. His son was known as Olaf uh, uh, Skatkonug, which means tithe king or tax king. And he came to the throne around 995 and died in, t in 1022. And he very much ruled in the shadow of King Canute. Uh, there are, however, several important pieces of information we have on Olaf, most of this coming from Snorri and Danish accounts, which have to include Swedish history because Olaf gets involved in the complicated dynastic struggles during the reign of King Canute. One point is, it's, is that he converts to Christianity. And that conversion to Christianity carried the same implications that it did in Denmark and Norway, but it didn't result in the same type of immediate territorial kingdom. There's several important caveats or provisions about this conversion. First, he was baptized in the territory of the East Gotar, that is Ostergotland today, at the town of Husaby near Skara, where the first bishopric was set up. Sometime at the end of the 10th century, he was not baptized at his capital Sigtuna, the market town. Furthermore, Sigtuna acted apparently as the capital of this incipient Swedish monarchy. It's where the coins were struck. We know that because the coins carry the name of the mint. Um, the moneyers, that is the men manufacturing the coins or making the dyes that were used to strike the coins, are a combination of Danish and English names. And the whole arrangement looks like, to some extent, this Swedish kingdom was organized under the pressure of the Danish king Canute or an imitation of the Danish, Danish king Canute. The best guess is that the name, the nickname of the king, was uh, that he paid tribute to Canute. The organization of the first currency in Sweden was really to pay the Danish king some kind of tribute, and it explains why Canute claimed that he had a hegemony over Sweden. It also explains why the son of Olaf, Anja Jakob, who's the second Christian king of Sweden, teamed up with St. Olaf to attack Canute. That is, the Swedes were very, very fearful of coming under the influence of the Danish monarchy, which was a far more effective and uh, consolidated monarchy. Um, those facts about the nature of that conversion bear out something that we're told by Adam of Bremen. And this was another um, factor that inhibited the emergence of a monarchy. Sweden remained pagan far longer than Norway and Denmark. Uh, and that, uh, and again, it's hard to uh, argue cause and effect here. If you had more effective kings, maybe they would have been able to impose Christianity more in the style of St. Olaf. But we have a remarkable report uh, from Adam of Bremen who wrote the history of the um, uh, archbishoprics of Hamburg, Bremen, and he was at the court of Sven Estrasen in writing around 1070, and he, and he gives us this report about the sanctuary of Uppsala, and it's, I think, worthwhile reading a couple of excerpts from that account 
and then uh, expanding on the implications of this for the Swedish monarchy. And this is what Adam tells us. That folk, whereby he means the Swedes, has a very famous temple called Uppsala, situated not far from the city of Sigtuna and Björko, that's his name for Burka. In this temple, entirely decked out in gold, the people worship the statues of the three gods in such as wise that the mightiest of them, Thor, occupied a throne in the middle of the chamber. Wotan, which is his word for Odin, and Friko, that is Frey, have places on either side. The significance of these gods is as follows. Thor, they say, presides over the air, which governs the thunder and the lightning, the winds and the rains, fair weather and crops. The other, Wotan, that is the furious, as I said, that's a good description of Odin, carried on war and imparts to men strength against his enemies. The third, Friko, who bestows peace and pleasure on mortals. For all their gods, there are appointed priests to offer sacrifices for the people. No big change here. And he goes, if a plague and famine threaten, a libation is poured to the idol of Thor. If war, to Wotan. If marriages are to be celebrated, to Frico, Fry, Frey. It is customary also to uh, solemnize in Uppsala at nine-year intervals a general feast of all the provinces of Sweden. Very, very telling point of a contemporary. Uh, he sees Sweden as a collection of different kinglets and provinces, not really as a kingdom as you have in Denmark. From the attendance at this festival, no one is exempted. Kings and people, all in singly, send their gifts to Uppsala, and what is more distressing than any kind of punishment, uh, those who have already adopted Christianity redeem themselves through these ceremonies. And then he goes on in great detail about the ceremonies. Well, this is an account written of a great sanctuary at Uppsala. Some scholars have tended to dismiss this account, but there is now evidence, increasing archaeological evidence mounting, that there were such great temples and that temples and sanctuaries were probably far more common than we initially uh, assumed them to be. And here's a case where the, the Swedish Christians are required to somehow participate in this great pagan festival, and we have had at this point in uh, 1070 uh, uh, Christian kings for over a century. Now that is a significant point to stress. No Danish or Norwegian king was in this position in the 11th century, far from it. The last king who had to adhere to any kind of sense of pagan um, traditions, Christian king, was Hakon the Good in Norway in the early 10th century. The power of the old cults, the power of the great sanctuary at Uppsala, and one must multiply that by the many different uh, traditional cults that were scattered, scattered across Sweden, inhibited the ability of these Christian kings around the Lake Malloran area to impose their authority, to impose their control. They ruled very much as kings by permission. They could get themselves elected in the things. They could uh, rule as Christian monarchs in their immediate capital at Sigtuna. But their ability to impose a royal authority and, and institutional Christianity outside of that core was greatly circumscribed. And therefore, Sweden remains pagan, and it's still a debate among scholars how late it remains pagan, certainly into the early 12th century. That is, 
beyond the date traditionally accepted for the end of the Viking Age. And that is a factor that put a great deal of a roadblock in the way of any king aspiring to being a great territorial monarch. You couldn't establish bishops. You couldn't put in the kind of literate clergy who could provide the royal officials and bureaucracy to collect the taxes and to carry out the types of changes you would see in Denmark and Norway. And so in that case, Sweden lags behind. With the death of Anand Jakob, the situation gets complicated because he's followed by a half-brother, uh, Emun the Old, who rules for about a decade. And then by the middle of the 11th century, by the, um, uh, the 1060s, a series of civil wars uh, breaks out in Sweden. And these are not particularly well documented, but we do have the names of the kings. And there are a set of clashes that go on between essentially two royal families. One of them are the descendants of a king of the early 12th century known Sverker, and his family claims the right to be elected. Uh, the second is a Swedish Gothic family who uh, are descendant from the canonized saint, uh, that is Eric IX of Sweden, who was murdered in 1160 uh, by actually uh, the son, Magnus of, S of Sverka, the, the king of the other family. And what these wars indicate to us uh, in the 11th and uh, 12th century is a very, very, very different kingship than we see emerging in both Denmark and Norway. Repeatedly, the things of both, that is the assemblies, of both the Swedes and the Goths had the option to approve who should be king. And it's clear that they do select kings from the rival families. And there's a whole political game in doing that. Second, all of these kings, starting uh, in the mid-11th century and thereafter, rule with the consent of what becomes eventually institutionalized as the Royal Council, which after 1250 or 1260 comes to sit in Stockholm. And this Royal Council comes to include the leading nobles of the different districts of Sweden, or as Adam of Bremen would have called them in his day, the provinces, as well as the bishoprics, the bishops, who are slowly established across the Swedish landscape in the 12th century. And that royal council really ends up calling the shots. Uh, usually, the royal council will agree on an earl. And here's a case where the term earl, uh, which is imported from the English usage, it's better to use that English term than the traditional Norse jarl, because that earl wields the type of power of a great earl in late medieval England. Uh, usually, the earl and the council is able to build together a faction of voters and supporters who can get his relative, or sometimes even his son, elected as king, and in effect he rules through the king and directs policy. This becomes very evident in the 13th century, where the great earls are really the ones organizing uh, the so-called Finnish Crusades in the East. And so the kingship is always a means by which a, a powerful family can build together a large coalition uh, within the nobility, dominate the royal council, and rule through that king and implement policy. And this becomes a fact of Swedish life, down to the Union of Kalmar and beyond, uh, when in the 14th century, in 1397, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark are united into one kingdom. Uh, the Danish king ruled in Sweden <laughs> through that royal council. That royal council pretty much uh, restricted what the Danish king could do in the Union. The second important point is that institutional Christianity is not really established throughout Sweden until about 1200. 
It's only in 1164 that Uppsala becomes a, the primate, that is the archbishopric, of a Swedish church, which is now separated from the authority of the German archbishops of Hamburg-Bremen. And that's really quite late. Furthermore, there never really are sufficient number of parishes in the 13th century to make sure that the word gets out. And many scholars then begin to wonder, well, how deep was Christianity in the Swedish countryside even in the 13th century? And so when Sweden does attain a certain political and economic stability at the end of the 13th century, it really isn't due to the emergence of an, of a, an effective hereditary uh, monarchy. It really has a lot more to do with this royal council that is beginning to take shape in Stockholm. It is the royal council that elects King Valdemar, a uh, king who establishes a new dynasty, the so-called Falcon dynasty, the Falconar dynasty, and the royal council acts as the main political instrument through which any kind of national policy is affected. So the kingship remains in Sweden always uh, elective. It always depends very much on the will of the royal council, uh, which now resides in Stockholm. Stockholm by 1250 emerges as the political and economic center, largely because the city has deep water ports, and those deep water ports are what are necessary for the type of shipping conditions in the 13th and 14th century. And so quite in contrast to the Viking experience in Denmark and Norway, great sea kings did not come home and create a territorial kingdom in Sweden. Far from it. The Viking Age uh, created quite a different society in Sweden. It was a society that comprised many landowners of substantial rank. It was a society that had merchants uh, located in Gotland and Åland, the islands in the Baltic, which for a long time remained independent operations and in the early 13th century became affiliated with the Hanseatic League. Um, merchant uh, princes and merchants in the areas around Lake Maleron, a society that remained very pagan and traditional for a very long time, and a society that produced a large population capable of, of erecting those memorial runestones. And so the wealth, the widening horizons, uh, the great advantages uh, won in the Viking Age produced a very rich society indeed. On the other hand, that did not convert into royal power, into an effective monarchy. And the result is a society in the 14th century in Sweden, which is economically far more diverse, with a population with many more freeholders, not the type of society that will evolve in Denmark and Norway, and a society in which the subjects of the crown will hold that crown, that monarch, very much to account. And that will produce a Sweden of the high Middle Ages quite different from neighboring Denmark and Norway. Lecture 34, Christianization and Economic Change. In this lecture, I plan to look at two related issues, that is the Christianizing of society, by which I mean the acceptance of Christian uh, religious and ethical values, and the transformation of uh, the public life and the public worship into a distinctly and noticeably Christian form, as opposed to just accepting Christ as a God, perhaps as a God among many gods. And the second issue is economic change and progress uh, in Scandinavia from 1100 to maybe 1350. And on first look, there might be a, a 
bit of curiosity how these two uh, seemingly different issues are really part of the same story. And what I plan to do with both these issue, issues is to show how the development of a distinctly Christian society and all of the economic improvements and changes that came as a result of accepting Christianity, as a result of establishing Christian monarchies, uh, transformed Scandinavia from a Viking into a distinctly Christian European world. And so I take the year 1100 as our starting point because it is at this point that these forces really come into play. And by 1350, there is absolutely no question, that is just at about the time of the Black Death, that uh, Scandinavia is now part of that wider Latin Christendom. And these changes, perhaps more than any uh, specific political or military event, uh, determine far more uh, the end of the Viking Age. And we'll see that in several important areas, but just, just to note that it changed the ethos, the martial ethos that had motivated Vikings from the 9th through the 11th century. It also changed the economic underpinnings of Scandinavian society. So going overseas to fight as Vikings, uh, the types of colonization activities we saw in the 10th and 11th century were no longer necessary. And those two factors together changed the Scandinavians significantly enough that there would never again be a Viking age. So 1100 is a very good point to take as marking this change. So let's look at our first topic, and that is the Christianizing of Scandinavian society. Uh, this was already going on in the 10th and 11th century, but it really picks up force after 1100. And it's seen in the establishment of bishoprics and of parish churches, first in Denmark and then later in Norway and in Sweden. And it is uh, difficult to um, exaggerate the importance of setting up this type of institutional Christianity. Uh, King Canute, uh, who ruled in England and also ruled in Denmark, really began the process in Denmark. He established what became eventually the uh, great eight bishoprics of Denmark. Uh, and this required the establishment of a town as a, as a diocese, that is, as the, uh, the center of a bishop, uh, the construction of a cathedral church, the endowment of lands to support that church. That meant the imposition of tithes, uh, the taxing of 10% of the dues of, uh, of the uh, congregation to support religious activities, and that would include ma maintaining the clergy, uh, undertaking alms, uh, various other expenses that would come up. And between, uh, say, 1025 and 1100, those towns such as Viberg, Arras, Ribe, uh, uh, Odense, Lund, uh, which is um, now in southern Sweden, all of these towns, Roskilde is another one, all of these towns begin to assume uh, really the trappings of a European-style town in the late 11th and early 12th century. The churches generated business the business of religion, that is the need to have a literate staff, the need to contract with builders to put up uh, churches, to be sure, originally constructed in wood, not in stone, vastly transformed the type of economic activities that you would have seen in Denmark during the Viking Age. And so as the uh, bishoprics are then established in Norway and in Sweden, the same changes accompany them. Uh, in 1104, Lund is designated as the Archbishopric of Denmark. Uh, it is granted uh, by the Pope, uh, the then reigning Pope uh, uh, Paschal II, elevates Lund, and so the Danish monarchy now has, in effect, its own national church. Uh, this occurs uh, a generation later in both Norway and Sweden. 
at Nidaros in 1153, primate of Norway is established there, and later in 1164 at Uppsala uh, in Sweden. And once you have a primate, that is, you have an archbishop for your kingdom who uh, represents the uh, leading figure of all the bishoprics, and he answers to Rome, um, that archbishop and those bishops, ha it's important to remember, are closely associated with the nobility and the king. Because the types of Christian institutions coming in are those that had been forged in the Carolingian age. And I stressed this in an earlier lecture dealing with Charlemagne and the nature of the Carolingian state, and that is the high clergy, the prelates, the men who come to rule the institutions of the church are very much the same men who are the nobility who serve the court. And it's important to remember that bishops and kings who forged that alliance back in the 11th century between sea kings and very often bishops without portfolio, that is bishops who were either English or Germans who traveled with the king, those bishops are now native Scandinavian nobility endowed with a great bishopric and operating in tandem with the king. The best example we have of that comes from Denmark in the 12th century under the reign of King Valdemar. Valdemar I of Denmark, Valdemar the Great, who ruled from 1157 to 1182, had as his bishop of Roskilde his cousin Absalon. And he and Absalon had been reared together in the same household. Uh, they were the best of friends. And Absalon was later, in 1178, consecrated Archbishop of Lund. He was the third Archbishop of Lund. And uh, Absalon and Valdemir together worked as a team. They operated uh, in tandem in pushing the crusade against the Wends, that is, the Slavs on the southern uh, littoral of the Baltic. And some, some Danish writers, such as Saxo Grammaticus, thought of Opsalan more as a Viking sea king than a real bishop. Uh, they also worked together in pushing the development of law, both uh, religious uh, law dealing with religious institutions and the extension of royal justice. And uh, you must, and then when King uh, Valdemir died, Opsalan acted as the chief minister for uh, Valdemir's two sons, that would be Canute VI and Valdemir II. And it was Opsalan who really worked out a lot of the details of uh, Danish alliances with the Hohenstaufen family in Germany. And so from the start, the creation of these um, bishoprics and archbishoprics had very, very important consequences for turning these monarchies in Denmark and in Norway into really effective monarchies. It was not nearly as successful in Sweden because of, as, of uh, the restrictions on the monarchy I discussed in a previous lecture. Now, besides those political institutions, uh, uh, that is the church and the monarchy now come together and rule these territorial uh, states, the creation of uh, bishoprics and below them parish churches profoundly changed the spiritual and ethical outlook of Scandinavians. And this is a process that went on through the 12th and 13th and 14th centuries, and it is debated among scholars exactly when do the Scandinavians really become Christians in a meaningful sense. Well, it's perhaps sooner than, than most would like to believe and uh, not quite as quickly as some would want to believe. There are some ways of testing how this took place. Uh, there has been some extremely clever work done in art history uh, from two lines of investigation. One is just looking at burial practices. Uh, shortly after 1100, at least in Denmark and Norway, Sweden again is, is a little bit later, the practice of raising great barrows or putting grave goods um, with the deceased uh, essentially ceases. 
and burial practices shift over to what are regarded as far more typical uh, memorials uh, uh, associated with Christians. Uh, that can, seem, because can also be documented in Iceland during the 11th century, uh, after the act of conversion in 1000. By 1100, the Icelanders are essentially burying their dead, as, as all Christians would. And the same is true in Denmark and Norway, and eventually in Sweden as well. Another way at testing how much uh, Christian values uh, enter into the consciousness of Scandinavians is looking at the paintings and relief sculpture that are dedicated by donors in the early Romanesque churches, uh, notably in Denmark and Norway. And these would, be, um, these would be panels that are given by usually a couple as an act of piety to the parish church, and they depict various scenes of um, uh, spirituality. And starting in the 11th, uh, really starting after 1100, it's, it's really from the opening of the 12th century, these have become very, very common. And there are enough of them around. And again, you're dealing with the middle and upper levels of society. You're not dealing with the peasants necessarily. But nonetheless, the, ex uh, the extent of these uh, paintings and dedications indicate that certainly in Norway and Denmark after 1100, no one believed in Valhalla anymore, that the Christian conceptions of, of hell and heaven had been accepted. And above all, church decorations in Norway, especially on these early wooden stave churches, indicate that the old heroes were perfectly okay to add as decorations. Uh, the heroes of the Volsungs, uh, uh, for instance, Sigurd uh, slaying Fafnir. But the old gods, usually you stayed away from those decorations. Many Scandinavians after 1100 came to regard them as demons, uh, the goddesses as witches, it's all sort of sorcery. And those, whatever beliefs they had had in the Azair and the Vanir, that is the gods of Asgard and the gods of pros prosperity, had essentially passed away in the early 12th century, never to return. Well, maybe not quite never to return. Uh, apparently, uh, sometime in early 2004, uh, the Danish government officially recognized that 1,000 of its citizens are now designated a religion in Denmark because they worship the ancestral gods, the Azar, uh, that is the gods of Snorri Strulsen. Uh, there's no continuity between this group and the Vikings, and one shudders to think they're probably descendants of 19th century romantic visions of the Scandinavian gods, and I think their main reason for pushing it, you know, I, I can only surmise their motives, their main reason for pushing this status is to get tax-exempt status. So there's at least a thousand people in Denmark right now invoking Odin. But overall, the society has become Christian, uh, and has been Christian probably since at least 1100. Uh, furthermore, in a country such as Denmark, the number of parish churches multiply across uh, the landscape in the 12th century, and certainly by 1200, no Danish peasant is more than uh, a short, short walk from a parish church. Regular attendance of services is very easy. Uh, Denmark gets converted into a society of villages and peasants. Norway and Sweden, especially in the northern sections of Norway, um, their parish churches may be away from your isolated farmstead by as much as a week. Uh, you have over 2,000 parish churches documented in Denmark in the 13th century, maybe you know, less than half that number in Norway, maybe 1,200. Uh, and um, it's harder to get to services in Norway and part of Sweden uh, than it is in Denmark, but it can be done. And certainly attending all high holidays is more than easy to do. And that, that is extremely important. 
because the attendance of those of those church uh, services get connected with baptisms, with marriage, with death, uh, you know, uh, funerary rites, and these replace the old gods so that Christianity becomes closely uh, embedded in the social values and da daily life of Scandinavians, and this is clearly uh, well established before the outbreak of the Black Death in the mid-14th uh, mid century. Scandinavia becomes a Christian land, or all of Scandinavia, Scandinavian kingdoms become Christian lands. Uh, furthermore, the clergy in Scandinavia starting in the 13th century, and some of the nobility, uh, nobility uh, that is the men who will serve as secular lords to the king, uh, increasingly acquire a European identity. They start attending universities in Europe notably Paris and Bologna in the 13th century and starting in the 14th century in the German-speaking university, particularly Heidelberg, which is the second German-speaking university to be established in the 14th century. And that intellectual connection with Heidelberg and related German universities in the 14th and 15th centuries is one of the reasons why the Scandinavians are very inclined to listen to Luther and the Reformation. Uh, they come out of a lot of the same intellectual tradition. Uh, some scholars have gone uh, so far as to argue that the type of pietism or the um, piety, you know, pietism is extreme piety, however you want to term, term is a little bit loaded, but the, the type of uh, Christianity that comes to pervade in Scandinavia in the high Middle Ages is one that is really very conservative in nature. It stresses uh, very much uh, traditional Christian values. It is not particularly linked to monastic and ascetic traditions. It's, it's very much tied to the bishops and the monarchy, and the rather conservative nature of Scandinavian Christianity in some ways inclined Scandinavians to listen to the appeals of Luther in the time of the Reformation. And there is very little evidence, in my opinion, there's really no evidence to argue that the Scandinavians carried over some sort of traditional values from the Viking Age, and so the Reformation rep, uh, represented a break uh, from this Catholic Roman tradition and the reassertion of a Scandinavian Germanic tradition, far from it. The Scandinavians who followed Luther did it for very, very good Christian theological grounds. Uh, justification by faith alone and all of those values of the Reformation uh, struck a very powerful chord, uh, and there was always a close association between the bishops and the kings who together decided to carry out the Reformation in Denmark and Sweden maybe not so much in Norway. In Norway, the Reformation was more imposed rather than accepted by the Danish monarchy. So in any sense, uh, in every sense of the word, the Scandinavian kingdoms become Christian lands. And that is one of the biggest changes why there's no more Viking Age. You do not go out and raid fellow Christians. You cannot engage in the most, one of the most lucrative activities of the Viking Age, that is the slave trade. And as a result, Scandinavian kings, bishops, and nobles intermarry with their counterparts in the rest of Europe. They attend European-style universities. European literature is being translated into Scandinavians, hence the proliferation of all of those translations that we have in Iceland from the 13th and 14th century of Arthurian legend, romance, the romances of Alexander the Great. And uh, there is no chance of the Scandinavians ever going back to that notion of the Viking Age once they've become members of that European community. Well, there's another powerful force that's shaping these changes, and this is to be associated with the economic and, as a result, social and other changes following uh, the establishment of Christian kingdoms and uh, the emergence of a Christian society. 
By converting to Christianity, by forging closer links with Western Europe, the Scandinavians gained a great deal of practical advantages. As the Viking Age passes and attacks and raids are essentially completely supplanted by trade, the Scandinavians now get immediate access to the technical and managerial advances in European agriculture that had been going on since the 10th century. For one, Scandinavians for the first time acquire what are known as the Coulter plows. These are plows devised in the Frankish world. Uh, it's still debated when this took place, but certainly they are uh, being used widely in the 10th and 11th centuries. And these are heavy plows pulled by horses, uh, the powerful workhorses of Northern Europe, equipped with uh, a horse collar plow uh, rather than using the old ox system. And these plows can cut deep into the rich, dense, moist soils of Northern Europe. Um, the arrival of the Coulter plow and associated equipment meant you could not only dig into the soil, you could cut it and turn it over into the classic furrows that allow for the type of agriculture that characterizes manorial farming in Western feudal Europe, or to be more accurate, manorial Europe. That is, uh, plowing in long strips with the use of horses and coulter plows, you can plow much more efficiently, much more quickly. That allows for peasants to live in villages and walk to their fields rather than to live in scattered uh, settlements. Uh, with the plows come millstones and water mills, windmills, all sorts of devices that allow for more rapid thrashing and grinding of flour. And these improvements promote the development of what we call classic manorial agriculture. That is a landlord, secular or ecclesiastical, or even royal, uh, organizing deals with his peasants whereby they farm uh, grains and they're engaged in stock raising and they pay dues to the Lord in return for working the land. Uh, there are labor services involved. These are the classic manorial arrangements. And of course, this system is an efficient system of using agriculture. That's why it developed in Western Europe. And this system is brought in especially to the Danish kingdom. That is the Danish medieval kingdom, including southern Sweden. And between 1100 and 1250, the Danish landscape is dramatically transformed. These are the first major improvements in agriculture since the early Iron Age. The forests are cleared substantially. And today, when you go to Scandinavia, especially in Denmark, you're looking at essentially managed parks. You, have, you turn Denmark into a land of villages, uh, a land of wheat and barley fields, and these villages are populated by peasants who owe uh, labor and, um, uh, and various kind uh, services. Uh, later, they're commuted into actually cash payments to their landlords. You have the classic peasant society of Western Europe. And as a result, prosperity rises. This type of agriculture produces far more surplus. Um, the Danes already in the 13th century begin to diversify their economies and respond to conditions in Germany and Central Europe, which are also improving with the development of town life and the improvements of agriculture in what are going to become Germany and Poland. And the Danes uh, figure out that they have a comparative advantage. They start exporting. Uh, especially pork, uh, dairy products, which they can um, raise under these manorial systems and in turn import wheat. And the Danes in the uh, 11th, 12th century, the diet and the prosperity of Danish peasants and burghers, that is merchant classes in the towns and villages, improves dramatically. And that is a result of bringing in all of this manorial farming, the management of the so-called three-field system. 
And by anyone's guess, uh, in Denmark, the figures are quite dramatic. Denmark's population more than doubles between 1100 and 1250. You don't have to export that population as Vikings anymore. Those people can be fed in Denmark. And furthermore, substantial amount of surpluses are being made that Danish landlords can market these in the towns of the Rhineland, the Lowlands, central Germany, and those economic connections reinforce the intellectual and university connections I spoke of with the uh, Christianizing of society. The pattern in Norway and Sweden is different. Whereas Denmark by probably 1350, and we're, we're projecting these figures back from figures of say 1500, Denmark by 1350, 75% of the land is in the hands of landlords who are exacting labor services from, this, from their peasants. And maybe anywhere from, it's, it's a matter of debate, 15% or more of the land is actually royal land. Uh, in Norway and in Sweden, the pattern is different. In Norway, perhaps a third of the land remains in the hands of small landowners. In Sweden, at least 50% or more. In Norway, you get some of that pattern in the areas around the Viken. But in most of Norway, you still have uh, dependence on fishing and hunting, and above all, the development of commercial fishing. So many Norwegians are able to maintain a certain amount of independence from landlords and to prosper from all of these technical advantages coming in from Western Europe. In Sweden, the case is even more dramatic. Sweden, as I said, is potentially a very wealthy country. One of the areas where the Swedes begin to take off starting in the 13th century is in mining activities. With the end of the Viking Age and the development of trades, the Swedes begin to exploit their copper and iron deposit. And that's one of the reasons why Stockholm emerges. Stockholm is very, very close to the mining districts, and the mining districts become one of the most important features of the Swedish economy, diversifying it and fueling it. Stockholm is a, a deep water port. All of that ore can be exported into the German world. Uh, imports can be brought in by members of the Hanseatic League. And as a result, the Swedish mining activities uh, really generate prosperity, the development of towns, and eventually of cities. Agriculture is also far more diverse in Sweden. There's enormous timber resources that are part of the export trade. The arable is slowly and steadily expanded. And the Swedes have, by 1350, at the time of the Black Death, by far the most diversified economy in Scandinavia with mining, lumbering activities, traditional Arctic products, uh, a far more diversified agricultural economy. It still does not have as much population as Denmark, but it's on the rise, and the future really does rest economically with Sweden. And just as in Norway and Denmark, these changes also vitiate the need to have Viking raids. I mean, you don't need this when you can support your people at home and you're making such substantial profits. Well, the changes in agriculture, the development of, of the timber industry, the de development of mining, all of this is assisted by the development of trade and towns and eventually from towns to cities. In part, the changes in agriculture are responding to the demand being generated by raising towns that have been brought on by the development of church institutions, the creation of royal capitals, and the need to market products uh, overseas as great commercial ventures. These include the export of dairy products and, and, and especially ham and pork from Denmark, and above all, commercial fishing enterprises. Again, uh, with the emergence of towns and the establishment of prosperity and trade, not only in Denmark, but all of Northern Europe, 
commercial fishing on a major scale becomes an extremely profitable venture. Norwegians engage in uh, the fishing of cod. Uh, the Danes in that narrow strait, the Sund between Skane and um, Zeeland, are right on the herring grounds. Herring and cod becomes a major staple in the European diet, and the Danish and Norwegian uh, fishermen are in a position to exploit it. A town such as Bergen, which is a deep water port, a bishopric uh, in Norway, Lund, in uh, southern Sweden, that is the, bishop, uh, the Archbishopric of Denmark, emerge as great uh, centers for the processing and distribution of fish destined for European markets. Uh, herring out of Lund, uh, cod coming out of Bergen. Uh, both of these export trades are feeding uh, the towns of Germany and the Low Countries, and in return, uh, various products are being imported to pay for this, and the quality of life rises, both in Norway and Denmark as a result and changes attitudes and mores of these people. There is also another development which in the long run does not prove so, shall we say, so friendly or beneficial to at least the Scandinavian monarchs. And that is increasingly the emergence of towns and, and cities which provide these markets that fuel economic change. The, the trade, the carrying trade, the actual moving of products increasingly falls out of the hands of Scandinavians into the hands of Germans. And that is the one feature in economic and social change in this period that has major implications and explains you know, very well why there's no resumption of a Viking age. Uh, and at first look at it, it's rather curious that the Scandinavians who had dominated European shipping and shipbuilding for over 300, maybe close to 350 years, uh, by the middle of the, the uh, 12th century, from maybe the 1150s, 1170s on, slowly begin to lose their lead to the Germans and to the Dutch. Foremost, the city of Lübeck on the Baltic Sea, uh, which was established as a major German port. And there are several reasons for this. First, uh, as Scandinavia develops economically and its population rises in the period 1100 to 1350, the Scandinavian doubling of its population is small by comparison to the expansion of the population in Germany. In the lowlands in Germany, the economic developments essentially explode. There are far many more people in Germany, and the Germans are eager to colonize the eastern lands that are thinly settled. Those include the regions of the future Kingdom of Prussia and later European history, that is East Germany, and especially the southern and eastern shores along the Baltic, Lübeck, and the military monastic orders known as the Livonian Brothers of the Sword and the Teutonic Knights carry out crusading and colonizing activities, sometimes in alliance with the Danish kings, sometimes in opposition. But what happens in the course of the 13th and 14th century is the Baltic is turned into essentially a German sea. The Germans come to dominate the towns that are established, the new towns established on the southern and eastern shores. They gain economic privileges at Lund, at Copenhagen, at uh, Stockholm, and all the major towns in Norway. And the reason is, as city-states, without the obligations to maintain armies and other problems that kings face, they are able to concentrate their efforts on shipbuilding and trade. And what happens is, by 1300, the Hanseatic League, which is an association of two uh, German consortia, one in the north on the Baltic with Lübeck, the other Cologne in the Rhineland, they can come to dominate the carrying trade, the shipbuilding. They also come to dominate the banking because they're handling the export of all that commercial fishing 
into Europe. They are bringing in the products. They also have the hard cash to advance to Scandinavian kings who are perpetually broke. And by 1300, increasingly, the Germans are taking over the banking, the financial, and the economic life of Scandinavia. Now, there are differences. Uh, Denmark, by far, falls under the, by the most, falls under German economic control. Norway is not as easily affected because large parts of Norway are still uh, beyond some of these changes. But Bergen, 25% of the merchant class in Bergen is German by the end of the 13th century. Sweden is the least effective. Sweden has the most diversified economy, it has the mining, it has uh, a lot more different agricultural and timber products. But nonetheless, the uh, benefit of all these changes, the transformation of the Scandinavians into Europeans, also results very much in the economic and financial integration of Scandinavia into a wider German world. And that will have major implications why the Christian kings of Scandinavia cannot capitalize on this economic development and cannot turn that old Viking warrior ethos into effective means of making Christian kingdoms uh, in Scandinavia the arbiters of the North. Lecture 35, From Vikings to Crusaders. In this lecture, I plan to look at the political and diplomatic and military developments in Scandinavia in the period of 1100 to 1350. And this acts as a parallel to the, uh, and a matchup to the lecture that dealt with uh, religious change, economic and social change in Scandinavia during the same period. Scandinavia was fundamentally transformed in this uh, period of 250 years. It's usually known as the High Middle Ages uh, by most historians, and it's applied to Scandinavia as well. The landscape of Scandinavia increasingly is Christian. It is populated with uh, steeples of churches, church bells, uh, rather than any kind of pagan sanctuaries. Scandinavia is economically now part of a wider European community. There are also these three kingdoms. Uh, in various stages of developments, but definitively Christian kingdoms that could have played a very important role in Northern Europe and perhaps in wider European history. And this is what the situation looked like in 1100, and by 1350 the situation looked quite different. Uh, by 1350, none of the Scandinavian kingdoms was really in a position to play anything more than a local or regional role in the Baltic. Power had shif shifted to the great principalities of the Holy Roman Empire and especially to the Hanseatic League. And on the horizon, uh, far to the east, were the kingdoms of Poland and Russia, destined to play far more prominent roles in European history than these Scandinavian kingdoms. And so what I wish to explore in this lecture is why did the kings, uh, the descendants of those sea kings who founded uh, the kingdoms of Norway, Denmark, and Sweden in the Lake Viking Age, fail to turn their 
the descendants of these Vikings into effective crusaders, crusaders devoted to Christ and to the crown, who could conquer new lands in the Baltic, pioneer new sources of revenue, areas to colonize, and turn Denmark or Norway or Sweden or even some combination of the three kingdoms into a powerful Christian monarchy that could compete on the same level as, say, the Kingdom of England, the Kingdom of France, uh, the great principalities of the Holy Roman Empire. That's an important historical question to deal with, and again, it's a question that is also closely linked to why the Viking Age passes and Scandinavia ceases to play a major role in European affairs in the later Middle Ages and will only reemerge as a very important factor in European history in the time of the Reformation and the wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries. Well, this requires us to look at the three monarchies, uh, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, but it also requires us to look at certain political and fiscal conditions that were affecting all three monarchies. The Christian kings who followed the Viking Age, the kings who came after 1100, very much wanted to turn themselves into effect crusader kings. They wished to capitalize on the uh, religious wars that were being waged in the Holy Land to recover Jerusalem and then later in the, uh, within a generation the concept of crusade was extended to cover wars against any of the heathen, whether they be in Spain, the Baltic, Eastern Europe. And uh, by posing as crusaders, by posing as great Christian rulers, uh, Scandinavian kings could win legitimacy they could win the favor of the papacy. Their lands were then put under the protection of Rome. There were all sorts of legal advantages, both for Scandinavian monarchs and nobles who went on crusade. This is seen in the first crusading king of Scandinavia, uh, a, a fellow named uh, Sigurd uh, Jerusalemfarer, or Jarsfar uh, in, uh, in, in Norse, a king of Norway from 1103 to 1130. And he was a descendant of... Um, uh, King Harold Hottery, uh, who was defeated and slain at the Battle of Stamford Bridge back in 1066. He undertook a personal crusade in 1107-1108. Uh, he equipped a fleet of uh, 60 longships, uh, sailed to England, where he was received at the English court by Henry I, sailed to Lisbon, uh, assisted the Christians there to, uh, in fighting the Muslims, ended up in the Levant, and actually teamed up with King Baldwin I of Jerusalem to capture the city of Sidon in, uh, in Lebanon and returned to Norway with a fragment of the True Cross. He had visited the Jordan River where he was baptized again. He had been at Jerusalem and really established a Christian legitimacy for Norwegian kings thereafter. And, and that legitimacy of, uh, of Sigurd was, was envied by the kings of, of Denmark and Sweden. The Danish and Swedish kings in the 12th and 13th centuries, respectively, sought to gain crusading advantages and legit legitimacy closer at home. The Danish kings will wage wars along the southern and eastern shores of the Baltic to convert the Slavic Wends or the Baltic-speaking uh, people such as Pomeranians, Prussians, the ancestors of the modern Latvians and Lith uh, Lithuanians today. The Swedes will direct their efforts into, against the Finns and eventually against Orthodox Novgorod in the 13th century. All of these were efforts by uh, Scandinavian kings to join the privileged circle of Christian kings in Europe. It also was, uh, it was accompanied by promoting uh, European styles of fighting and above all knighthood and chivalry and all of the traditions now associated with knighthood that comes out of the crusading traditions of the 12th and 13th century. Scandinavian kings start putting on jousts. There is a need 
for more heavy cavalry. Denmark takes uh, the lead in this. The Danes convert to a manorial uh, structure of agriculture, which can support what is called in Danish a lens, uh, that is a fief. Certain Danish warriors are enfiefed as knights, the way you would have in classic Europe. Many of actually uh, the Danish knights are, are actually Germans who've been brought in uh, by the Danish king and given their fiefs. Uh, to a lesser extent, this is also applied in Norway and even far lesser in Sweden, and that's because of the unusual quality of Sweden. The Danish kings, foremost, but then followed quickly by the Swedish and Norwegian kings, always had an appetite for revenues. By becoming Christian kings, they had a far more expensive diplomacy. They had international marriages. They had to conduct crusades. Um, there was a whole style of diplomacy and court uh, that one maintained. Uh, the court at Roskilde is, under the Christian kings of the 12th century, is a very, very different and far more expensive affair uh, than the court of Rolf Kraki. And that meant they had to extend uh, the uh, royal ju uh, jurisdiction over justice, the administration of justice, the profits of justice. They had to collect tolls and rents on trade and on their estates. And above all, they converted traditional obligations to the monarchy into cash payments. Uh, the letting or ledig, that is the ship, sh uh, ship levy, was very often commuted, that is, turned into cash payment in the course of the 12th and 13th century. And that had another important development that changed Scandinavian society. Increasingly, Scandinavia acquired very much the uh, quality of most European states in the later Middle Ages. There was a warrior caste, a professional caste of knights, of nobles, who did the real fighting, and increasingly the rest of the population was engaged in agriculture or fishing or stock raising and not expected to use arms. Again, that is a, a European pattern that has now been brought into Scandinavia and is yet another reason why you don't have that reservoir of trained, armed, free men to go out on the Viking-style raids. Now the king has a monopoly of violence, he controls the armies, but above all, certain classes have that monopoly of violence, and those are the men increasingly trained to fight as heavy cavalry as knights. Also, shipping and banking falls into the hands of German burghers, that is, uh, uh, we would call them bourgeoisie or middle class. It's sort of a deceptive term. Merchants are really just one step below the nobility. Very often they acquire landed property. But the members of the Hanseatic League take over the banking and the shipping in most Danish and Norwegian towns. They are prominent on the island of Gotland in Sweden, which is essentially a satellite of the Hanseatic League. They're far less important in Sweden because of the um, diversified economy and the, um, the nature of, uh, of a Swedish social patterns. The Danish kings cannot tax these people. It is extremely difficult for the Danish kings to tax their German Hanseatic subjects. The same is also true in Norway, where the Norwegian kings have to come to deals with the Hanseatic League. They control the ships, they control the shipping, and increasingly Scandinavian armies often have to be shipped in German vessels. And that puts uh, another restriction on these Scandinavian monarchies. And finally, these monarchies, all of them to varying degrees, are struggling to make themselves hereditary, to, to force the nobility, the prelates, that is the bishops, the clergy, and all of their subjects to accept the principle that the monarchy is hereditary within one family and that a single king should rule. And without getting in too much of the details of later Scandinavian history, there are varying degrees of success in this endeavor. The kings of Norway, by the 13th century, by 1217, with the accession of King Hakon IV, turned their monarchy into a 
uh, a hereditary Christian monarchy. And the Norwegian throne is without doubt going to pass in the family, the descendants of Harald Hattery, um, descendants of essentially St. Saint, uh, Saint Olaf. And that is a strict European-style monarchy, and in many ways, uh, Norway of the 13th century resembles in its legal institutions and its royal in institutions uh, contemporary England under Henry III. Denmark is slightly different. Uh, the Danish kings eventually assert that their family, the old Yelling family, going back to Gorm the Old, and these are the descendants of Sven Estrithsen, the nephew of King Canute, Canute the Great, insist that they should be the only people qualified for election as king, and there should only be really a single king. There shouldn't be any of these joint kingships anymore. And that pretty much sticks. They, however, increasingly become restricted in the 13th century. They have a royal council, which comes to be called the Danhof, which is the, the it means the Dane's house, the Dane, it's, it's the royal council of prelates and nobles, uh, the hereditary lords of Denmark who advise the crown. And they insist that yes, they will elect a member of that family, but each Danish king on his accession must promise to rule according to customary laws and with consultation of the Donhof or the royal council. So the Danish monarchy is hereditary to some degree, but it is also restricted. In Sweden, as I mentioned in another lecture, the Swedish kings never succeed in making their, their monarchy hereditary. And from the start, from, the, from 1250 on, when we have good records, it is the Royal Council in Stockholm that really dictates royal policy. And the kings are always elective, elective uh, monarchs, and the Royal Council will take the initiative, particularly an important uh, decision in the late 14th century, to elect not only someone outside the royal family, but in the case of, of Albrecht III of Mecklenburg, someone who wasn't even a Swede. He's connected by dynastic connections, but he was essentially a German prince who was brought in to be king of Sweden. Well, with all of these changes pressing on the uh, different monarchies of Scandinavia, I would like to switch over to the second part of this lecture and examine briefly the fortunes of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden in the aftermath of the Viking Age and during that period of the High Middle Ages so that you have some sense of the type of Christian kingdoms that had come out of the Viking Age. Well, initially, Denmark showed the greatest promise. In part, uh, a lot of credit goes to Sven Estrithsen. He was the king who decided that the conquest of England was not worth the effort. It was better to be a territorial Christian king of Denmark than attempting to revive the empire of Canute. He left five sons, all by different wives. Uh, he was fondly remembered by bishops because he endowed a lot of land to the, the bishoprics, uh, but he never paid attention to Christian uh, mores. They're all officially wives. Every one of uh, his five sons was a half-brother. There's a, a son of a different mother. And um, the second one of his sons to succeed, Canute IV, was eventually canonized somewhere around 1102, 1103, because he was murdered by crews in Denmark who didn't want to carry out an invasion of England. Uh, Canute IV, Saint Canute, as he's usually knew, uh, known in the records, attempted to revive the project of invading, invading England, and that just didn't go anywhere, uh, and he was actually dragged from the sanctuary of a church and killed. Uh, there's a lot of suspicion that his brother, Olaf, who at that point was in a royal dungeon and was slated for execution, that his supporters had something to do with the mutiny. Uh, this is in 1086. And Olaf was declared the next king. He's the third son of Sven to follow. And Olaf um, 
the year after Olaf came to the throne, there was a famine in Denmark, and he is uh, affectionately remembered in the Danish tradition as Olaf the Hungry, or the Hunger, uh, meaning that everyone was hungry because of the famine, because he was responsible for murdering, or, or his supporters for murdering his brother uh, Canute, who was eventually canonized, a rather dubious royal saint to say the least. Um, Olaf, in turn, was followed by his brothers Eric the Evergood and Niels, and they, collectively, the five sons of Sven Estrison, really advanced the ecclesiastical institutions of, of, of Denmark, they established the diocese, they carried out reforms of royal law, extended the competence of royal courts, and very much promoted the changes that drove the economic, social, and religious changes of which, what I spoke. Unfortunately, after the death of Niels in 1134, the Danish kingdom went through an incredibly violent uh, set of civil wars, which nearly wiped out the Danish monarchy. And um, it's led some, some scholars to really question how deep were Christian values when um, uh, one of my favorite Danish kings in the period, is he's, he's known as um, Eric the Unforgettable, who from 11, 1131 to 1135 managed to wipe out eight of his own children, his nephews, his nieces, uh, murdered at least six bishops, and yet was reckoned by Saxo Grammaticus to rule with the favor of di divine clemency. And in the words of uh, the historian Eric Christensen, uh, he very much typifies the types of kings of this age. And Christensen would say, uh, such men uh, worship success. Christ would grant it, give shelter to the bloodstained soul after death, and in return, he expected baptism, liberality to his priest, penance, and burial in hallowed ground, and little more. And these Danish kings of the 12th century fit that description extremely accurately. The situation changes with the uh, accession of Valdemir I in 1157. He and his two sons, who follow, Canute VI, Valdemir II, bring Denmark to the position where Denmark looks as if she will turn herself into a great naval power that will dominate the Baltic. Uh, Valdemir and his first cousin, the Bishop of um, Ruskild, uh, Absalon, carry out a very aggressive set of wars along the southern shores of, uh, of the Baltic. They conquer the Wends. Uh, they storm uh, the pagan sanctuary on the modern island of Rügen, which is strategically placed at the Oder River. They also extend their overlordship to the borderlands uh, south of the Eider River, the region of Holstein today, and they have in mind gaining control of both Hamburg and Lübeck, and those goals are eventually realized by the second son of Valdemir, Valdemir II. There's also efforts to campaign farther east. Uh, along the, uh, today, these would be the shores of Poland, uh, the areas around Königsberg, or as it's now known, Kaliningrad, the shores of Latvia and Lithuania. Uh, Denmark still has a significant fleet. This is uh, before the emergence of the Hanseatic League. And when Valdemir I dies, he dies probably uh, seen as a king who rules a monarchy that in some ways might be comparable to Norman England. The population of Denmark is perhaps 700,000. England and Wales is close to a million. Uh, Denmark is expanding rapidly in the Baltic, becoming a naval power, colonizing new areas. Again, the comparison to England is its expansion into Wales, eventually into Ireland and Scotland, under, under the Norman kings, uh, the Plantagenet kings. And so uh, Denmark is on the road to becoming a significant European monarchy. 
And in part, that success depended on not just the personality of Valdemir I, but also on the fact that the Danish kings cooperated closely with the great Hohenstaufen emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, notably Frederick I, Frederick Barbarossa. Well, that possibility for Denmark to emerge as, a, as the uh, Christian crusader kingdom in the Baltic uh, ends in the early 13th century. There are several reasons for this. The failure of Danish power to contemporaries was really probably quite unexpected and really quite dramatic. In uh, the year 1227, the uh, then reigning king, Valdemir II, at an important battle known as Bornhoved, is defeated by his German vassals. Uh, in 1227, uh, the Danish kings ruled a substantial part of northern Germany, and this had been allowed by the Hohenstaufen kings. Uh, these would include towns such as uh, Lübeck and Hamburg, the areas of Holstein, parts of what are now Mecklenburg. Uh, the Hohenstaufens, whose base was really in southern Germany and who were really far more interested in Italy and Rome, uh, used the Danish king as a counterweight, as a way of keeping the northern German lords in line so they wouldn't get too obnoxious and frustrate Hohenstaufen ambitions in Italy and the Mediterranean. And so the, uh, Valdemir I and his sons had exploited this alliance to extend Danish power in northern Germany and to carry out significant crusading operations and colonization along uh, the southern shores and eastern shores of the Baltic. Well, in 1227, that comes to an end. Uh, Valdemir II, who had had a rather unfortunate career with his German vassals, at one point he and his son, was actu uh, son were actually seized by the Count of Holstein when they were visiting him for a hunting expedition, held for ransom. It was an outrageous sum. They paid it. Uh, that's one reason why the Danish army ends up on the battlefield at, at, at Bornhoved in 1227 anyway. But that defeat in which King Valdemir II was, was captured, he was forced to relinquish his German conquests, to give up those towns. Uh, he retained uh, Rügen, that island at the mouth of the, uh, the Oder, and later campaigned, uh, his later uh, expeditions on the northern shores of Estonia, which was a really remote outpost of Danish power, that they were allowed to retain. But otherwise, the southern and eastern shores of the Baltic were going to become the area colonized and exploited by Germans and Dutch. Lübeck, the great city established in the mid-12th century, the first significant German city founded on the Baltic shore, became the point of departure for German colonists, merchants, and crusaders who fanned out across uh, the Baltic area and really conquered and converted these areas and brought them into the Christian community. And it is important to stress that while the modern maps show a shore for Poland, the Polish kingdom is centered in Krakow. The Polish kings have very little interest, very little contact on what's going on in the shores of the Baltic. That is a German area of activity. And Russia is much too far east, uh, or the Russian principalities and the Republic of Novgorod, that the, the eastern shores of the Baltic are largely not organized in any sort of states. All of these areas are brought under German control, and the towns are essentially German towns. Even the Danish outpost in Estonia, the modern city of Tallinn, Reval, which is, which is the basis of Danish power, is essentially a German community. The Danish king is actually using German settlers to settle his very conquests. And so from the mid-13th century on, with that defeat of Valdemir II, the Danish kings are increasingly behind the fiscal eight ball. The situation gets worse and worse. They take a second 
seat to the uh, Hanseatic League and the German, uh, particularly the Teutonic Order, the military monastic order, uh, in the Baltic. And the Danish crown, by the opening of the 14th century, is close to bankrupt. It cannot meet its bills. Uh, the currency is debased. They lose control over uh, the uh, right to tax uh, trade because the Hanseatic League has now the the, uh, the ships and the military force to gain concessions from the J Danish crown, so they're exempt from it. At one point in the early 14th century, the Danish monarchy is actually abolished, and um, they're close to 10 years. And then all the uh, Danish and German knights and lords realize, well, we really need a king in order to enfief us and, you know, be a good idea, and they bring the kingship back. But it's remarkable that Denmark was just not incorporated into uh, the Holy Roman Empire as a principality similar to what happened to Bohemia. Well, as the Danish monarchy declined dramatically in the 13th and early 14th century, the um, Norwegian monarchy went to success. There was a period of very difficult civil wars in the 12th century. These are discussed in the latter portions of Snorri Struleson's Heimskringla saga, and he takes the story uh, down to the 1170s, not quite to the end of, that, uh, of those struggles. In part, these were wars that followed the death of uh, Sigurd Jerusalem Fair, where there was a dynastic question of who should follow. And up until really until 1217, there was still an understanding uh, within the royal uh, Norwegian house that all sons, legitimate and illegitimate, had some sort of claim to a realm. And there are instances of kings sharing power or even dividing up the rule of Norway. The traditional arrangement would be someone would get Vestlandot and the Oslo upland area, someone would rule in, in Trondelag and Halagoland, the northern regions. Well, from 1130 down to 1217, a series of violent civil wars broke out bet uh, between rival, family, uh, rival branches of the same family. And these civil wars were really on an incredibly destructive level. Each uh, contender armed what is often known as a floke, plural floklar, where we get flock in English. It's essentially the same war word. These were armed retainers, very often men armed with the newest style European type of weapons. The plundering and the pillaging that went on was really quite horrendous, if Snorri is to believe. Customary law was violated. And what came out of about a generation and a half of Norwegian civil wars was a landed class willing to accept a just king and eager to accept a hereditary monarch who would impose the rule of law. And with the exception of Hakon IV in 1217, uh, the two groups, the Croiziers and the Birchlegs, as they like to call themselves from their banners, agreed to put their support behind Hakon, who represented uh, both branches of the family in his descent. And he not only imposed law, Hakon IV proved the very monarch that would make Norway work. On the one hand, what Hakon got was the assurance of strict hereditary succession. No more joint kingships, none of that nonsense, and the succession went to the family. There was no other family. It was no, the Norwegian monarchy was no longer elective, unlike the Danish monarchy where there was still an elective principle. The second important thing that Hacken achieved was he linked royal power with local institutions, uh, an ancient tradition, but 
He brought in English-style sheriffs. Um, uh, he developed uh, justices of, uh, of the peace, as we would call them, in an English shire. It's very similar to the arrangements you have in, say, Plantagenet in England. They would administer justice according to traditional law in the different districts of Norway, but they represented the crown. And that was an important point. Justice was customary, but linked and sanctified by the crown. A brilliant, uh, a brilliant solution. So what Hacken did was co-opt the local ruling elites to royal service. He also developed church institutions, and the church was very much behind the notion of hereditary monarchy uh, because that would cause an end to the destruction, the plundering of church properties that had been going on for the last um, you know, 70 years. And they very much promoted this image of a just king in the traditions of St. Augustine. And in return, they gave their full support, the coronation, the full Christian legal justifications behind this hereditary monarchy, Hacken IV and his son and successor, Magnus VI, both proved to be great friends of the church. They expanded ecclesiastical institutions and really turned the Norwegian church into a national church working in close tandem with the monarchy. So that by the, um, the opening of the 14th century, where the Danish monarchy was in serious jeopardy of disappearing, and being divided, essentially Denmark being divided between the Hanseatic League and various nobles of both German and, and Danish ancestry who ruled as, uh, as feudal lords, Norway emerged as the most effective and central state on Scandinavia and a kingdom that had a reputation as a crusader kingdom and a powerful kingdom uh, that commanded the respect of other European monarchies. Sweden, as I mentioned in a previous lecture, Sweden never developed a hereditary monarchy. The royal council maintained the right to elect the king, to change the election of kings, and above all, directed policy. And Swedish kings of the 13th century, and starting in the early 13th century with Eric X, attempted to gain some kind of respectability, legitimacy, and profits by waging crusades in Finland. Now, there were two reasons for doing this. One was uh, getting papal dispensations, all the advantages that the Danish kings had in the 12th century. You would extend royal control, you would conquer Finland, uh, you would bring Christianity to the heathen. But it was also hoped that these expeditions, which would drive deep into Finland and then into Russia, would give the Swedes control over the lucrative fur trade. And that fur trade had come increasingly to center on the old Scandinavian colony of Novgorod, now the seat of a city, 80 to 100,000 strong, a Russian principality that was very, very orthodox in its faith and extremely jealous of the fur trade. And so over the course of the 13th century, the Swedish kings launch a number of expeditions to convert the Finns. They do succeed in bringing southern Finland under their control. There is a certain amount of colonization. But they fail hopelessly in their efforts to push into the fur trade of Russia. They just don't have the population and resources to take on the princes and the merchants of Novgorod. And in the end, Novgorod succeeds, and by 1300, the Swedish kingdom is not going to generate an effective monarchy by crusading and overseas conquest. 
And so Sweden, uh, by the opening of, uh, by the early uh, 14th century, is not quite in the fiscal disaster that Denmark is, but that Swedish monarchy is never going to be a major power in the late Middle Ages. And so by 1350, the question on the eve of the Black Death is really, well, what will happen next with these Scandinavian kingdoms? And we'll give a postscript on that in our final lecture. Lecture 36, The Viking Legacy. In this lecture, I want to conclude the course on the age of the Vikings, and there's really two objectives in this particular lecture. In part, it's something of a postscript. I want to follow up on the theme of, well, what happens to Scandinavia now that they are uh, Christian kingdoms, they have been integrated into the wider European world. And I do believe uh, some thoughts on uh, the dire directions of future Scandinavian history are in, are in order. Those directions are very much influenced uh, by the Viking Age and its immediate aftermath and will act as a way of um, introducing uh, you to later Scandinavian history, particularly Scandinavia of the Reformation and the so-called Wars of Religion. The other important and by far the larger part of uh, this lecture is to sum up the importance of the Viking Age for Scandinavia and for medieval civilization as a whole. And there I think it's very important for us to look at a number of changes and themes in this course and understand how the Vikings came to play such a decisive role in the formation of, of Latin Christendom and eventually Western Europe. Well, let's take a look at our postscript first and just give something of an update of what the future is for Scandinavia in the aftermath of the Viking Age. I uh, had closed the last uh, two lectures, which dealt with the development of Christian Scandinavia up to about 1350, and I chose that date because that represents the impact of the Black Death, which raged across Europe and the Near East uh, between 1347 and 1351 affecting areas diff at different times, but within a five or six year period, this great epidemic swept across most of the civilized areas of Western Eurasia and killed between one half and two thirds of the population. Uh, deaths usually occurred within several months when the plague arrived. The attrition rates in cities were nothing short of catastrophic. Uh, figures from the Mediterranean world suggest that a city within a matter of two months could lose anywhere from 75 to 80 percent of its population. And it had major repercussions in religious life, in economics, in political life for both Islamic and Christian civilizations. And Scandinavia was profoundly affected by it, notably Norway and Denmark. That, the aftermath of the Black Death and its repercussions, along with several themes that I stressed in, in the last several lectures, that is the rising prosperity in Scandinavia as a result of changes after 1100, the common Viking heritage and culture that kept the Scandinavian peoples together and gave them a sense of identity even after the conversion of Christianity, and above all, the success of at least uh, turning the three Scandinavian kingdoms into territorial Christian kingdoms of some sort 
Could all of these elements, along with the changes wrought in the late 14th and 15th century, have led to some kind of unification of Scandinavia into a wider political unit and uh, so that the Scandinavians would play a more prominent role in the later Middle Ages and early modern period? Well, that seemed to have been the case in 1397 when the three kingdoms were united. Uh, this is very often known in Scandinavian history as the Union of Kalmar, which refers to the document, and there's really two documents that worked out the unification of the three crowns, Norway, Denmark, and, and Sweden, in the hands of a man named Erika Pomerania, who was the great nephew of Queen Margaret of uh, Denmark, uh, the daughter of uh, Valdemir IV of Denmark. And Valdemir IV and his daughter Margaret had worked assiduously for decades to bring the three crowns together. And it was assisted by the accidents of death, birth, marriage. But in 1397, all of the crowns came into the hands of Eric of Pomerania. It seemed to promise a new age for Scandinavia. In some ways, it looked like a bit of the revival of the Empire of Canute, minus England. Furthermore, it promised a unification of royal power. To be sure, the provisions as enforced in Sweden had to go through the Royal Council, but it did seem to promise that an effective Scandinavian monarchy could curb the power of the Hanseatic League, uh, which had come to dominate banking and shipping could also turn Scandinavia into a great monarchy that could compete with the monarchies emerging in the late medieval period, notably England, France, uh, the monarchy of Poland, which at this point is quite significant, the great principalities of Germany, the destinies were more in the principalities rather than the Holy Roman Empire, but uh, these great principalities such as Saxony or uh, the future Austria, Bavaria, they were, they were powerful states indeed. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way, and there were two reasons for it. One, the Union of Kalmar, as far as I can see, in many ways was more of a union brought about by weakness and hopes rather than any real strength. And from the start, Eric of Pomerania, who had his own problems, it was hardly diplomatic. From the start, uh, the Swedes dictated the conditions in Stockholm. Uh, the Danish king never really ruled in Sweden, and through Sweden, the Finnish possessions of Sweden, except with the will of the council. And through the whole period of this union in the 15th century, in the early 16th century, leading up to the famous Stockholm ma massacre and the renunciation of Danish rule, the Swedes uh, uh, essentially uh, got what they wanted out of this union and really restricted royal rights uh, in Sweden. They were assisted by the fact that Eric and several of the later Danish kings really played into their hands by favoring Danish appointments over Swedish appointments. They gave a lot of cause for the Swedes not to cooperate with the Dermish, uh, Danish crown. But the Union also revealed uh, several other important aspects of um, uh, how Scandinavian society had evolved. Uh, Danes, Norwegians, and Swedes had evolved into different people. Their vernaculars were now distinct enough that they had independent literatures. Uh, they were no longer speakers of a common Danish tongue. In mores and aesthetics, the Danes in many ways resembled their German neighbors immediately to the south, and it would be very difficult to, to, to distinguish a German burger from a Danish burger in the year 1400. And Denmark was particularly receptive to the Reformation because it was so closely tied to the North German towns and principalities where the Reformation took off in the 16th century. Norway, ironically, came under Danish control as a province, but was treated as an outland province and not very important. And the reason for that were really the economic implications of the Black Death. 
Both Norway and Denmark were hit very hard demographically by the Black Death in the mid-14th uh, mid century, but Denmark recovered rather rapidly. Uh, immigration of Germans uh, helped replenish the population, but furthermore, the economic consequences of the Black Death favored more it's difficult to say luxury goods, but if you dealt in bulk commodities, if you handled grains or basic foodstuffs, prices crashed immediately in the Black Death because the market collapsed. You didn't have the same number of people to feed. And, and if your economy very much depended on that, uh, you were in trouble, and that was true with Norway. Uh, there wasn't the demand for cod the way there had been before. On the other hand, if you were engaged in prestige items, especially if you're dealing, uh, as Denmark did, in dairy and beef and uh, pork products. Those were always a small part of the diet. Well, now the survivors of the Black Death, and economics historians generally agree, those few who survived actually did pretty well. This wasn't really prosperity, but if you kill two-thirds of the population, everyone, you know, just by the laws of arithmetic, are wealthier, so they had more money to spend, and therefore Denmark marketed the type of commodities that allowed the Danish economy to bounce back much more readily. And ironically, Norway came to depend on imported Danish foodstuffs. And essentially, Norway was integrated into the Danish kingdom uh, because its population had been so badly disrupted by the Black Death. The population, there weren't really sufficient number of bishops and men of property to carry on royal institutions so that the Danish crown under the Union of Kalmar could appoint Danish officials, or often German officials, to run Norway, turn Norway into a Danish province, and furthermore, Norway was increasingly dependent on Danish foodstuffs and goods, and so Norway passed under Danish control and would remain so down to 1815, when it was turned over to Sweden at the Congress of Vienna. To me, there's a certain dis depressing aspect in all of this. And in reviewing Viking history and the achievements of Harold Finehair and uh, the splendid isolation of Jarl Hakon the Great, who defied the Danes and the Joms uh, Vikings, uh, St. Olaf in his great victory, Magnus the Great, uh, the son of St. Olaf, uh, and, and of course Harald Hottery, to think that Norway was able to beat back Danish attack after Danish attack in the Viking Age only to succumb to Denmark because of the black rats that carried the Black Death is, is truly an ignominious way for this, this great monarchy to end, but that's, that's essentially what happened. Sweden was affected the least by the uh, uh, demographic and economic implications of the Black Death, and Sweden did quite well in um, the 14th and 15th centuries, and the Royal Council was able to assert itself and eventually to shake off Danish rule. And so what happened out of the Union of Kalmar was the reconfiguration of two kingdoms, Norway-Denmark under uh, the Oldenburg dynasty, and eventually Sweden-Finland under the Vasa House, uh, both of them uh, hereditary monarchies that would vastly expand their powers in the Reformation uh, by the confiscation of church properties, the taking over and establishment of national churches, and those two uh, monarchies represented quite separate identities, national identities, and the uh, kings of Denmark and the kings of Sweden would then struggle for mastery of the Baltic, and in the end, Moscow would win. Well, with that postscript, essentially Denmark and Sweden fought themselves uh, to a standstill and, and ultimately it was the Russia of Peter the Great that came to dominate the Baltic. Well, in the course of looking at Scandinavian history and concluding in this uh, late Middle Ages, I think it's important uh, to review um, what we've achieved in this course. 
The course is more ambitious than the title implies. We're not looking just at the Viking Age. We've looked at also the evolution of Scandinavia both before the Viking Age and in the centuries immediately after. And that has caused us to take a wider perspective on the subject. And I think that's all important in understanding the decisive role that Scandinavians in the Viking Age played. Even in the Reformation in the age of uh, the, uh, the, war, uh, the age of the War of Religions, Scandinavians never played the premier role the way they did in that period from 790 to about 1100. And this has caused us to start this course looking uh, in the first third of the lectures at the origins of Scandinavian uh, history. We've uh, shown how there is a very long tradition of Scandinavia being influenced uh, by Western and Central Europe, the ability to assimilate technological and cultural innovations to a Scandinavian landscape. We started off with that in the Bronze Age, where the uh, adoption of farming, stock raising, uh, bronze tools, metallurgy, led to the birth of the first significant Scandinavian cultural period, the so-called Northern Bronze Age, extending from 1550 to 1100 BC, an area, a, a time when the core areas of Scandinavia were settled, where agriculture begins to be practiced, and as far as we can tell from the cultural remains, the physical remains, that the earliest definition of the Scandinavian gods took place, the Vanir, the conception of Thor, Certainly, the basic cosmology eventually expressed in the Prose Edda, uh, the um, uh, marvelous bronze gilt horse of uh, the Sun Chariot, uh, which seems to be indications that already in the late Bronze Age we can begin to speak of, if nothing else, proto-Scandinavians. This pattern is again repeated in the so-called Celtic and Roman Ages. Those are the periods of the Iron Age where trade, uh, some immigration, but particularly trade, greatly enriched material life in Scandinavia and led to important changes. It led to technological changes in shipbuilding starting certainly by 300 BC and that outside influence set in motion uh, the innovations and improvements in shipbuilding that eventually gave Scandinavians their longships and canars of the Viking Age. It also uh, enriched material life. It probably had a profound influence in redefining the gods along certain Celtic patterns. The Norse gods may have acquired some of their personality we see in later literature. And in the Roman age and in the su succeeding uh, age of migrations, an argument is often made that Odin emerged as the premier god of the Scandinavians, associated with the sword. Swords are a common import in the Roman age and later. Odin becomes the quintessential war god who comes to embody uh, the Viking age. Uh, furthermore, the Scandinavians uh, gain close contacts with Western Europe, with Britain, with Gaul. Uh, there's important trade connections, and those trade connections continue in the age of migrations. And when those trade connections are disrupted, uh, when the flow of goods from Western Europe are in any way impeded, well, then the Scandinavians in part are forced to go out and get them themselves. And that's sometimes argued as one of the motives behind the Viking Age. We also looked at the age of migrations, that period from 400 to 600, which in my opinion was so decisive in shaping uh, the civilization of the Viking Age. In fact, the only real point missing in the age of migrations, perhaps, are the great ships that allowed the Viking Age. The sagas and legends, if we can, if we can trust in what we're getting 
from the poem of Beowulf and from the Icelandic sagas. Already in that period of the Age of Migration, Scandinavians had that martial ethos, that cult of Odin, the tradition of the Great Halls uh, associated with legendary figures as Rolf Kraki, and the Great Halls, which were later the basis of the Sea Kings of the Viking Age and ultimately the Christian Territorial Kings of the late Viking Age and later. And it is also in the Age of Migrations where the Scandinavians define themselves as distinct from their Germanic kinsmen of Central Europe, of the Carolingian Empire, and in, and in England. Uh, that saw the development of what Scandinavians called in 1100 the Danish tongue, the distinct North Germanic dialects that eventually would evolve into Icelandic, Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish. It saw the development of Scandinavian poetry. It intensified the heroic traditions and ethos. I stressed very much how the Scandinavians took the legends of their West Germanic kinsmen, the legends of their uh, kinsmen, the Goths in Eastern Europe, recast them as quintessentially Scandinavian figures and made them their own. And that is all occurring in this period of the Age of Migrations, which in some ways is one of the very create, most creative periods in early Scandinavian history and broke the Scandinavians off into the independent civilization of the Viking Age and made them a people very different from their kinsmen in Western Europe who were revolving into Christian Europeans and who would turn out to be their foes and victims in the Viking Age. We then expanded the perspective in this course uh, when we got to the Viking Age proper and we devoted close to a third of the class or the course to uh, the Viking impact overseas. And this, this is where Scandinavians made their greatest impact in European history, and one should reflect upon how wide-ranging those, those influences and that impact was. The Viking trade, raids, settlements overseas wrought great changes from Ireland to Russia. In many ways, it also transformed the Scandinavian homeland, but let's put that aside for a moment. They were clearly feared by Christians and Muslims as the quintessential barbarian. Uh, the worst nightmare. And the stereotypical images that we still have of the Vikings really goes back to those images of the 9th and 10th century. The prayer that's often raised in the Carolingian world, O Lord, de deliver us from the fury of the Northmen. We, of course, have added the horned helmets, uh, inappropriately taken from the Bronze Age, uh, to fire up that image. But the image has a historical basis. Uh, the Vikings were incredibly destructive. They were warriors who made war violently on a scale that most of their victims could really not match or, uh, or uh, even appreciate uh, the martial ethos behind it. Nonetheless, despite all the suffering, despite all the destruction wrought by the Vikings, there were important changes. Uh, in the case of the Carolingian Empire, that great synthesis achieved by Charlemagne, which is so promising and so fundamental to European civilization, it was the Vikings, not the Muslims in Spain, not the Magyars in the East, not the Byzantines in southern Italy, but the Vikings, the Scandinavians, the least civilized opponents of the Western Europeans, who revealed the fundamental weaknesses in that Carolingian state. The Carolingian state in the ninth century failed to meet the Viking attacks. Uh, the fiscal and military weaknesses were painfully revealed by the end of the ninth century. Um, the Carolingian dynasty was essentially bankrupt politically, eventually replaced by the Capetians. In its place, Europe broke up into smaller states, 
uh, eventually the Holy Roman Empire and what is to become France. But above all, the building blocks for the new European political order were in the feudal states that made up those kingdoms, notably the great feudal states of northwestern Europe, which were the very states that would conduct the Crusades and the expansion of Western Europe in the later Middle Ages. The Vikings themselves had a hand not only in promoting these changes, but establishing what was to turn out to be the premier feudal state in the new order, and that was the Duchy of Normandy. It is inconceivable to imagine European history without Normandy and the Normans. They forged the most effective state in what was to become France. William the Conqueror conquered England, reintegrated England, and ultimately the whole British Isles back into the Carolingian political order of Western uh, Europe. And the Norman kingdom that was established in England is the basis for the English monarchy and English law. Without the Norman conquest, it's doubtful whether uh, that England would have survived as a unified state, given the political situation in the later years of Edward the Confessor. The Normans went over, went on to cross to Ireland and, and to intervene in Scotland and to bring the more remote areas of the British Isles uh, into closer uh, political and cultural uh, union uh, with Western Europe. They campaigned in Spain, and above all, they went into the southern sections of uh, Italy and Sicily and founded a second Norman kingdom, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, destined to be one of the great four monarchies of the Middle Ages. Norman England, Norman Sicily, France, and the Holy Roman Empire. Those would end up being the great monarchies of the 13th century. The Vikings dictated the course of English history. And without the Viking attacks, uh, one wonders what would have happened in England. They determined that Wessex would emerge as the kingdom to unite England. And it was in response to the Danish attacks that one of the most brilliant kings of the early Middle Ages, Alfred the Great, forged the institutions that fought back the Vikings and allowed his descendants to incorporate the Vikings of the Dan Law into that expanded kingdom of Wessex and achieve a unity, a kingdom of England in the reign of King Egder. Clearly one of the great achievements of the early Middle Ages in a period characterized by political fragmentation that England was united under these kings. And ironically that kingdom passed in toto to the Danish conqueror Canute and his successors who used England as the means to establish their hegemony in Scandinavia. We also dealt with Viking attacks in Ireland and its impact there. It destroyed that brilliant monastic culture of the early Middle Ages and in many ways dictated the future course of Irish history because no Irish high king had sufficient resources and power to establish his hegemony despite the efforts of a, uh, Brian Baruma and Ireland was really condemned to political fragmentation uh, until the arrival of the Normans in 1170 and that would uh, wrought that, that arrival of the Normans, that invitation uh, that is extended to the Normans, their intervention in Ireland will open a whole new chapter with the English domination of Ireland and the changes thereafter. Scotland too is essentially a creation of the Viking Age. Uh, at the start of the Viking Age, no one knew what Scotland was going to be. Viking attacks across that strategic isthmus disrupted the Kingdom of Northumbria. The Vikings defeated the Strathclyde Britons, the Picts. It was the Scots, the most unlikely of candidates in Scotland, who had come to, to unite the northern third of Britain into the Kingdom of Scotland under Kenneth I. And that was because the Scots, Gaelic-speaking Irish immigrants, were able to survive the Viking raids and exploit 
the political disorder resulting from Viking raids to unite the various peoples, English, Britons, Picts, Scots, into a united kingdom in the late 10th century, just at about the time the Kingdom of England is being organized. Foremost, Russia. The development of the Russian principalities, however we want to call these areas, the, the, the future of uh, what are now the modern states of the Ukraine, Belarus, and Great Russia, they owe their creation directly to the efforts of the Rus to develop market towns and trade with Constantinople. Uh, it was Vladimir uh, uh, or Vladimir, uh, the Prince of Kiev, who converted to Orthodox Christianity and, in effect, brought Roman institutions from the Mediterranean world to the Russian forest zone and created. Uh, for the first time, a major political and cultural center in the Russian forest zone. And that civilization, which was sparked by the trading activities and the Viking activities of Scandinavians, uh, led to the creation of Russia with profound consequences for European and world history. So across the whole of Europe, uh, the Vikings had a major impact in determining the destinies, uh, the political, the religious, and economic futures of both Western and Eastern Europe. There were profound uh, changes in Scandinavia as well, and we should think upon some of the more positive contributions made by the Scandinavians. One is the skill in shipbuilding, and I spent considerable time discussing those achievements and ev the evolution of shipbuilding, which climaxed in the late 10th and 11th century with the great longships and canars, the ocean-going cargo vessels that allowed for the colonization of Iceland. The dragon ships, reputedly carrying 200 warriors, the most famous being the Long Serpent, uh, the flagship of King Olaf uh, Tryggvason of Norway. That's the ship from which he leaps into the sea at the Battle of Svold in 1000. Uh, these ships were on a whole other order than anything that had been seen in Northern Europe. And while the Scandinavians will lose their, uh, their primacy in shipbuilding and trading to the Germans and the Dutch, uh, starting in the 12th and, and then continuing in the 13th century. Nonetheless, the Dutch and German shipbuilding, uh, the superior ships of the later Middle Ages, were based directly on those Scandinavian shipbuilding traditions. And what the Scandinavians achieve in the early Middle Ages is a shipbuilding tradition in Northern Europe, which is parallel but different to the shipbuilding of Southern Europe, particularly centering in Italy, in the ports of uh, Southern France, and of Eastern Spain, uh, Barcelona, Marseille, Genoa, and Venice. Europe had the unique situation in the Middle Ages of having two independent shipbuilding systems, uh, one based on the, the ancient um, shell construction, the other on the skeleton, skeleton construction of Northern Europe. And when those two traditions were swapped and influenced each other, presto, you had the development of the ocean-going vessels of the 15th and 16th century in, in Europe, once mounted with artillery that enabled Europeans to capture the globe. And so the Scandinavians had a major influence in the development of European shipbuilding and ultimately uh, European domination worldwide. That northern shipbuilding is clearly one of the great uh, technical achievements of the Viking Age. And there's really nothing like that uh, before then. Above all, we've stressed uh, in the changes of Scandinavia during the Viking Age that the Scandinavians adapted outside influences. Canute took the institutions of England and adapted them uh, to creating an effective Danish state. Christianity triumphed in Scandinavia because it was accommodated to existing social and economic institutions. Best seen in Iceland, where Christianity is accepted 
in an almost classic Icelandic reconciliation between two warring parties in which the pagans were the majority and the Icelanders agreed to have the one faith, not to uh, go to a religious war. And as a result of that conversion, the ancient traditions of the Northmen uh, were preserved, that is the great sagas, the stories of the, um, the gods and the heroes of the past. Um, we've seen how the Scandinavians were receptive also to all the technological advantages coming uh, with the conversion to Christianity. How rapidly between 1100 and 1350 they took on uh, superior techniques in agriculture. Uh, they modified their laws and institutions to create a Christian Scandinavia uh, by 1350. And this is really quite an impressive achievement. As I mentioned and passing on several occasions, the three Scandinavian kingdoms today and the Republic of Iceland all can trace their political legacy back to the Viking Age. And that is no small achievement for an area that was long regarded on the fringe of Roman Europe and certainly later Christian Europe and an area that never had had the benefit of Roman conquest and Roman institutions. So in the end, what was the overall Viking impact on medieval civilization? Well, maybe it can be summed up really in two big conclusions. First, their prowess in warfare. Uh, their prowess as, as great seafarers. Um, despite all the suffering and destruction they wrought, they forced Christian Europe to organize and to arm itself. The Crusades, in some ways, are the logical result of the Viking Age. And to put it in a short sense, what did the, what did the Vikings give to Christian Europe? It gave them strength. It forced them to organize political and military institutions they may never have done otherwise. But in another area, too, they made an absolutely invaluable uh, contribution. And that was done by the intrepid uh, settlers in Iceland, just below the Arctic Circle. There, the Icelanders, because of the nature of their society and their conversion, recorded the ancient traditions of the Norse past, the gods, the heroes, the sagas, and the legends, and transmitted that literary heritage to later Western Europe. So that Norse component of the Viking Age, that, that literary achievement, that mythology, that genius of the Viking Age expressed in poetry was transmitted to later generations and became part of the greater legacy of Western Europe and took its place along with Roman Greek literature as well as uh, the Christian and Jewish traditions that make up Western European civilization. So in the end, perhaps, we should conclude that the greatest victories of the Vikings were not in England, not in Normandy, not in Russia, but on the vellums, the manuscripts composed in Iceland. We genuinely hope you've enjoyed these lectures from our Great Courses series. Our courses are now available to order online. Visit our website at www.teach12.com or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-TEACH-12. That's 1-800-TEACH-12. Thank you very much.